Chapter 13 Ella Miro, the piggies call themselves males, but we're only taking their word for it. Wanda, why would they lie? Miro, I know you're young and naive, but there's some missing equipment. Wanda, I passed physical anthropology. Who says they do it the way we do it? Miro, obviously they don't. For that matter, we don't do it at all. Maybe I've figured out where their genitals are. Those bumps on their bellies, where the hair is light and fine. Wanda. Vestigial nipples. Even you have them. Miro. I saw Leaf Eater and Pots yesterday, about ten meters off, so I didn't see them well. But Pots was stroking Leaf Eater's belly, and I think those belly bumps might have too messed. Wanda. Or they might not. Miro, one thing for sure, Leaf Eater's belly was wet. The sun was reflected off it, and he was enjoying it. Wanda, this is perverted. Miro, why not? They're all bachelors, aren't they? They're adults, but their so-called wives haven't introduced any of them to the joys of fatherhood. Wanda, I think a sex-starved Xenador is projecting his own frustrations onto his subjects. Marcos Vladimir Miro Hibera Van Hesse and Wanda Kenyatta Figuera Mukumbi. Working Notes, 1970, 1, 4, 30. The clearing was very still. Miro saw at once that something was wrong. The piggies weren't doing anything, just standing or sitting here and there, and still, hardly a breath, staring at the ground. Except human, who emerged from the forest behind them. He walked slowly, stiffly, around to the front. Miro felt Wanda's elbow press against him, but he did not look at her. He knew she was thinking the same thing he thought. Is this the moment that they will kill us, as they killed Libo and Pipo? Human regarded them steadily for several minutes. It was unnerving to have him wait so long, but Miro and Wanda were disciplined. They said nothing, did not even let their faces change from the relaxed, meaningless expression they had practiced for so many years. The art of non-communication was the first one they had to learn before Lebo would let either of them come with him. Until their faces showed nothing, until they did not even perspire visibly under emotional stress, no piggy would see them. As if it did any good. Human was too adroit at turning evasions into answers, gleaning facts from empty statements. Even their absolute stillness no doubt communicated their fear, but out of that circle there could be no escape. Everything communicated something. You have lied to us, said Human. Don't answer, Miro said silently, and Wanda was as wordless as if she had heard him. No doubt she was also thinking the same message to him. Rooter says that the speaker for the dead wants to come to us. It was the most maddening thing about the piggies. Whenever they had something outrageous to say, they always blamed it on some dead piggy who couldn't possibly have said it. No doubt there was some religious ritual involved. Go to their totem tree, ask a leading question, and lie there contemplating the leaves or the bark or something until you get exactly the answer you want. We never said otherwise, said Miro. Wanda breathed a little more quickly. You said he wouldn't come. 
That's right, said Miro. He wouldn't. He has to obey the law just like anyone else. If he tried to pass through the gate without permission, that's a lie. Miro fell silent. It's the law, said Wanda quietly. The law has been twisted before this, said Human. You could bring him here, but you don't. Everything depends on you bringing him here. Ruter says the Hive Queen can't give us her gifts unless he comes. Miro quelled his impatience. The Hive Queen? Hadn't he told the piggies a dozen times that all the buggers were killed? And now the dead Hive Queen was talking to them as much as dead Ruter. The piggies would be much easier to deal with if they could stop getting orders from the dead. It's the law, said Wanda again. If we even ask him to come, he might report us, and we'd be sent away, and we'd never come to you again. He won't report you. He wants to come. How do you know? Rooter says. There were times that Miro wanted to chop down the totem tree that grew where Rooter had been killed. Maybe then they'd shut up about what Rooter says. But instead, they'd probably name some other tree Rooter and be outraged as well. Don't even admit that you doubt their religion. That was a textbook rule. Even off-world xenologers, even anthropologists knew that. Ask him, said Human. Rooter? asked Wanda. He wouldn't speak to you, said Human. Contemptuously? Ask the speaker whether he'll come or not. Miro waited for Wanda to answer. She knew already what his answer would be. Hadn't they argued it out a dozen times in the last two days? He's a good man, said Miro. He's a fake, said Wanda. He was good with the little ones, said Miro. So are child molesters, said Wanda. I believe in him, said Miro. Then you're an idiot, said Wanda. We can trust him, said Miro. He'll betray us, said Wanda. And that was where it always ended. But the piggies changed the equation. The piggies added great pressure on Miro's side. Usually when the piggies demanded the impossible, he had helped her fend them off. But this was not impossible. He did not want them fended off, and so he said nothing. Press her, human, because you're right, and this time Wanda must bend. Feeling herself alone, knowing Miro would not help her, she gave a little ground. Maybe if we only bring him as far as the edge of the forest. Bring him here, said human. We can't, she said. Look at you, wearing cloth, making pots, eating bread. Human smiled. Yes, he said. All of that. Bring him here. No, said Wanda. Miru flinched, stopping himself from reaching out to her. It was the one thing they had never done, flatly denied a request. Always it was, we can't because, or I wish we could. But the single word of denial said to them, I will not, I of myself refuse. Human smile faded. People told us that women do not say. People told us that human men and women decide together. So you can't say no unless he says no too. He looked at Miro. Do you say no? Miro did not answer. He felt Wanda's elbow touching him. You don't say nothing said Human. You say yes or no. Still, Miro didn't answer. Some of the piggies around them stood up. Miro had no idea what they were doing, but the movement itself, with Miro's intransigent silence as a cue, seemed menacing. Wanda, who would never be cowed by a threat to herself, bent to the implied threat to Miro. He says yes, she whispered. 
He says yes, but for you he stays silent. You say no, but you don't stay silent for him. Human scooped thick mucus out of his mouth with one finger and flipped it onto the ground. You are nothing. Human suddenly fell backward into a somersault, twisted in mid-movement, and came up with his back to them, walking away. Immediately, the other piggies came to life, moving swiftly toward Human, who led them toward the forest edge farthest from Miro and Wanda. Human stopped abruptly. Another piggy, instead of following him, stood in front of him, blocking his way. It was Leaf Eater. If he or Human spoke, Miro could not hear them or see their mouths move. He did see, though, that Leaf Eater extended his hand to touch Human's belly. The hand stayed there a moment, then Leaf Eater whirled around and scampered off into the bushes like a youngling. In a moment, the other piggies were also gone. It was a battle, said Miro. Human and Leaf Eater, they're on opposite sides. Of what? said Wanda. I wish I knew. But I can guess. If we bring the speaker, Human wins. If we don't, Leaf Eater wins. Wins what? Because if we bring the speaker, he'll betray us, and then we all lose. He won't betray us. Why shouldn't he, if you'd betray me like that? Her voice was a lash, and he almost cried out from the sting of her words. I betray you, he whispered. Eu não, jamais. Not me, never. Father always said be united in front of the piggies. Never let them see you in disagreement. And you, and I, I didn't say yes to them. You're the one who said no. You're the one who took a position that you knew I didn't agree with. Then when we disagree, it's your job to... She stopped. She had only just realized what she was saying. But stopping did not undo what Miro knew she was going to say. It was his job to do what she said until she changed her mind, as if he were her apprentice. And here I thought we were in this together. He turned and walked away from her into the forest, back toward Milagre. Miro, she called after him. Miro, I didn't mean that. He waited for her to catch up, then caught her by the arm and whispered fiercely, Don't shout! Or don't you care whether the piggies hear us or not? Has the master Zenador decided that we can let them see everything now? Even the master disciplining her apprentice? I'm not the master. I. That's right. You're not. He turned away from her and started walking again. But Lebo was my father, so of course I'm the Zenador by blood right, he said. Blood right, is that it? So what am I by blood right? A drunken, wife-beating cretin? He took her by the arms, gripping her cruelly. Is that what you want me to be? A little copy of my paisinho? Let go! He shoved her away. Your apprentice thinks you were a fool today, said Miro. Your apprentice thinks you should have trusted his judgment of the speaker, and your apprentice thinks you should have trusted his assessment of how serious the piggies were about this, because you were stupidly wrong about both matters, and you may just have cost human his life. It was an unspeakable accusation but it was exactly what they both feared, that human would end up now as Rooter had, as others had over the years, disemboweled with a seedling growing out of his corpse. Miro knew he had spoken unfairly, knew that she would not be wrong to rage against him. He had no right to blame her when neither of them could possibly have known what the stakes might have been for human until it was too late. Wanda did not rage, however. 
Instead, she calmed herself visibly, drawing even breaths and blanking her face. Miro followed her example and did the same. What matters, said Wanda, is to make the best of it. The executions have always been at night. If we're to have a hope of vindicating human, we have to get the speaker here this afternoon, before dark. Miro nodded. Yes, he said, and I'm sorry. I'm sorry, too, she said. Since we don't know what we're doing, it's nobody's fault when we do things wrong. I only wish that I believed a right choice were possible. Ella sat on a rock and bathed her feet in the water while she waited for the speaker for the dead. The fence was only a few meters away, running along the top of the steel grillwork that blocked the people from swimming under it, as if anyone wanted to try. Most people in Milagre pretended the fence wasn't there, never came near it. That was why she had asked the speaker to meet her here. Even though the day was warm and school was out, children didn't swim here at Via Ultima where the fence came to the river and the forest came nearly to the fence. Only the soap makers and potters and brick makers came here, and they left again when the day's work was over. She could say what she had to say, without fear of anyone overhearing or interrupting. She didn't have to wait long. The speaker rode up the river in a small boat, just like one of the far-side farmers who had no use for roads. The skin of his back was shockingly white, even the few Lusos who were light-complected enough to be called Loiros were much darker-skinned. His whiteness made him seem weak and slight. But then she saw how quickly the boat moved against the current, how accurately the oars were placed each time at just the right depth with a long, smooth pull, how tightly wrapped in skin his muscles were. She felt a moment's stab of grief, and then realized that it was grief for her father. Despite the depth of her hatred for him, she had not realized until this moment that she loved anything about him, but she grieved for the strength of his shoulders and back, for the sweat that made his brown skin dazzle like glass in the sunlight. No, she said silently, I don't grieve for your death, Cown. I grieve that you are not more like the speaker who has no connection with us and yet has given us more good gifts in three days than you in your whole life. I grieve that your beautiful body was so worm-eaten inside. The speaker saw her and skimmed the boat to shore where she waited. She waited in the reeds and muck to help him pull the boat aground. Sorry to get you muddy, he said, but I haven't used my body in a couple of weeks and the water invited me. You row well she said. The world I came from, Trondheim, was mostly ice and water, a bit of rock here and there, some soil, but anyone who couldn't row was more crippled than if he couldn't walk. That's where you were born? No, where I last spoke, though. He sat on the grandma, facing the water. She sat beside him. Mother's angry at you. His lips made a little half-smile. She told me. Without thinking, Ella immediately began to justify her mother. You tried to read her files. I read her files, most of them, all but the ones that mattered. I know, King told me. She caught herself feeling just a little triumphant that Mother's protection system had bested him. Then she remembered that she was not on Mother's side in this. 
that she had been trying for years to get Mother to open those very files to her, but momentum carried her on, saying things she didn't mean to say. Oyado's sitting in the house with his eyes shut off and music blasting into his ears, very upset. Yes, well, he thinks I betrayed him. Didn't you? That was not what she meant to say. I'm a speaker for the dead. I tell the truth when I speak at all, and I don't keep away from other people's secrets. I know. That's why I called for a speaker. You don't have any respect for anybody. He looked annoyed. Why did you invite me here? He asked. This was working out all wrong. She was talking to him as if she were against him, as if she weren't grateful for what he had already done for the family. She was talking to him like the enemy. Has King taken over my mind so that I say things I don't mean? You invited me to this place on the river. The rest of your family isn't speaking to me, and then I get a message from you. To complain about my breaches of privacy? To tell me I don't respect anybody? No, she said miserably. This isn't how it was supposed to go. Didn't it occur to you that I would hardly choose to be a speaker if I had no respect for people? In frustration, she let the words burst out. I wish you had broken into all her files. I wish you had taken every one of her secrets and published them through all the hundred worlds. There were tears in her eyes. She couldn't think why. I see. She doesn't let you see those files either. So aprendiz de la nanso? E porque chora, dígame. O señor tem o jeito. I don't have any knack for making people cry, Ella, he answered softly. His voice was a caress. No, stronger. It was like a hand gripping her hand, holding her, steadying her. Telling the truth makes you cry. So ingrata. So ma fia. Yes, you're ungrateful and a terrible daughter, he said, laughing softly. Through all these years of chaos and neglect, you've held your mother's family together with little help from her, and when you followed her in her career, she wouldn't share the most vital information with you. You've earned nothing but love and trust from her, and she's replied by shutting you out of her life at home and at work. And then you finally tell somebody that you're sick of it. You're just about the worst person I've ever known. She found herself laughing at her own self-condemnation. Childishly, she didn't want to laugh at herself. Don't patronize me. She tried to put as much contempt into her voice as possible. He noticed. His eyes went distant and cold. Don't spit at a friend, he said. She didn't want him to be distant from her, but she couldn't stop herself from saying coldly, angrily, You aren't my friend. For a moment, she was afraid he believed her. Then a smile came to his face. You wouldn't know a friend if you saw one. Yes, I would, she thought. I see one now. She smiled back at him. Ella, he said, are you a good xenobiologist? Yes. You're 18 years old. You could take the guild tests at 16, but you didn't take them. Mother wouldn't let me. She said I wasn't ready. You don't have to have your mother's permission after you're 16. An apprentice has to have the permission of her master. And now you're 18, and you don't even need that. She's still Lusitania's xenobiologist. It's still her lab. What if I passed the test, and then she wouldn't let me into the lab until after she was dead? Did she threaten that? 
she made it clear that I wasn't to take the test. Because as soon as you're not an apprentice anymore, if she admits you to the lab as her co-xenobiologist, you have full access to all the working files, to all the locked files. So she'd hold her own daughter back from beginning her career. She'd give you a permanent blot on your record, unready for the tests even at the age 18, just to keep you from reading those files. Yes. Why? Mother's crazy. No. Whatever else Novenia is, Ella, she is not crazy. Ella è boba mesma, signor Falante. He laughed and lay back in the grama. Tell me how she's boba, then. I'll give you the list. First, she won't allow any investigation of the Descolada. Thirty-four years ago, the Descolada nearly destroyed this colony. My grandparents, os venerados, deus os obenso. They barely managed to stop the Descolada. Apparently, the disease agent, the Descolada bodies, are still present. We have to eat a supplement, like an extra vitamin, to keep the plague from striking again. They told you that, didn't they? If you once get it into your system, you'll have to keep that supplement all your life, even if you leave here. I knew that, yes. She won't let me study the Descolada bodies at all. That's what's in some of the locked files, anyway. She locked up all of Gusto's and Sida's discoveries about the Descolada bodies. Nothing's available. The speaker's eyes narrowed. So, that's one-third of Boba. What's the rest? It's more than a third. Whatever the Descolada body is, it was able to adapt to become a human parasite ten years after the colony was founded. Ten years! If it can adapt once, it can adapt again. Maybe she doesn't think so. Maybe I ought to have a right to decide that for myself. He put out a hand, rested it on her knee, calmed her. I agree with you. But go on. The second reason she's boba? She won't allow any theoretical research. No taxonomy. No evolutionary models. If I ever try to do any... She says I obviously don't have enough to do and weighs me down with assignments until she thinks I've given up. You haven't given up, I take it. That's what xenobiology's for. Oh, yes, fine, that she can make a potato that makes maximum use of the ambient nutrients. Wonderful, that she made a breed of amaranth that makes the colony protein self-sufficient with only 10 acres under cultivation. But that's all molecular juggling. It's survival. But we don't know anything. It's like swimming on the top of the ocean. You get very comfortable and you can move around a little, but you don't know if there are sharks down there. We could be surrounded by sharks, and she doesn't want to find out. Third thing, she won't exchange information with the Xenodors. Period. Nothing. And that really is crazy. We can't leave the fenced area. That means that we don't have a single tree we can study. We know absolutely nothing about the flora and fauna of this world except what happened to be included inside the fence. One herd of cabra and a bunch of capping grass, and then a slightly different riverside ecology. And that's everything. Nothing about the kinds of animals in the forest, no information exchange at all. We don't tell them anything. And if they send us data, we erase the files unread. It's like she built this wall around us that nothing could get through. Nothing gets in, 
nothing gets out. Maybe she has reasons. Of course she has reasons. Crazy people always have reasons. For one thing, she hated Libo. Hated him. She wouldn't let Miro talk about him, wouldn't let us play with his children. China and I were best friends for years, and she wouldn't let me bring her home or go to her house after school. And when Miro apprenticed to him, she didn't speak to him or set his place at the table for a year. She could see that the speaker doubted her. He thought she was exaggerating. I mean one year. The day he went to the Zenador station for the first time as Lebo's apprentice, he came home and she didn't speak to him. Not a word. And when he sat down to dinner, she removed the plate from in front of his face, just cleaned up his silverware as if he weren't there. He sat there through the entire meal, just looking at her, until father got angry at him for being rude and told him to leave the room. What did he do, move out? No. You don't know Miro. Ella laughed bitterly. He doesn't fight, but he doesn't give up either. He never answered father's abuse. Never. In all my life, I don't remember hearing him answer anger with anger. And mother, well, he came home every night from the Zenitor station and sat down where a plate was set. And every night, mother took up his plate and silverware, and he sat there till father made him leave. Of course, within a week, father was yelling at him to get out as soon as mother reached for his plate. Father loved it, the bastard. He thought it was great. He hated Miro so much. And finally, Mother was on his side against Miro. Who gave in? Nobody gave in. Ella looked at the river, realizing how terrible this all sounded, realizing that she was shaming her family in front of a stranger. But he wasn't a stranger, was he? Because Quara was talking again, and Oyado was involved in things again, and Grego, for just a short time, Grego had been almost a normal boy. He wasn't a stranger. How did it end? asked the speaker. It ended when the piggies killed Libo. That's how much mother hated the man. When he died, she celebrated by forgiving her son. That night when Miro came home, it was after dinner was over. It was late at night. A terrible night. Everybody was so afraid. The piggies seemed so awful. And everybody loved Libo so much except mother, of course. Mother waited up for Miro. He came in and went into the kitchen and sat down at the table, and mother put a plate down in front of him, put food on the plate. Didn't say a word. He ate it, too. Not a word about it, as if the year before hadn't happened. I woke up in the middle of the night because I could hear Miro throwing up and crying in the bathroom. I don't think anybody else heard. And I didn't go to him because I didn't think he wanted anybody to hear him. Now I think I should have gone, but I was afraid. There were such terrible things in my family. The speaker nodded. I should have gone to him, Ellis said again. Yes, the speaker said, you should have. A strange thing happened then. The speaker agreed with her that she had made a mistake that night. And she knew when he said the words that it was true that his judgment was correct.
and yet she felt strangely healed, as if simply speaking her mistake were enough to purge some of the pain of it. For the first time, then, she caught a glimpse of what the power of speaking might be. It wasn't a matter of confession, penance, and absolution like the priests offered. It was something else entirely, telling the story of who she was and then realizing that she was no longer the same person, that she had made a mistake, and the mistake had changed her, and now she would not make the mistake again because she had become someone else, someone less afraid, someone more compassionate. If I'm not that frightened girl who heard her brother in desperate pain and dared not to go to him, who am I? But the water flowing through the grillwork under the fence held no answers. Maybe she couldn't know who she was today. Maybe it was enough to know that she was no longer who she was before. Still, the speaker lay there on the grama, looking at the clouds coming darkly out of the west. I've told you all I know, Ella said. I told you what was in those files, the Descalada information. That's all I know. No, it isn't, said the speaker. It is, I promise. Do you mean to say that you obeyed her? That when your mother told you not to do any theoretical work, you simply turned off your mind and did what she wanted? Ella giggled. She thinks so. But you didn't. I'm a scientist, even if she isn't. She was once, said the speaker. She passed her tests when she was 13. I know, said Ella. And she used to share information with Pipo before he died. I know that too. It was just Libo that she hated. So tell me, Ella, what have you discovered in your theoretical work? I haven't discovered any answers. But at least I know what some of the questions are. That's a start, isn't it? Nobody else is asking questions. It's so funny, isn't it? Miro says the Framlings and Ologers are always pestering him and Wanda for more information, more data, and yet the law forbids them from learning anything more. And yet not a single Framlings and a biologist has ever asked us for any information. They all just study the biosphere on their own planets and don't ask Mother a single question. I'm the only one asking, and nobody cares. I care said the speaker. I need to know what the questions are. Okay, here's one. We have a herd of cabra here inside the fence. The cabra can't jump the fence. They don't even touch it. I've examined and tagged every single cabra in the herd. And you know something? There's not one male. They're all female. Bad luck, said the speaker. You'd think they would have at least one male inside. It doesn't matter, said Ella. I don't know if there are any males. In the last five years, every single adult cabra has given birth at least once, and not one of them has mated. Maybe they clone, said the speaker. The offspring is not genetically identical to the mother. That much research I could sneak into the lab without mother noticing. There is some kind of gene transfer going on. Hermaphrodites? No. Pure female. No male sexual organs at all. Does that qualify as an important question? Somehow the cabras are having some kind of genetic exchange without sex. The theological implications alone are astounding. Don't make fun. Of which? Science or theology? 
Either one. Do you want to hear more of my questions or not? I do, said the speaker. Then try this. The grass you're lying on, we call it grama. All the water snakes are hatched here. Little worms so small you can hardly see them. They eat the grass down to the nub and eat each other, too, shedding skin each time they grow larger. Then all of a sudden, when the grass is completely slimy with their dead skin, all the snakes slither off into the river and they never come back out. He wasn't a xenobiologist. He didn't get the implication right away. The water snakes hatch here, she explained. But they don't come back out of the water to lay their eggs. So they mate here before they go into the water. Fine, of course, obviously. I've seen the mating. That's not the problem. The problem is, why are they water snakes? He still didn't get it. Look, they're completely adapted to life underwater. They have gills along with lungs. They're superb swimmers. They have fins for guidance. They're completely evolved for adult life in the water. Why would they ever have evolved that way if they are born on land, mate on land, and reproduce on land? As far as evolution is concerned, anything that happens after you reproduce is completely irrelevant, except if you nurture your young, and the water snakes definitely don't nurture. Living in the water does nothing to enhance their ability to survive until they reproduce. They could slither into the water and drown, and it wouldn't matter because reproduction is over. Yes, said the speaker. I see now. There are little clear eggs in the water, though. I've never seen a water snake lay them, but since there's no other animal in or near the river large enough to lay the eggs, it seems logical that they're water snake eggs. Only these big clear eggs, a centimeter across, they're completely sterile. The nutrients are there, everything's ready, but there's no embryo. Nothing. Some of them have a gamete, half a set of genes in a cell, ready to combine, but not a single one was alive. And we've never found water snake eggs on land. One day, there's nothing but grama, getting riper and riper. The next day, the grama stalks are crawling with baby water snakes. Does this sound like a question worth exploring? It sounds like spontaneous generation to me. Yes, well, I'd like to find enough information to test alternate hypotheses, but Mother won't let me. I asked her about this one, and she made me take over the whole amaranth testing process so I wouldn't have time to muck around in the river. And another question. Why are there so few species here? On every other planet, even some of the nearly desert ones, like Trondheim, there are thousands of different species at least, in the water. Here, there's hardly a handful, as far as I can tell. The zingadora are the only birds we've ever seen. The suckflies are the only flies. The cabra are the only ruminants eating the capim grass. Except for the cabras, the piggies are the only large animals we've seen. Only one species of tree. Only one species of grass on the prairie, the capim and the only other competing plant is the trapeza, a long vine that wanders along the ground for meters and meters. The zingadora make their nests out of the vine. That's it. The zingadora eat the suckflies, and nothing else. The suckflies eat the algae along the edge of the river, and are garbage, and that's it. Nothing eats the zingadora. Nothing eats the cabra. Very limited, said the speaker. 
impossibly limited. There are 10,000 ecological niches here that are completely unfilled. There's no way that evolution could leave this world so sparse unless there was a disaster. Exactly. Something that wiped out all but a handful of species that were able to adapt. Yes, said Ella. You see? And I have proof. The cabras have a huddling behavior pattern. When you come up on them, when they smell you, they circle with the adults facing inward so they can kick out at the intruder and protect the young. Lots of herd animals do that. Protect them from what? The piggies are completely sylvan. They never hunt on the prairie. Whatever the predator was that forced the cabra to develop that behavior pattern, it's gone. And only recently, in the last hundred thousand years, the last million years maybe, there's no evidence of any meteor falls more recent than 20 million years, said the speaker. No, that kind of disaster would kill off all the big animals and plants and leave hundreds of small ones, or maybe kill all land life and leave only the sea. But land, sea, all the environments were stripped, and yet some big creatures survived. No, I think it was a disease a disease that struck across all species boundaries that could adapt itself to any living thing. Of course, we wouldn't notice that disease now because all the species left alive have adapted to it. It would be part of their regular life pattern. The only way we'd notice the disease is if we caught it, said the speaker, the descolada. You see, everything comes back to the descolada. My grandparents found a way to stop it from killing humans, but it took the best genetic manipulation. The cabra, the water snakes, they also found ways to adapt, and I doubt it was with dietary supplements. I think it all ties in together. The weird reproductive anomalies, the emptiness of the ecosystem, it all comes back to the descolada bodies. And Mother won't let me examine them. She won't let me study what they are, how they work, how they might be involved with, with the piggies. Well, of course, but not just them, all the animals. The speaker looked like he was suppressing excitement, as if she had explained something difficult. The night that Peepo died, she locked the files showing all her current work, and she locked the files containing all the Descalada research. Whatever she showed Peepo had to do with the Descolada bodies, and it had to do with the piggies. That's when she locked the files? asked Ella. Yes, yes. Then I'm right, aren't I? Yes, he said. Thank you. You've helped me more than you know. Does this mean that you'll speak Father's death soon? The speaker looked at her carefully. You don't want me to speak your father, really. You want me to speak your mother. She isn't dead. But you know I can't possibly speak Marcon without explaining why he married Novina and why they stayed married all those years. That's right. I want all the secrets opened up. I want all the files unlocked. I don't want anything hidden. You don't know what you're asking, said the speaker. You don't know how much pain it will cause if all the secrets come out. Take a look at my family, speaker she answered. How can the truth cause any more pain than the secrets have already caused? He smiled at her, but it was not a mirthful smile. It was affectionate.
even pitying. You're right, he said, completely right. But you may have trouble realizing that when you hear the whole story. I know the whole story as far as it can be known. That's what everybody thinks, and nobody's right. When will you have the speaking? As soon as I can. Then, why not now? Today? What are you waiting for? I can't do anything until I talk to the piggies. You're joking, aren't you? Nobody can talk to the piggies except the Xenodors. That's by congressional order. Nobody can get past that. Yes, said the speaker. That's why it's going to be hard. Not hard. Impossible. Maybe, he said. He stood. So did she. Ella, you've helped me tremendously, taught me everything I could have hoped to learn from you, just like Oyado did. But he didn't like what I did with the things he taught me, and now he thinks I betrayed him. He's a kid. I'm 18. The speaker nodded, put his hand on her shoulder, squeezed. We're all right then. We're friends. She was almost sure there was irony in what he said. Irony and perhaps a plea. Yes, she insisted. We're friends. Always. He nodded again, turned away, pushed the boat from shore and splashed after it through the reeds and muck. Once the boat was fairly afloat, he sat down and extended the oars, rowed, and then looked up and smiled at her. Ella smiled back, but the smile could not convey the elation she felt, the perfect relief. He had listened to everything and understood everything, and he would make everything all right. She believed that, believed it so completely that she didn't even notice that it was the source of her sudden happiness. She knew only that she had spent an hour with the speaker for the dead, and now she felt more alive than she had in years. She retrieved her shoes, put them back on her feet, and walked home. Mother would still be at the Biologista station, but Ella didn't want to work this afternoon. She wanted to go home and fix dinner. That was always solitary work. She hoped no one would talk with her. She hoped there'd be no problems she was expected to solve. Let this feeling linger forever. Ella was only home for a few minutes, however, when Miro burst into the kitchen. Ella, he said, have you seen the speaker for the dead? Yes, she said, on the river. Where on the river? If she told him where they had met, he'd know that it wasn't a chance meeting. Why? she asked. Listen, Ella, this is no time to be suspicious, please. I've got to find him. We've left messages for him. The computer can't find him. He was rowing downriver toward home. He's probably going to be at his house soon. Miro rushed from the kitchen into the front room. Ella heard him tapping at the terminal. Then he came back in. Thanks, he said. Don't expect me home for dinner. What's so urgent? Nothing. It was ridiculous to say nothing when Miro was obviously agitated and hurried that they both burst out laughing at once. Okay, said Miro. It isn't nothing. It's something. But I can't talk about it, okay? Okay. But soon all the secrets will be known, Miro. What I don't understand is why he didn't get our message. I mean, the computer was paging him. Doesn't he wear an implant in his ear? The computer's supposed to be able to reach him. Of course, maybe he had it turned off. No, said Ella. The light was on. Miro cocked his head and squinted at her. 
You didn't see that tiny red light on his ear implant, not if he just happened to be out rowing in the middle of the river. He came to shore. We talked. What about? Ella smiled. Nothing, she said. He smiled back, but he looked annoyed all the same. She understood. It's all right for you to have secrets from me, but not for me to have secrets from you. Is that it, Miro? He didn't argue about it, though. He was in too much of a hurry. Had to go find the speaker, and now, and he wouldn't be home for dinner. Ella had a feeling the speaker might get to talk to the piggies sooner than she had thought possible. For a moment, she was elated. The waiting would be over. Then the elation passed, and something else took its place. A sick fear. A nightmare of China's papai, dear Libo, lying dead on the hillside, torn apart by the piggies. Only it wasn't Libo, the way she had always imagined the grisly scene. It was Miro. No. No, it wasn't Miro. It was the speaker. It was the speaker who would be tortured to death. No, she whispered. Then she shivered, and the nightmare left her mind. She went back to trying to spice and season the pasta so it would taste like something better than amaranth glue. Chapter 14 Renegades Leaf Eater Human says that when your brothers die, you bury them in the dirt and then make your houses out of that dirt. Laughs. Miro. No, we never dig where people are buried. Leaf Eater becomes rigid with agitation. Then your dead don't do you any good at all. Wanda Kenyatta Figuera Mukumbi. Dialogue Transcripts. 103 0 1969-4-13-111. Ender had thought they might have some trouble getting him through the gate, but Wanda palmed the box. Miro opened the gate, and the three of them walked through. No challenge. It must be as Ella had implied. No one wanted to get out of the compound, so no serious security was needed. Whether that suggested that people were content to stay in Milagre, or that they were afraid of the piggies, or that they hated their imprisonment so much that they had to pretend the fence wasn't there, Ender could not begin to guess. Both Wanda and Miro were very tense, almost frightened. That was understandable, of course, since they were breaking congressional rules to let him come. But Ender suspected there was more to it than that. Miro's tension was coupled with eagerness, a sense of hurry, he might be frightened, but he wanted to see what would happen, wanted to go ahead. Wanda held back, walked a measured step, and her coldness was not just fear, but hostility as well. She did not trust him. So Ender was not surprised when she stepped behind the large tree that grew nearest the gate and waited for Miro and Ender to follow her. Ender saw how Miro looked annoyed for a moment, then controlled himself. His mask of uninvolvement was as cool as a human being could hope for. Ender found himself comparing Miro to the boys he had known in battle school, sizing him up as a comrade-in-arms, and thought Miro might have done well there. Wanda, too, but for different reasons. She held herself responsible for what was happening, even though Ender was an adult and she was much younger. She did not defer to him at all. Whatever she was afraid of, it was not authority. Here, asked Miro blandly. Or not at all, said Wanda. Ender folded himself to sit at the base of the tree. 
This is Reuter's tree, isn't it? he asked. They took it calmly, of course, but their momentary pause told him that yes, he had surprised them by knowing something about a past that they surely regarded as their own. I may be a framling here, Anders said silently, but I don't have to be an ignorant one. Yes, said Wanda. He's the totem they seem to get the most direction from. Lately, the last seven or eight years, they've never let us see the rituals in which they talk to their ancestors, but it seems to involve drumming on the trees with heavy polished sticks. We hear them at night sometimes. Sticks made of fallen wood. We assume so. Why? Because they have no stone or metal tools to cut the wood, isn't that right? Besides, if they worship the trees, they couldn't very well cut them down. We don't think they worship the trees. It's totemic. They stand for dead ancestors. They plant them with the bodies. Wanda had wanted to stop to talk or question him, but Ender had no intention of letting her believe she, or Miro for that matter, was in charge of this expedition. Ender intended to talk to the piggies himself. He had never prepared for a speaking by letting someone else determine his agenda, and he wasn't going to begin now. Besides, he had information they didn't have. He knew Ella's theory. And anywhere else, he asked, do they plant trees at any other time? They looked at each other. Not that we've seen, said Miro. Ender was not merely curious. He was still thinking of what Ella had told him about reproductive anomalies. And do the trees also grow by themselves? Are seedlings and saplings scattered through the forest? Wanda shook her head. We really don't have any evidence of the trees being planted anywhere but in the corpses of the dead. At least, all the trees we know of are quite old, except these three out here. Four, if we don't hurry, said Miro. Ah, here was the tension between them. Miro's sense of urgency was to save a piggy from being planted at the base of another tree, while Wanda was concerned about something quite different. They had revealed enough of themselves to him. Now he could let her interrogate him. He sat up straight and tipped his head back to look up into the leaves of the tree above him, the spreading branches, the pale green of photosynthesis that confirmed the convergence, the inevitability of evolution on every world. Here was the center of all of Ella's paradoxes. Evolution on this world was obviously well within the pattern that xenobiologists had seen on all the hundred worlds, and yet somewhere the pattern had broken down, collapsed. The piggies were one of a few dozen species that had survived the collapse. What was the descolada, and how had the piggies adapted to it? He had meant to turn the conversation to say, why are we here behind this tree? That would invite Wanda's questions, but at that moment his head tilted back, the soft green leaves moving gently in an almost imperceptible breeze. He felt a powerful déjà vu. He had looked up into these leaves before, recently, but that was impossible. There were no large trees on Trondheim, and none grew within the compound of Milagre. Why did the sunlight through the leaves feel so familiar to him? Speaker, said Miro. Yes, he said, allowing himself to be drawn out of his momentary reverie. We didn't want to bring you out here, Miro said it firmly, and with his body so oriented toward Wanda's that Ender understood that, in fact, Miro had wanted to bring him out here. 
but was including himself in Wanda's reluctance in order to show her that he was one with her. You are in love with each other, Ender said silently. And tonight, if I speak Markhaum's death, I will have to tell you that your brother and sister. I have to drive the wedge of the incest taboo between you, and you will surely hate me. You're going to see some... Wanda could not bring herself to say it. Miro smiled. We call them questionable activities. They began with Pipo accidentally, but Libo did it deliberately, and we are continuing his work. It is careful, gradual. We didn't just discard the congressional rules about this. But there were crises, and we had to help. A few years ago, for instance, the piggies were running short of Machios, the bark worms they mostly lived on then. You're going to tell him that first? asked Wanda. Ah, thought Ender, it isn't as important to her to maintain the illusion of solidarity as it is to him. He's here partly to speak Libo's death, said Miro, and this is what happened right before. We have no evidence of a causal relationship. Let me discover causal relationships, said Ender quietly. Tell me what happened when the piggies got hungry. It was the wives who were hungry, they said. Miro ignored Wanda's anxiety. You see, the males gather food for the females and the young, and so there wasn't enough to go around. They kept hinting about how they would have to go to war, about how they would probably all die. Miro shook his head. They seemed almost happy about it. Wanda stood up. He hasn't even promised, hasn't promised anything. What do you want me to promise? asked Ender. Not to let any of this... Not to tell on you? asked Ender. She nodded, though she plainly resented the childish phrase. I won't promise any such thing, said Ender. My business is telling. She whirled on Miro. You see? Miro, in turn, looked frightened. You can't tell. They'll seal the gate. They'll never let us through. And you'd have to find another line of work, asked Ender. Wanda looked at him with contempt. Is that all you think xenology is, a job? That's another intelligent species there in the woods, Ramen, not Varelsa, and they must be known. Ender did not answer, but his gaze did not leave her face. It's like the Hive Queen and the Hegemon, said Miro. The piggies, they're like the buggers, only smaller, weaker, more primitive. We need to study them, yes, but that isn't enough. You can study beasts and not care a bit when one of them drops dead or gets eaten up. But these are, they're, they're like us. We can't just study their hunger, observe their destruction in war. We know them. We love them, said Ender. Yes, said Wanda defiantly. But if you left them, if you weren't here at all, they wouldn't disappear, would they? No, said Miro. I told you he'd be just like the committee, said Wanda. Ender ignored her. What would it cost them if you left? It's like... Miro struggled for words. It's as if you could go back to old Earth, back before the Xenocide, before star travel, and you said to them, you can travel among the stars, you can live in other worlds, and then showed them a thousand little miracles, lights that turn on from switches, steel, even simple things, pots to hold water, agriculture. They see you, they know what you are, they know that they can become what you are, do all the things that you do. What do they say? Take this away. Don't show us. 
Let us live our nasty, short, brutish little lives. Let evolution take its course. No, they say, give us, teach us, help us. And you say, I can't, and then you go away. It's too late, said Miro. Don't you understand? They've already seen the miracles. They've already seen us fly here. They've seen us be tall and strong with magical tools and knowledge of things they never dreamed of. It's too late to tell them goodbye and go. They know what is possible. And the longer we stay, the more they try to learn. And the more they learn, the more we see how learning helps them. And if you have any kind of compassion, if you understand that they're... they're human. Ramen, anyway. They're our children. Do you understand that? Ender smiled. What man among you, if his son asks for bread, gives him a stone? Wanda nodded. That's it. The congressional rules say we have to give them stones, even though we have so much bread. Ender stood up. Well, let's go on. Wanda wasn't ready. You haven't promised. Have you read The Hive Queen and the Hegemon? I have, said Miro. Can you conceive of anyone choosing to call himself Speaker for the Dead and then doing anything to harm these little ones, these pequeninos? Wanda's anxiety visibly eased, but her hostility was no less. You're slick, Senor Andrew, Speaker for the Dead. You're very clever. You remind him of the Hive Queen and speak scripture to me out of the side of your mouth. I speak to everyone in the language they understand, said Ender. That isn't being slick, it's being clear. So you'll do whatever you want, as long as it doesn't hurt the piggies. Wanda sneered. In your judgment. I have no one else's judgment to use. He walked away from her, out of the shade of the spreading limbs of the tree, heading for the woods that waited atop the hill. They followed him, running to catch up. I have to tell you, said Miro, the piggies have been asking for you. They believe you are the very same speaker who wrote The Hive Queen and the Hegemon. They've read it? Well, they've pretty well incorporated it into their religion, actually. They treat the printout we gave them like a holy book, and now they claim the Hive Queen herself is talking to them. Ender glanced at him. What does she say? he asked. That you are the real speaker, and that you've got the Hive Queen with you, and that you're going to bring her to live with them and teach them all about metal and... It's really crazy stuff. That's the worst thing. They have such impossible expectations of you. It might be simple wish fulfillment on their part, as Miro obviously believed, but Ender knew that from her cocoon the Hive Queen had been talking to someone. How do they say the Hive Queen talks to them? Wanda was on the other side of him now. Not to them, just to Rooter. And Rooter talks to them. It's all part of their system of totems. We've always tried to play along with it and act as if we believed it. How condescending of you, said Ender. It's standard anthropological practice, said Miro. You're so busy pretending to believe them, there isn't a chance in the world you could learn anything from them. For a moment, they lagged behind so that he actually entered the forest alone. Then they ran to catch up with him. We've devoted our lives to learning about them, Miro said. Ender stopped. Not from them. They were just inside the trees. The spotty light through the leaves made their faces unreadable, but he knew what their faces would tell him. Annoyance, resentment, contempt. How dare this unqualified stranger question their professional attitude? This is how. 
You're cultural supremacists to the core. You'll perform your questionable activities to help out the poor little piggies, but there isn't a chance in the world you'll notice when they have something to teach you. Like what? demanded Wanda. Like how to murder their greatest benefactor, torture him to death after he saved the lives of dozens of their wives and children. So why do you tolerate it? Why are you here helping them after what they did? Miro slipped in between Wanda and Ender, protecting her, thought Ender, or else keeping her from revealing her weaknesses. We're professionals. We understand that cultural differences, which we can't explain, you understand that the piggies are animals, and you no more condemn them for murdering Libo and Pippo than you would condemn a cabra for chewing up capim. That's right, said Miro. Ender smiled. And that's why you'll never learn anything from them, because you think of them as animals. We think of them as ramen, said Wanda, pushing in front of Miro. Obviously, she was not interested in being protected. You treat them as if they were not responsible for their own actions, said Ender. Ramen are responsible for what they do. What are you going to do, asked Wanda sarcastically. Come in and put them on trial? I'll tell you this. The piggies have learned more about me from dead rooter than you have learned from having me with you. What's that supposed to mean? That you really are the original speaker? Miro obviously regarded it as the most ridiculous proposition imaginable. And I suppose you really do have a bunch of buggers up there in your starship circling Lusitania so you can bring them down, and what it means, interrupted Wanda, is that this amateur thinks he's better qualified to deal with the piggies than we are. And as far as I'm concerned, that's proof that we should never have agreed to bring him to... At that moment, Wanda stopped talking. For a piggy had emerged from the underbrush. Smaller than Ender had expected. Its odor, while not wholly unpleasant, was certainly stronger than Jane's computer simulation could ever imply. Too late, Ender murmured. I think we're already meeting. The piggy's expression, if he had one, was completely unreadable to Ender. Miro and Wanda, however, could understand something of his unspoken language. He's astonished, Wanda murmured. By telling Ender that she understood what he did not, she was putting him in his place. That was fine. Ender knew he was a novice here. He also hoped, however, that he had stirred them a little from their normal, unquestioned ways of thinking. It was obvious that they were following in well-established patterns. If he was to get any real help from them, they would have to break out of those old patterns and reach new conclusions. Leaf Eater, said Miro. Leaf Eater did not take his eyes off Ender. Speaker for the dead, he said. We brought him, said Wanda. Leaf Eater turned and disappeared among the bushes. What does that mean, Ender asked, that he left. You mean you haven't already figured it out, asked Wanda. Whether you like it or not, said Ender, the piggies want to speak to me, and I will speak to them. I think it will work out better if you help me understand what's going on, or don't you understand it either. He watched them struggle with their annoyance, and then, to Ender's relief, Miro made a decision. Instead of answering with hauteur, he spoke simply, mildly. No, we don't understand it. We're still playing guessing games with the piggies. They ask us questions, we ask them questions, and to the best of our ability, neither they nor we have ever deliberately revealed a thing. We don't even ask them the questions whose answers we really want to know, for fear that they'll learn too much about us from our questions. Wanda was not willing to go along with Miro's decision to cooperate. 
We know more than you will in 20 years, she said. And you're crazy if you think you can duplicate what we know in a 10-minute briefing in the forest. I don't need to duplicate what you know, Ender said. You don't think so? asked Wanda. Because I have you with me, Ender smiled. Miro understood and took it as a compliment. He smiled back. Here's what we know, and it isn't much. Leaf Eater probably isn't glad to see you. There's a schism between him and a piggy named Human. When they thought we weren't going to bring you, Leaf Eater was sure he had won. Now his victory is taken away. Maybe we saved Human's life. And cost Leaf Eater his? asked Ender. Who knows? My gut feeling is that Human's future is on the line, but Leaf Eater's isn't. Leaf Eater's just trying to make Human fail, not succeed himself. But you don't know. That's the kind of thing we never ask about. Miro smiled again. And you're right. It's so much a habit that we usually don't even notice that we're not asking. Wanda was angry. He's right? He hasn't even seen us at work, and suddenly he's a critic of... But Ender had no interest in watching them squabble. He strode off in the direction Leaf Eater had gone and let them follow as they would, and of course they did, leaving their argument for later. As soon as Ender knew they were walking with him, he began to question them again. These questionable activities you've carried out, he said as he walked. You introduced new food into their diet? We taught them how to eat the Merdona root, said Wanda. She was crisp and businesslike, but at least she was speaking to him. She wasn't going to let her anger keep her from being part of what was obviously going to be a crucial meeting with the piggies. How to nullify the cyanide content by soaking it and drying it in the sun. That was the short-term solution. The long-term solution was some of Mother's cast-off amaranth adaptations, said Miro. She made a batch of amaranth that was so well adapted to Lusitania that it wasn't very good for humans. Too much Lusitanian protein structure, not enough earthborn. But that sounded about right for the piggies. I got Ella to give me some of the cast-off specimens without letting her know it was important. Don't kid yourself about what Ella does and doesn't know, Ender said silently. Lebo gave it to them, taught them how to plant it, then how to grind it, make flour, turn it into bread. Nasty-tasting stuff, but it gave them a diet directly under their control for the first time ever. They've been fat and sassy ever since. Wanda's voice was bitter, but they killed father right after the first loaves were taken to the wives. Ender walked in silence for a few moments, trying to make sense of this. The piggies killed Lebo immediately after he saved them from starvation. Unthinkable, and yet it happened. How could such a society evolve, killing those who contributed most to its survival? They should do the opposite. They should reward the valuable ones by enhancing their opportunity to reproduce. That's how communities improve their chances of surviving as a group. How could the piggies possibly survive murdering those who contribute most to their survival? And yet there were human precedents. These children, Miro and Wanda, with the questionable activities, they were better and wiser in the long run than the Starways Committee that made the rules. But if they were caught, they would be taken from their homes to another world, already a death sentence in a way, since everyone they knew would be dead before they could ever return, and they would be tried and punished probably imprisoned. Neither their ideas nor their genes would propagate, and society would be impoverished by it. Still, just because humans did it too did not make it sensible, besides the arrest and imprisonment of Miro and Wanda, if it ever happened, would make sense if you viewed humans as a single community and the piggies as their enemies. 
if you thought that anything that helped the piggies survive was somehow a menace to humanity, then the punishment of people who enhanced the piggies' culture would be designed not to protect the piggies, but to keep the piggies from developing. At that moment, Ender saw clearly that the rules governing human contact with the piggies did not really function to protect the piggies at all. They functioned to guarantee human superiority and power. From that point of view, by performing their questionable activities, Miro and Wanda were traitors to the self-interest of their own species. Renegades, he said aloud. What, said Miro, what did you say? Renegades, those who have denied their own people and claimed the enemy as their own. Ah, said Miro. We're not, said Wanda. Yes, we are, said Miro. I haven't denied my humanity. The way Bishop Peregrino defines it, we denied our humanity long ago, said Miro. But the way I define it, she began. The way you define it, said Ender, the piggies are also human. That's why you're a renegade. I thought you said we treated the piggies like animals, Wanda said. When you don't hold them accountable, when you don't ask them direct questions, when you try to deceive them, then you treat them like animals. In other words, said Miro, when we do follow the committee rules. Yes, said Wanda. Yes, that's right. We are renegades. And you, said Miro, why are you a renegade? Oh, the human race kicked me out a long time ago. And that's how I got to be a speaker for the dead. With that, they arrived at the piggies' clearing. Mother wasn't at dinner and neither was Miro. That was fine with Ella. When neither one of them was there, Ella was stripped of her authority. She couldn't keep control over the younger children. And yet, neither Miro nor Mother took Ella's place either. Nobody obeyed Ella, and nobody else tried to keep order. So it was quieter, easier, when they stayed away. Not that the little ones were particularly well-behaved even now. They just resisted her less. She only had to yell at Grego a couple of times to keep him from poking and kicking Quara under the table. And today, both Keen and Oyado were keeping to themselves, none of the normal bickering. Until the meal was over. Keen leaned back in his chair and smiled maliciously at Oyado. So you're the one who taught that spy how to get into Mother's files. Oyado turned to Ella. You left Keen's face open again, Ella. You've got to learn to be tidier. It was Oyado's way of appealing through humor for Ella's intervention. King did not want Oliado to have any help. Ella's not on your side this time, Oliado. Nobody's on your side. You helped that sneaking spy get into Mother's files, and that makes you as guilty as he is. He's the devil's servant, and so are you. Ella saw the fury in Oliado's body. She had a momentary image in her mind of Oliado flinging his plate at King. But the moment passed. Oliado calmed himself. I'm sorry. Oliado said. I didn't mean to do it. He was giving in to King. He was admitting King was right. I hope, said Ella, that you mean that you're sorry that you didn't mean to do it. I hope that you aren't apologizing for helping the speaker for the dead. Of course he's apologizing for helping the spy, said King. Because, said Ella, we should all help speaker all we can. King jumped to his feet, leaned across the table to shout in her face. How can you say that? He was violating Mother's privacy. He was finding out her secrets. He was... To her surprise, 
Ella found herself also on her feet, shoving him back across the table, shouting back at him and louder. Mother's secrets are the cause of half the poison in this house. Mother's secrets are what's making us all sick, including her. So maybe the only way to make things right here is to steal all her secrets and get them out in the open where we can kill them. She stopped shouting. Both Keen and Oleado stood before her, pressed against the far wall as if her words were bullets and they were being executed. Quietly, intensely, Ella went on. As far as I'm concerned, the speaker for the dead is the only chance we have to become a family again, and Mother's secrets are the only barrier standing in his way. So today, I told him everything I knew about what's in Mother's files because I want to give him every shred of truth that I can find. Then you're the worst traitor of all, said King. His voice was trembling. He was about to cry. I say that helping the speaker for the dead is an act of loyalty, Ella answered. The only real treason is obeying mother, because what she wants, what she has worked for all her life, is her own self-destruction and the destruction of this family. To Ella's surprise, it was not King, but Oliado who wept. His tear glands did not function, of course, having been removed when his eyes were installed, so there was no moistening of his eyes to warn of the onset of crying. Instead, he doubled over with a sob, then sank down along the wall until he sat on the floor, his head between his knees, sobbing and sobbing. Ella understood why. Because she had told him that his love for the speaker was not disloyal, that he had not sinned, and he believed her when she told him that. He knew that it was true. Then she looked up from Oliado to see Mother standing in the doorway. Ella felt herself go weak inside, trembling at the thought of what Mother must have overheard. But Mother did not seem angry, just a little sad and very tired. She was looking at Oliado. Keen's outrage found his voice. Did you hear what Ella was saying? he asked. Yes, said Mother, never taking her eyes from Oliado, and for all I know, she might be right. Ella was no less unnerved than King. Go to your rooms, children, Mother said quietly. I need to talk to Oliado. Ella beckoned to Grego and Clara, who slid off their chairs and scurried to Ella's side, eyes wide with awe at the unusual goings-on. After all, even Father had never been able to make Oliado cry. She led them out of the kitchen, back to their bedroom. She heard King walk down the hall and go into his own room, slam the door, and hurl himself onto his bed. And in the kitchen, Oliado's sobs faded, calmed, ended, as Mother, for the first time since he lost his eyes, held him in her arms and comforted him, shedding her own silent tears into his hair as she rocked him back and forth. Miro did not know what to make of the speaker for the dead. Somehow he had always imagined a speaker to be very much like a priest, or rather like a priest was supposed to be, quiet, contemplative, withdrawn from the world, carefully leaving action and decision to others. Miro had expected him to be wise. 
He had not expected him to be so intrusive, so dangerous. Yes, he was wise, all right. He kept seeing past pretense, kept saying or doing outrageous things that were, when you thought about it, exactly right. It was as if he were so familiar with the human mind that he could see, right on your face, the desires so deep, the truths so well disguised, that you didn't even know yourself that you had them in you. How many times had Miro stood with Wanda just like this, watching as Lebo handled the piggies? But always with Lebo, they had understood what he was doing. They knew his technique, knew his purpose. The speaker, however, followed lines of thought that were completely alien to Miro. Even though he wore a human shape, it made Miro wonder if Enderer was really a Fremling. He could be as baffling as the piggies. He was as much a Raman as they were, alien, but still not animal. What did the speaker notice? What did he see? The bow that Arrow carried? The sun-dried pot in which Merdona roots soaked and stank? How many of the questionable activities did he recognize? And how many did he think were native practices? The piggies spread out the hive queen and the hegemon. You, said Arrow, you wrote this? Yes, said the speaker for the dead. Miro looked at Wanda. Her eyes danced with vindication. So the speaker is a liar. Human interrupted. The other two, Miro and Wanda, they think you're a liar. Miro immediately looked at the speaker, but he wasn't glancing at them. Of course they do, he said. It never occurred to them that Reuter might have told you the truth. The speaker's calm words disturbed Miro. Could it be true? After all, people who traveled between star systems skipped decades, often centuries, in getting from one system to another, sometimes as much as half a millennium. It wouldn't take all that many voyages for a person to survive 3,000 years, but that would be too incredible a coincidence for the original Speaker for the Dead to come here. Except that the original Speaker for the Dead was the one who had written The Hive Queen and The Hegemon. He would be interested in the first race of Raman since the buggers. I don't believe it, Miro told himself, but he had to admit the possibility that it might just be true. Why are they so stupid? asked Human. Not to know the truth when they hear it. They aren't stupid, said the speaker. This is how humans are. We question all our beliefs, except for the ones that we really believe, and those we never think to question. They never thought to question the idea that the original speaker for the dead died 3,000 years ago, even though they know how star travel prolongs life. But we told them. No, you told them that the Hive Queen told Reuter that I wrote this book. That's why they should have known it was true, said Human. Reuter is wise. He's a father. He would never make a mistake. Miro did not smile, but he wanted to. The speaker thought he was so clever, but now here he was, where all the important questions ended, frustrated by the piggies' insistence that their totem trees could talk to them. Ah, said the speaker, there's so much that we don't understand, and so much that you don't understand. We should tell each other more. Human sat down beside Arrow, sharing the position of honor with him. Arrow gave no sign of minding. Speaker for the dead, said Human. Will you bring the Hive Queen to us? I haven't decided yet, said the speaker. Again, Miro looked at Wanda. Was the speaker insane, hinting that he could deliver what could not be delivered? 
Then he remembered what the speaker had said about questioning all our beliefs except the ones we really believed. Miro had always taken for granted what everyone knew, that all the buggers had been destroyed. But what if a hive queen had survived? What if that was how the speaker for the dead had been able to write his book? Because he had a bugger to talk to. It was unlikely in the extreme, but it was not impossible. Miro didn't know for sure that the last bugger had been killed. He only knew that everybody believed it, and that no one in 3,000 years had produced a shred of evidence to the contrary. But even if it was true, how could human have known it? The simplest explanation was that the piggies had incorporated the powerful story of the hive queen and the hegemon into their religion and were unable to grasp the idea that there were many speakers for the dead and none of them was the author of the book, that all the buggers were dead and no hive queen could ever come. That was the simplest explanation, the one easiest to accept. Any other explanation would force him to admit the possibility that Rooter's totem tree somehow talked to the piggies. What will make you decide, said human? We give gifts to the wives to win their honor, but you are the wisest of all humans, and we have nothing that you need. You have many things that I need, said the speaker. What? Can't you make better pots than these? Truer arrows? The cape I wear is made from cabra wool, but your clothing is finer. I don't need things like that, said the speaker. What I need are true stories. Human leaned closer, then let his body become rigid in excitement, in anticipation. Oh, speaker, he said, and his voice was powerful with the importance of his words. Will you add our story? To the hive queen and the hegemon? I don't know your story, said the speaker. Ask us. Ask us anything. How can I tell your story? I only tell the stories of the dead. We are dead, shouted human. Miro had never seen him so agitated. We are being murdered every day. Humans are filling up all the worlds. The ships travel through the black of night from star to star to star, filling up every empty place. Here we are on our one little world, watching the sky fill up with humans. The humans build their stupid fence to keep us out, but that is nothing. The sky is our fence. Human leapt upward, startlingly high, for his legs were powerful. Look how the fence throws me back down to the ground. He ran at the nearest tree, bounded up the trunk higher than Miro had ever seen him climb. He shimmied out on a limb and threw himself upward into the air. He hung there for an agonizing moment at the apex of his leap. Then gravity flung him downward onto the hard ground. Miro could hear the breath thrust out of him by the force of the blow. The speaker immediately rushed to Human. Miro was close behind. Human wasn't breathing. Is he dead? asked Wanda behind him. No, cried a piggy in the male's language. You can't die. No, no, no. Miro looked. To his surprise, it was Leaf Eater. You can't die. Then Human reached up a feeble hand and touched the speaker's face. He inhaled a deep gasp and then spoke. You see, speaker? I would die to climb the wall that keeps us from the stars. In all the years that Miro had known the piggies, in all the years before, they had never once spoken of star travel, never once asked about it. 
Yet now Miro realized that all the questions they did ask were oriented toward discovering the secret of Starflight. The Xenologers had never realized that because they knew, knew without questioning, that the piggies were so remote from the level of culture that could build starships that it would be a thousand years before such a thing could possibly be in their reach. But their craving for knowledge about metal, about motors, about flying above the ground, it was all their way of trying to find the secret of starflight. Human slowly got to his feet, holding the speaker's hands. Miro realized that in all the years he had known the piggies, never once had a piggy taken him by the hand. He felt a deep regret and the sharp pain of jealousy. Now that Human was clearly not injured, the other piggies crowded close around the speaker. They did not jostle, but they wanted to be near. Rooter says the Hive Queen knows how to build starships, said Arrow. Rooter says the Hive Queen will teach us everything said Cups. Metal, fire made from rocks, houses made from black water, everything. Speaker raised his hands, fended off their babbling. If you were all very thirsty and saw that I had water, you'd all ask me for a drink. But what if I knew that the water I had was poisoned? There is no poison in the ships that fly to the stars, said Human. There are many paths to starflight, said the speaker. Some are better than others. I'll give you everything I can that won't destroy you. The Hive Queen promises, said Human. And so do I. Human lunged forward, grabbed the speaker by the hair and ears, and pulled him face to face. Miro had never seen such an act of violence. It was what he had dreaded, the decision to murder. If we are ramen! shouted Human into the speaker's face. Then it is ours to decide, not yours. And if we are Varelse, then you might as well kill us all right now, the way you killed all the Hive Queen's sisters. Miro was stunned. It was one thing for the piggies to decide this was the speaker who wrote the book. But how could they reach the unbelievable conclusion that he was somehow guilty of the genocide? Who did they think he was? The monster Ender? And yet there sat the speaker for the dead, Tears running down his cheeks, his eyes closed, as if Human's accusation had the force of truth. Human turned his head to speak to Miro. What is this water? he whispered. Then he touched the speaker's tears. It's how we show pain or grief or suffering, Miro answered. Mandashuva suddenly cried out a hideous cry that Miro had never heard before, like an animal dying. That is how we show pain, whispered Human. Ah, ah, cried Mandashuva. I have seen that water before. In the eyes of Libo and Pipo I saw that water. One by one, and then all at once, all the other piggies took up the same cry. Miro was terrified, awed, excited all at once. He had no idea what it meant. But the piggies were showing emotions that they had concealed from the Xenologers for 47 years. Are they grieving for Papa? whispered Wanda. Her eyes, too, glistened with excitement, and her hair was matted with the sweat of fear. Miro said it the moment it occurred to him. They didn't know until this moment that people and Lebo were crying when they died. Miro had no idea what thoughts then went through Wanda's head. He only knew that she turned away, stumbled a few steps, fell to her hands and knees, and wept bitterly. All in all, the coming of the speaker had certainly stirred things up. 
Miro knelt beside the speaker, whose head was now bowed, his chin pressed against his chest. Speaker, Miro said, ¿Cómo puede ser? How can it be that you are the first speaker and yet you are also Ender? Now puede ser. She told them more than I ever thought she would, he whispered. But the speaker for the dead, the one who wrote this book, he's the wisest man who lived in the age of flight among the stars. While Ender was a murderer, he killed a whole people, a beautiful race of Raman that could have taught us everything. Both human, though, whispered the speaker. Human was near them now, and he spoke a couplet from the hegemon. Sickness and healing are in every heart. Death and deliverance are in every hand. Human, said the speaker, tell your people not to grieve for what they did in ignorance. It was a terrible thing, said Human. It was our greatest gift. Tell your people to be quiet and listen to me. Human shouted a few words, not in the male's language, but in the wives' language, the language of authority. They fell silent, then sat to hear what the speaker would say. I'll do everything I can, said the speaker. But first I have to know you, or how can I tell your story? I have to know you, or how can I know whether the drink is poisonous or not? And the hardest problem of all will still remain. The human race is free to love the buggers because they think the buggers all are dead. You are still alive, and so they're still afraid of you. Human stood among them and gestured toward his body as if it were a weak and feeble thing. Of us? They're afraid of the same thing you fear when you look up and see the stars fill up with humans. They're afraid that someday they'll come to a world and find that you have got there first. We don't want to be there first, said human. We want to be there too. Then give me time, said the speaker. Teach me who you are so that I can teach them. Anything, said human. He looked around at the others. We'll teach you anything. Leaf Eater stood up. He spoke in the male's language, but Miro understood him. Some things aren't yours to teach. Human answered him sharply and in stark. What Pipo and Lebo and Wanda and Miro taught us wasn't theirs to teach either, but they taught us. Their foolishness doesn't have to be our foolishness, Leaf Eater still spoke in male's language. Nor does their wisdom necessarily apply to us, Human retorted. Then Leaf Eater said something in tree language that Miro could not understand. Human made no answer, and Leaf Eater walked away. As he left, Wanda returned, her eyes red from crying. Human turned back to the speaker. What do you want to know? he asked. We'll tell you, we'll show you if we can. Speaker, in turn, looked at Miro and Wanda. What should I ask them? I know so little that I don't know what we need to know. Miro looked at Wanda. You have no stone or metal tools, she said, but your house is made of wood, and so are your bows and arrows. Human stood, waiting. The silence lengthened. But what is your question? Human finally said. How could he have missed the connection, Miro thought. We humans, said Speaker, use tools of stone or metal to cut down trees when we want to shape them into houses or arrows or clubs like the ones I see some of you carrying. It took a moment for the Speaker's words to sink in. 
Then suddenly all the piggies were on their feet. They began running around madly, purposelessly, sometimes bumping into each other or into trees or the log houses. Most of them were silent, but now and then one of them would wail exactly as they had cried out a few minutes ago. It was eerie, the almost silent insanity of the piggies, as if they had suddenly lost control of their bodies. All the years of careful non-communication, refraining from telling the piggies anything, and now Speaker breached that policy, and the result was this madness. Human emerged from the chaos and threw himself to the ground in front of Speaker. Oh, Speaker, he cried loudly, promise that you'll never let them cut my father rooter with their stone and metal tools. If you want to murder someone, there are ancient brothers who will give themselves, or I will gladly die, but don't let them kill my father. Or my father, cried the other piggies, or mine. We would never have planted rooter so close to the fence, said Mandashuva, if we had known you were, were Varelse. Speaker raised his hands again. Has any human cut a tree in Lusitania? Never. The law here forbids it. You have nothing to fear from us. There was a silence as the piggies became still. Finally, human picked himself up from the ground. You've made us fear humans all the more, he said to Speaker. I wish you had never come to our forest. Wanda's voice rang out above his. How can you say that after the way you murdered my father? Human looked at her with astonishment, unable to answer. Miro put his arm around Wanda's shoulders, and the speaker for the dead spoke into the silence. You promised me that you'd answer all my questions. I ask you now, how do you build a house made of wood and the bow and arrows that this one carries and those clubs? We've told you the only way we know. You tell me another way, the way you do it. The brother gives himself, said Human. I told you. We tell the ancient brother of our need, and we show him the shape, and he gives himself. Can we see how it's done, said Ender? Human looked around at the other piggies. You want us to ask a brother to give himself just so you can see it? We don't need a new house, not for years yet, and we have all the arrows we need. Show him! Miro turned, as the others also turned, to see Leaf Eater re-emerging from the forest. He walked purposefully into the middle of the clearing. He did not look at them, and he spoke as if he were a herald, a town crier, not caring whether anyone was listening to him or not. He spoke in the wives' language, and Miro could understand only bits and pieces. What is he saying? whispered the speaker. Miro, still kneeling beside him, translated as best he could. He went to the wives, apparently, and they said to do whatever you asked. But it isn't that simple. He's telling them that, I don't know these words, something about all of them dying. Something about brothers dying, anyway. Look at them. They aren't afraid, any of them. I don't know what their fear looks like, said Speaker. I don't know these people at all. I don't either, said Miro. I've got to hand it to you. You've caused more excitement here in half an hour than I've seen in years of coming here. It's a gift I was born with, said the speaker. I'll make you a bargain. I won't tell anybody about your questionable activities, and you don't tell anybody who I am. That's easy, said Miro. I don't believe it anyway. Leaf Eater's speech ended. He immediately padded to the house and went inside. We'll ask for the gift of an ancient brother, said Human. The wives have said so. 
So it was that Miro stood with his arm around Wanda and the speaker standing at his other side as the piggies performed a miracle far more convincing than any of the ones that had won old Gusto and Sida their title Os Venerados. The piggies gathered in a circle around a thick old tree at the clearing's edge. Then, one by one, each piggy shimmied up the tree and began beating on it with a club. Soon they were all in the tree, singing and pounding out complex rhythms. Father Tongue, Wanda whispered. After only a few minutes of this, the tree tilted noticeably. Immediately, about half the piggies jumped down and began pushing the tree so it would fall into the open ground of the clearing. The rest began beating all the more furiously and singing all the louder. One by one, the great branches of the tree began to fall off. Immediately, piggies ran out and picked them up, dragged them away from the area where the tree was meant to fall. Human carried one to the speaker, who took it carefully and showed it to Mito and Wanda. The raw end, where it had been attached to the tree, was absolutely smooth. It wasn't flat, the surface undulated slightly along an oblique angle, but there was no raggedness to it, no leaking sap, nothing to imply the slightest violence in its separation from the tree. Miro touched his finger to it, and it was cold and smooth as marble. Finally, the tree was a single straight trunk, nude and majestic. The pale patches where branches once had grown were brightly lit by the afternoon sun. The singing reached a climax, then stopped. The tree tilted and then began a smooth and graceful fall to the earth. The ground shook and thundered when it struck, and then all was still. Human walked to the fallen tree and began to stroke its surface, singing softly. The bark split gradually under his hands. The crack extended itself up and down the length of the tree until the bark was split completely in half. Then many piggies took hold of it and prized it from the trunk. It came away on one side and the other in two continuous sheets of bark. The bark was carried to the side. Have you ever seen them use the bark? Speaker asked Miro. Miro shook his head. He had no words to say aloud. Now Arrow stepped forward, singing softly. He drew his fingers up and down the trunk, as if tracing exactly the length and width of a single bow. Miro saw how lines appeared, how the naked wood creased, split, crumbled until only the bow remained, perfect and polished and smooth, lying in a long trench in the wood. Other piggies came forward, drawing shapes on the trunk and singing, they came away with clubs, with bows and arrows, thin-bladed knives, and thousands of strands of thin basket wood. Finally, when half the trunk was dissipated, they all stepped back and sang together. The tree shivered and split into half a dozen long poles. The tree was entirely used up. Human walked slowly forward and knelt by the poles, his hands gently resting on the nearest one. He tilted back his head and began to sing, a wordless melody that was the saddest sound that Miro had ever heard. The song went on and on, human's voice alone. Only gradually did Miro realize that the other piggies were looking at him, waiting for something. Finally, Mandashuva came to him and spoke softly. Please, he said, it's only right that you should sing for the brother. I don't know how, said Miro, feeling helpless and afraid. He gave his life, said Mandashuva.
to answer your question. To answer my question and then raise a thousand more, Miro said silently. But he walked forward, knelt beside Human, curled his fingers around the same cold, smooth pole that Human held, tilted back his head, and let his voice come out. At first weak and hesitant, unsure what melody to sing, but soon he understood the reason for the tuneless song, felt the death of the tree under his hands, and his voice became loud and strong, making agonized disharmonies with human's voice that mourned the death of the tree and thanked it for its sacrifice and promised to use its death for the good of the tribe, for the good of the brothers and the wives and the children, so that all would live and thrive and prosper. That was the meaning of the song and the meaning of the death of the tree, and when the song was finally over, Miro bent until his forehead touched the wood, and he said the words of extreme unction, the same words he had whispered over Libo's corpse on the hillside five years ago. Chapter 15 Speaking Human, why don't any of the other humans ever come see us? Miro, we're the only ones allowed to come through the gate. Human, why don't they just climb over the fence? Miro, haven't any of you ever touched the fence? Human does not answer. It's very painful to touch the fence. To pass over the fence would be like every part of your body hurting as bad as possible all at once. Human, that's stupid. Isn't there grass on both sides? Wanda Kenyatta Figuera Mukumbi Dialogue Transcripts 103 0 1970 1 1 5 The sun was only an hour from the horizon when Mayor Bosquinha climbed the stairs to Bishop Peregrino's private office in the cathedral. Dom and Donna Cristans were already there, looking grave. Bishop Peregrino, however, looked pleased with himself. He always enjoyed it when all the political and religious leadership of Milagre was gathered under his roof. Never mind that Bosquinha was the one who called the meeting and then offered to have it at the cathedral because she was the one with the skimmer. Peregrino liked the feeling that he was somehow the master of Lusitania Colony. Well, by the end of this meeting, it would be plain to them all that no one in this room was the master of anything. Bosquinha greeted them all. She did not sit down in the offered chair, however. Instead, she sat before the bishop's own terminal, logged in, and ran the program she had prepared. In the air above the terminal, there appeared several layers of tiny cubes. The highest layer had only a few cubes. Most of the layers had many, many more. More than half of the layers, starting with the very highest, were colored red. The rest were blue. Very pretty, said Bishop Peregrino. Bosquinha looked over at Dom Cristin. Do you recognize the model? He shook his head. But I think I know what this meeting is about. Donna Cristin leaned forward on her chair. Is there any safe place where we can hide the things we want to keep? Bishop Peregrino's expression of detached amusement vanished from his face. I don't know what this meeting is about. Bosquinha turned around on her stool to face him. I was very young when I was appointed to be governor of the new Lusitania colony. 
It was a great honor to be chosen, a great trust. I had studied government in communities and social systems since my childhood, and I had done well in my short career in Oporto. What the committee apparently overlooked was the fact that I was already suspicious, deceptive, and chauvinistic. These are virtues of yours that we have all come to admire, said Bishop Peregrino. Boschini smiled. My chauvinism meant that as soon as Lusitania Colony was mine, I became more loyal to the interests of Lusitania than to the interests of the Hundred Worlds or Starways Congress. My deceptiveness led me to pretend to the committee that, on the contrary, I had the best interests of Congress at heart at all times. And my suspicion led me to believe that Congress was not likely to give Lusitania anything remotely like independent and equal status among the Hundred Worlds. Of course not, said Bishop Peregrino. We are a colony. We are not a colony, said Boschina. We are an experiment. I examined our charter and license and all the congressional orders pertaining to us, and I discovered that the normal privacy laws did not apply to us. I discovered that the committee had the power of unlimited access to all the memory files of every person and institution on Lusitania. The bishop began to look angry. Do you mean that the committee has the right to look in the confidential files of the church? Ah, said Boschina, a fellow chauvinist. The church has some rights under the Starways Code. Don't be angry with me. You never told me. If I had told you, you would have protested, and they would have pretended to back down, and then I couldn't have done what I did. Which is? This program. It monitors all Ansible initiated accesses to any files in Lusitania Colony. Dom Cristan chuckled. <laughs> You're not supposed to do that. I know. As I said, I have many secret vices. But my program never found any major intrusion. Oh, a few files each time the piggies killed one of our xenologers, that was to be expected, but nothing major until four days ago, when the speaker for the dead arrived, said Bishop Peregrino. Boschini was amused that the bishop obviously regarded the speaker's arrival as such a landmark date that he instantly made such a connection. Three days ago, said Boschini, a non-destructive scan was initiated by Ansible. It followed an interesting pattern. She turned to the terminal and changed the display. Now it showed accesses primarily in high-level areas and limited to only one region of the display. It accessed everything to do with the xenologers and xenobiologists of Milagre. It ignored all security routines as if they didn't exist. Everything they discovered and everything to do with their personal lives. And yes, Bishop Peregrino, I believed at the time, and I believe today, that this had to do with the speaker. Surely he has no authority with Starway's Congress, said the bishop. Dom Cristin nodded wisely. San Angelo once wrote, in his private journals, which no one but the children of the mind ever read, the bishop turned on him with glee. 
So, the children of the mind do have secret writings of San Angelo. Uh, not secret, said Donna Cristin. Merely boring. Anyone can read the journals, but we're the only ones who bother. What he wrote, said Dom Cristin, was that Speaker Andrew is older than we know. Older than Starway's Congress, and in his own way, perhaps more powerful. Bishop Peregrino snorted. He's a boy. Can't be forty years old yet. Your stupid rivalries are wasting time, said Buschina sharply. I called this meeting because of an emergency. As a courtesy to you, because I have already acted for the benefit of the government of Lusitania. The others fell silent. Boschino returned the terminal to the original display. This morning, my program alerted me for a second time. Another systematic Ansible access. Only this time, it was not the selective, non-destructive access of three days ago. This time, it is reading everything at data transfer speed, which implies that all our files are being copied into off-world computers. Then the directories are rewritten so that a single Ansible-initiated command will completely destroy every single file in our computer memories. Boschina could see that Bishop Peregrino was surprised, and the children of the mind were not. Why, said Bishop Peregrino, to destroy all our files? This is what you do to a nation or a world that is in rebellion, that you wish to destroy, that you... I see, said Boschina to the children of the mind, that you also were chauvinistic and suspicious. Well, much more narrowly than you, I'm afraid, said Dom Cristin. But we also detected the intrusions. We, of course, copied all our records at great expense to the monasteries of the children of the mind on other worlds, and they will try to restore our files after they are stripped. However, if we are being treated as a rebellious colony, I doubt that such a restoration will be permitted. So we are also making paper copies of the most vital information. There is no hope of printing everything, but we think we may be able to print out enough to get by so that our work isn't utterly destroyed. You knew this, said the bishop, and you didn't tell me? Uh, forgive me, Bishop Peregrino, but it did not occur to us that you would not have detected this yourselves. And you also don't believe we do any work that is important enough to be worth printing out to save? Enough, said Mayor Boschina. Printouts can't save more than a tiny percentage. There aren't enough printers in Lusitania to make a dent in the problem. We couldn't even maintain basic services. I don't think we have more than an hour left before the copying is complete and they are able to wipe out our memory. But even if we began this morning when the intrusion started, we could not have printed out more than a hundredth of one percent of the files that we access every day. Our fragility, our vulnerability is complete. So we're helpless, said the bishop. No, but I wanted to make clear to you the extremity of our situation so that you would accept the only alternative. It will be very distasteful to you. 
I have no doubt of that, said Bishop Peregrino. An hour ago, when I was wrestling with this problem, trying to see if there was any class of files that might be immune to this treatment, I discovered that, in fact, there was one person whose files were being completely overlooked. At first I thought it was because he was a framling, but the reason is much more subtle than that. The speaker for the dead has no files in Lusitanian memory. None? Impossible, said Donna Cristin. He is invisible to Starway's Congress. If they place an embargo on all data transfers to and from Lusitania, his files will still be accessible because the computers do not see his file accesses as data transfers. They are original storage, yet they are not in Lusitanian memory. Are you suggesting, said Bishop Peregrino, that we transfer our most confidential and important files as messages to that, that unspeakable infidel? I am telling you that I have already done exactly that. The transfer of the most vital and sensitive government files is almost complete. It was a high-priority transfer at local speeds, so it runs much faster than the congressional copying. I am offering you a chance to make a similar transfer, using my highest priority so that it takes precedence over all other local computer usage. If you don't want to do it, fine. I'll use my priority to transfer the second tier of government files. But he could look in our files, said the bishop. Yes, he could. Dom Cristin shook his head. Well, he won't if we ask him not to. You are naive as a child, said Bishop Peregrino. There would be nothing to compel him even to give the data back to us. Bosquinha nodded. That's true. He'll have everything that's vital to us, and he can keep it or return it as he wishes. But I believe, as Dom Cristan does, that he's a good man who'll help us in our time of need. Donna Cristan stood. Excuse me, she said. I'd like to begin crucial transfers immediately. Bosquinha turned to the bishop's terminal and logged into her own high-priority mode. Just enter the classes of files that you want to send into Speaker Andrew's message queue. I assume you already have them prioritized since you were printing them out. How long do we have? asked Dom Cristin. Donna Cristin was already typing furiously. The time is here at the top. Bosquinha put her hand into the holographic display and touched the countdown numbers with her finger. Don't bother transferring anything that we've already printed, said Dom Cristin. We can always type that back in. There's precious little of it anyway. Bosquinha turned to the bishop. I knew this would be difficult. The bishop gave one derisive laugh. <laughs> difficult. I hope you'll consider carefully before rejecting this. Rejecting it? said the bishop. Do you think I'm a fool? I may detest the pseudo-religion of these blasphemous speakers for the dead, but if this is the only way God has opened for us to preserve the vital records of the church, then I'd be a poor servant of the Lord if I let pride stop me from using it. Our files aren't prioritized yet, and it will take a few minutes, but I trust that the children of the mine will leave us enough time for our data transfers. How much time will you need, do you think? asked Dom Cristin. Well, not much. Ten minutes the most, I think. Bosquinha was surprised, and pleasantly so. 
She had been afraid the bishop would insist on copying all his files before allowing the children of the mind to go ahead. Just one more attempt to assert the precedence of the bishopric over the monastery. Thank you, Dom Cristin said, kissing the hand that Peregrino extended to him. The bishop looked at Boschina coldly. You don't need to look surprised, Mayor Boschina. The children of the mind work with the knowledge of the world, so they depend far more on the world's machines. Mother Church works with things of the spirit, so our use of public memory is merely clerical. As for the Bible, we are so old-fashioned and set in our ways that we still keep dozens of leather-bound paper copies in the cathedral. Starway's Congress can't steal from us our copies of the Word of God. He smiled. Maliciously, of course. Boschina smiled back quite cheerfully. A small matter, said Dom Cristin. After our files are destroyed, and we copy them back into memory from the speaker's files, what is to stop Congress from doing it again, and again, and again? That is the difficult decision, said Boschina. What we do depends on what Congress is trying to accomplish. Maybe they won't actually destroy our files at all. Maybe they'll immediately restore our most vital files after this demonstration of their power. Since I have no idea why they're disciplining us, how can I guess how far this will go? If they leave us any way to remain loyal, then of course we must also remain vulnerable to further discipline. But if for some reason they are determined to treat us like rebels... Well, if bad came to worst, we could copy everything back into local memory and then cut off the ansible. God help us, said Donna Cristin. We would be utterly alone. Bishop Peregrino looked annoyed. What an absurd idea, Sister de Testaio Pecado. Or do you think that Christ depends upon the ansible? That Congress has the power to silence the Holy Ghost? Donna Cristan blushed and returned to her work at the terminal. The bishop's secretary handed him a paper with a list of files on it. You can leave my personal correspondence off the list, said the bishop. I've already sent my messages. We'll let the church decide which of my letters is worth preserving. They have no value to me. The bishop is ready, said Dom Cristan. Immediately his wife arose from the terminal, and the secretary took her place. By the way, said Boschina, I thought you'd want to know. The speaker has announced that this evening in the praça he'll speak the death of Marcos Maria Hibera. Boschina looked at her watch. Very soon now, in fact. Why, said the bishop acidly, did you think that I would care? I thought you might want to send a representative. Thank you for telling us, said Dom Cristin. I think that I'll attend. I'd like to hear a speaking by the man who spoke the death of San Angelo. He turned to the bishop. I'll report to you on what he says, if you like. The bishop leaned back and smiled tightly. Thank you. But one of my people will be in attendance. Boschina left the bishop's office and clattered down the stairs and out the cathedral doors. She had to be back in her own rooms now, because whatever the Congress was planning, 
it would be Bosquinha who received their messages. She had not discussed it with the religious leaders because it was really none of their business, but she knew perfectly well, at least in a general way, why Congress was doing this. The paragraphs that gave Congress the right to treat Lusitania like a rebellious colony were all tied to the rules dealing with contact with the piggies. Obviously, the Xenologers had done something grossly wrong. Since Bosquinha had not known of any violations, it had to be something so big that its evidence showed up on the satellites, the only monitoring devices that reported directly to the committee without passing through Bosquinha's hands. Bosquinha had tried to think of what Miro and Wanda might have done. Start a forest fire? Cut down trees? Led a war between the piggy tribes? Anything she thought of sounded absurd. She tried to call them in to question them, but they were gone, of course. Through the gate, out into the forest to continue, no doubt, the same activities that had brought the possibility of destruction to Lusitania Colony. Bosquinha kept reminding herself that they were young, that it might all be some ridiculous juvenile mistake. But they weren't that young and they were two of the brightest minds in a colony that contained many intelligent people. It was a very good thing that governments under the Starways Code were forbidden to own any instruments of punishment that might be used for torture. For the first time in her life, Bosquinha felt such fury that she might use such instruments if she had them. I don't know what you thought you were doing, Miro and Wanda. And I don't know what you did, but whatever your purpose might have been, this whole community will pay the price for it. And somehow, if there were any justice, I would make you pay it back. Many people had said they wouldn't come to any speaking. They were good Catholics, weren't they? Hadn't the bishop told them that the speaker spoke with Satan's voice? But other things were whispered, too. Once the speaker came, rumors, mostly, but Milagra was a little place where rumors were the sauce of dry life, and rumors have no value unless they are believed. So word spread that Marcaun's little girl Quara, who had been silent since he died, was now so talkative that it got her in trouble in school. And Oliado, that ill-mannered boy with a repulsive metal eyes, it was said that he suddenly seemed cheerful, and excited, perhaps manic, perhaps possessed. Rumors began to imply that somehow the speaker had a healing touch, that he had the evil eye, that his blessings made you whole, his curses could kill you, his words could charm you into obedience. Not everybody heard this, of course, and not everybody who heard it believed it. But in the four days between the speaker's arrival and the evening of his speaking the death of Marcos Maria Hibera, the community of Milagra decided, without any formal announcement, that they would come to the speaking and hear what the speaker had to say, whether the bishop said to stay away or not. It was the bishop's own fault. From his vantage point, Calling the speaker satanic put Andrew Wigan at the farthest extreme from himself and all good Catholics. The speaker is the opposite of us. But to those who are not theologically sophisticated, while Satan was frightening and powerful, 
So was God. They understood well enough the continuum of good and evil that the bishop referred to, but they were far more interested in the continuum of strong and weak. That was the one they lived with day by day. And on that continuum, they were weak, and God and Satan and the bishop all were strong. The bishop had elevated the speaker to stand with him as a man of power. The people were thus prepared to believe the whispered hints of miracles. So even though the announcement came only an hour before the speaking, the prasa was full, and people gathered in the buildings and houses that fronted the prasa and crowded the grassy alleyways and streets. Mayor Baskinia had, as the law required, provided the speaker with a simple microphone that she used for the rare public meetings. People oriented themselves toward the platform where he would stand, then they looked around to see who was there. Everyone was there. Of course, Marcoun's family, of course, the mayor, but also Dom Cristan and Donna Cristan and many a robed priest from the cathedral, Dr. Navio, Pipo's widow, old Concession, the archivist, Libo's widow, Brusinha, and her children. It was rumored that the speaker also meant to speak Pipo's and Libo's death some day, too. And finally, just as the speaker stepped up onto the platform, the rumor swept the prasa. Bishop Peregrino was here, not in his vestments, but in the simple robes of a priest, here himself to hear the speaker's blasphemy. Many a citizen of Milagra felt a delicious thrill of anticipation. Would the bishop rise up and miraculously strike down Satan? Would there be a battle here such as had not been seen outside the vision of the apocalypse of St. John? Then the speaker stood before the microphone and waited for them to be still. He was fairly tall, youngish still, but his white skin made him look sickly compared to the thousand shades of brown of the Lusos. Ghostly. They fell silent, and he began to speak. He was known by three names. The official records have the first one, Marcos Maria Hibera, and his official data, born 1929, died 1970. Worked in the steel foundry, perfect safety record, never arrested, a wife, six children, a model citizen because he never did anything bad enough to go on the public record. Many who were listening felt a vague disquiet. They had expected oration. Instead, the speaker's voice was nothing remarkable, and his words had none of the formality of religious speech. Plain, simple, almost conversational. Only a few of them noticed that its very simplicity made his voice, his speech, utterly believable. He wasn't telling the truth with trumpets. He was telling the truth, the story that you wouldn't think to doubt because it's taken for granted. Bishop Peregrino was one who noticed, and it made him uneasy. This speaker would be a formidable enemy, one who could not be blasted down with fire from before the altar. The second name he had was Marcao, Big Marcos, because he was a giant of a man, reached his adult size early in his life, how old was he when he reached two meters? Eleven? Definitely by the time he was twelve. His size and strength made him valuable in the foundry, 
where the lots of steel are so small that much of the work is controlled directly by hand, and strength matters. People's lives depended on Marcaon's strength. In the prasa, the men from the foundry nodded. They had all bragged to each other that they'd never talked to the framling atheist. Obviously, one of them had, but now it felt good that the speaker got it right, that he understood what they remembered of Marcaon. Every one of them wished that he had been the one to tell about Marcaon to the speaker. They did not guess that the speaker had not even tried to talk to them. After all these years, there were many things that Andrew Wigan knew without asking. His third name was Kaun, Dog. Ah, yes, thought the Lusos. This is what we've heard about the speakers for the dead. They have no respect for the dead, no sense of decorum. That was the name you used for him when you heard that his wife, Novinia, had another black eye, walked with a limp, had stitches in her lip. He was an animal to do that to her. How dare he say that? The man's dead. But under their anger, the Lusos were uncomfortable for an entirely different reason. Almost all of them remembered saying or hearing exactly those words. The speaker's indiscretion was in repeating in public the words that they had used about Marcaun when he was alive. Not that any of you liked Novinia, not that cold woman who never gave any of you good morning, but she was smaller than he was, and she was the mother of his children, and when he beat her he deserved the name of Kaun. They were embarrassed. They muttered to each other. Those sitting in the grass near Novinia glanced at her and glanced away, eager to see how she was reacting, painfully aware of the fact that the speaker was right, that they didn't like her, that they at once feared and pitied her. Tell me, is this the man you knew, spent more hours in the bars than anybody and yet never made any friends there, never the camaraderie of alcohol for him? You couldn't even tell how much he had been drinking. He was surly and short-tempered before he had a drink, and surly and short-tempered just before he passed out. Nobody could tell the difference. You never heard of him having a friend, and none of you was ever glad to see him come into a room. That's the man you knew, most of you. Kaun. Hardly a man at all. Yes, they thought. That was the man. Now the initial shock of his indecorum had faded. They were accustomed to the fact that the speaker meant to soften nothing in his story, yet they were still uncomfortable. For there was a note of irony, not in his voice, but inherent in his words. Hardly a man at all, he had said. But of course he was a man, and they were vaguely aware that while the speaker understood what they thought of Marcaun, he didn't necessarily agree. A few others, the men from the foundry in Bairro das Fabricadores, knew him as a strong arm they could trust. They knew he never said he could do more than he could do, and always did what he said he would do. You could count on him. So, within the walls of the foundry, he had their respect. But when you walked out the door, you treated him like everybody else, ignored him, thought little of him. The irony was pronounced now, though the speaker gave no hint in his voice. Still the simple, plain speech he began with. 
The men who worked with him felt it wordlessly inside themselves. We should not have ignored him as we did. If he had worth inside the foundry, then perhaps we should have valued him outside too. Some of you also know something else that you never talk about much. You know that you gave him the name Kaun long before he earned it. You were ten, eleven, twelve years old. Little boys. He grew so tall, it made you ashamed to be near him and afraid because he made you feel helpless. Dom Cristown murmured to his wife, They came for gossip and he gives them responsibility. So you handled him the way human beings always handle things that are bigger than they are. You banded together, like hunters trying to bring down a mastodon, like bullfighters trying to weaken a giant bull to prepare it for the kill. Pokes, taunts, teases, keep him turning around. He can't guess where the next blow is coming from. Prick him with barbs that stay under his skin, weaken him with pain, madden him because big as he is, you can make him do things. You can make him yell. You can make him run. You can make him cry. See, he's weaker than you after all. Ella was angry. She had meant him to accuse Marcon, not excuse him. Just because he had a tough childhood didn't give him the right to knock Mother down whenever he felt like it. There's no blame in this. You were children then, and children are cruel without knowing better. You wouldn't do that now. But now that I've reminded you, you can easily see an answer. You called him a dog, and so he became one for the rest of his life. Hurting, helpless people, beating his wife, speaking so cruelly and abusively to his son Miro that he drove the boy out of his house. He was acting out the way you treated him, becoming what you told him that he was. You're a fool, thought Bishop Peregrino. If people only react to the way that others treat them, then nobody is responsible for anything. If your sins are not your own to choose, then how can you repent? As if he heard the bishop's silent argument, the speaker raised a hand and swept away his own words. But the easy answer isn't true. Your torments didn't make him violent. They made him sullen. And when you grew out of tormenting him, he grew out of hating you. He wasn't one to bear a grudge. His anger cooled and turned into suspicion. He knew you despised him. He learned to live without you, in peace. The speaker paused a moment and then gave voice to the question they silently were asking. So, how did he become the cruel man you knew him to be? Think a moment. Who was it who tasted his cruelty? His wife, his children. Some people beat their wife and children because they lust for power, but are too weak or stupid to win power in the world. A helpless wife and children bound to such a man by need and custom and bitterly enough love are the only victims he is strong enough to rule. Yes, thought Ella, stealing a glance at her mother. This is what I wanted. This is why I asked him to speak father's death. There are men like that. But Marcos Hibera, 
wasn't one of them. Think a moment. Did you ever hear of him striking any of his children? Ever? You who worked with him, did he ever try to force his will on you? Seem resentful when things didn't go his way? Marcaun was not a weak and evil man. He was a strong man. He didn't want power. He wanted love, not control, loyalty. Bishop Peregrino smiled grimly, the way a duelist might salute a worthy opponent. You walk a twisted path, speaker, circling around the truth, fainting at it, and when you strike, your aim will be deadly. These people came for entertainment, but they're your targets. You will pierce them to the heart. Some of you remember an incident. Marcos was maybe thirteen, and so were you, taunting him on the grassy hillside behind the school. You attacked more viciously than usual. You threatened him with stones, whipped him with capim blades. You bloodied him a little, but he bore it, tried to evade you, asked you to stop. Then one of you struck him hard in the belly, and it hurt him more than you ever imagined, because even then he was already sick with the disease that finally killed him. He hadn't yet become accustomed to his fragility and pain. It felt like death to him. He was concerned. You were killing him, so he struck at you. How did he know, thought half a dozen men. It was so long ago. Who told him how it was? It was out of hand, that's all. We never meant anything, but when his arm swung out, his huge fist like the kick of a cabra, he was going to hurt me. It could have been any one of you that fell to the ground. You knew then that he was even stronger than you feared. What terrified you most, though, was that you knew exactly the revenge that you deserved. So you called for help, and when the teachers came, what did they see? One little boy on the ground, crying, bleeding. One large, man-sized child with a few scratches here and there, saying, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to and a half-dozen others, saying, He just hit him, started killing him for no reason. We tried to stop him, but Kaun is so big, he's always picking on the little kids. Little Grego was caught up in the story. Mentirosos, he shouted. They were lying. Several people nearby chuckled. Quara shushed him. So many witnesses... The teachers had no choice but to believe the accusation until one girl stepped forward and coldly informed them that she had seen it all. Marcos was acting to protect himself from a completely unwarranted, vicious, painful attack by a pack of boys who were acting far more like cows, like dogs, than Marcos Hibera ever did. Her story was instantly accepted as the truth. After all, she was the daughter of Osvenerados. Grego looked at his mother with glowing eyes, then jumped up and announced to the people around him, Ah, maman, Oliberto! Mama saved him! People laughed, turned around and looked at Novina, but she held her face expressionless, refusing to acknowledge their momentary affection for her child. They looked away again, offended. Novina. Her cold manner and bright mind made her just as much an outcast among you as Marcaun. 
none of you could think of a time when she had ever made a friendly gesture toward any of you. And here she was, saving Marcan. Well, you knew the truth. She wasn't saving Marcan. She was preventing you from getting away with something. They nodded and smiled knowingly, those people whose overtures of friendship she had just rebuffed. That's Donna Novigna, the biologista, too good for any of the rest of us. Marcos didn't see it that way. He had been called an animal so often that he almost believed it. Novigna showed him compassion like a human being, a pretty girl, a brilliant child, the daughter of the Holy Venerados, always aloof as a goddess. She had reached down and blessed him and granted his prayer. He worshipped her. Six years later, he married her. Isn't that a lovely story? Ella looked at Miro, who raised an eyebrow at her. Almost makes you like the old bastard, doesn't it? said Miro dryly. Suddenly, after a long pause, the speaker's voice erupted louder than ever before. It startled them, awoke them. Why did he come to hate her, to beat her, to despise their children? And why did she endure it, this strong-willed, brilliant woman? She could have stopped the marriage at any moment. The church may not allow divorce, but there's always desquite, and she wouldn't be the first person in Milagre to quit her husband. She could have taken her suffering children and left him, but she stayed. The mayor and the bishop both suggested that she leave him. She told them they could go to hell. Many of the Lusos laughed. They could imagine tight-lipped Novinia snapping at the bishop himself, facing down Bosquina. They might not like Novinia much, but she was just about the only person in Milagra who could get away with thumbing her nose at authority. The bishop remembered the scene in his chambers more than a decade ago. She had not used exactly the words the speaker quoted, but the effect was much the same. Yet he had been alone. He had told no one. Who was this speaker, and how did he know so much about things he could not possibly have known? When the laughter died, the speaker went on. There was a tie that bound them together in a marriage they hated. That tie was Marcon's disease. His voice was softer now. The Lusso strained to hear. It shaped his life from the moment he was conceived. The genes his parents gave him combined in such a way that from the moment puberty began, the cells of his glands began a steady, relentless transformation into fatty tissues. Dr. Navio can tell you how it progresses better than I can. Marcon knew from childhood that he had this condition. His parents knew it before they died in the Descolada. Gusto and Sida knew it from their genetic examinations of all the humans of Lusitania. They were all dead. Only one other person knew it. The one who had inherited the xenobiological files. Novinia. Dr. Navio was puzzled. If she knew this before they married... She surely knew that most people who had his condition were sterile. Why would she have married him when for all she knew he had no chance of fathering children? Then he realized, 
what he should have known before, that Marcon was not a rare exception to the pattern of the disease. There were no exceptions. Navio's face reddened. What the speaker was about to tell them was unspeakable. Novinia knew that Marcon was dying. She also knew before she married him that he was absolutely and completely sterile. It took a moment for the meaning of this to sink in. Ella felt as if her organs were melting inside her body. She saw without turning her head that Miro had gone rigid, that his cheeks had paled. Speaker went on despite the rising whispers from the audience. I saw the genetic scans. Marcos Maria Hibera never fathered a child. His wife had children, but they were not his, and he knew it, and she knew he knew it. It was part of the bargain that they made when they got married. The murmurs turned to muttering, the grumbles to complaints, and as the noise reached a climax, King leaped to his feet and shouted, screamed at the speaker, My mother is not an adulteress. I'll kill you for calling her a whore. His last word hung in the silence. The speaker did not answer. He only waited, not letting his gaze drop from Keen's burning face, until finally Keen realized that it was he, not the speaker, whose voice had said the word that kept ringing in his ears. He faltered. He looked at his mother sitting beside him on the ground, but not rigidly now, slumped a little now, looking at her hands as they trembled in her lap. Tell them, mother, Keen said. His voice sounded more pleading than he had intended. She didn't answer, didn't say a word, didn't look at him. If he didn't know better, he would think her trembling hands were a confession, that she was ashamed, as if what the speaker said was the truth that God himself would tell if Keen were to ask him. He remembered Father Matteo explaining the tortures of hell, God spits on adulterers. They mock the power of creation that he shared with them. They haven't enough goodness in them to be anything better than amoebas. King tasted bile in his mouth. What the speaker said was true. Maman, he said loudly, mockingly. Kem fode prafazerme. People gasped. Oliado jumped to his feet at once, his hands doubled in fists. Only then did Novinia react. Reaching out a hand as if to restrain Oliado from hitting his brother, King hardly noticed that Oliado had leapt to his mother's defense. All he could think of was the fact that Miro had not. Miro also knew that it was true. King breathed deeply, then turned round, looking lost for a moment. Then he threaded his way through the crowd. No one spoke to him though everyone watched him go. If Novinia had denied the charge, they would have believed her, would have mobbed the speaker for accusing Osvenerado's daughter of such a sin. But she had not denied it. She had listened to her own son accuse her obscenely, and she said nothing. It was true. And now they listened in fascination. Few of them had any real concern. They just wanted to learn who had fathered Novinia's children? The speaker quietly resumed his tale. After her parents died, and before her children were born, Novinia loved only two people. Pippo was her second father. 
Novinia anchored her life in him. For a few short years she had a taste of what it meant to have a family. Then he died, and Novinia believed that she had killed him. People sitting near Novinia's family saw Quara kneel in front of Ella and ask her, Why is King so angry? Ella answered softly, Because Papai was not really our father. Oh, said Quara, Is the speaker our father now? She sounded hopeful. Ella shushed her. The night Pipo died, Novinia showed him something that she had discovered, something to do with the descolada and the way it works with the plants and animals of Lusitania. Pipo saw more in her work than she did herself. He rushed to the forest where the piggies waited. Perhaps he told them what he had discovered. Perhaps they only guessed. But Novinia blamed herself for showing him a secret that the piggies would kill to keep. It was too late to undo what she had done, but she could keep it from happening again. So she sealed up all the files that had anything to do with the descolada and what she had shown to people that night. She knew who would want to see the files. It was Libo, the new Zenador. If people had been her father, Libo had been her brother, and more than a brother. Hard as it was to bear people's death, Libo's would be worse. He asked for the files. He demanded to see them. She told him she would never let him see them. They both knew exactly what that meant. If he ever married her, he could strip away the protection on those files. They loved each other desperately. They needed each other more than ever. But Novinia could never marry him. He would never promise not to read the files, and even if he made such a promise, he couldn't keep it. He would surely see what his father saw. He would die. It was one thing to refuse to marry him. It was another thing to live without him. So she didn't live without him. She made her bargain with Marcoun. She would marry him under the law, but her real husband and the father of all her children would be, was... Libo. Bruchinha, Libo's widow, rose shakily to her feet, tears streaming down her face, and wailed, Mentira, mentira! Lies, lies! But her weeping was not anger. It was grief. She was mourning the loss of her husband all over again. Three of her daughters helped her leave the prasa. Softly, the speaker continued while she left. Libo knew that he was hurting his wife, Bruchinia, and their four daughters. He hated himself for what he had done. He tried to stay away. For months, sometimes years, he succeeded. Novinia also tried. She refused to see him, even to speak to him. She forbade her children to mention him. Then Libo would think that he was strong enough to see her without falling back into the old way. Novinia would be so lonely with her husband, who could never measure up to Libo. They never pretended there was anything good about what they were doing. They just couldn't live for long without it. Prusinia heard this as she was led away. It was little comfort to her now, of course. But as Bishop Peregrino watched her go, he recognized that the speaker was giving her a gift. She was the most innocent victim of his cruel truth but he didn't leave her with nothing but ashes. He was giving her a way to live with the knowledge of what her husband did. It was not your fault, 
he was telling her. Nothing you did could have prevented it. Your husband was the one who failed, not you. Blessed Virgin, prayed the bishop silently, let Prochinia hear what he says and believe it. Lebo's widow was not the only one who cried. Many hundreds of the eyes that watched her go were also filled with tears. To discover Novinia was an adulteress was shocking, but delicious. The steel-hearted woman had a flaw that made her no better than anyone else. But there was no pleasure in finding the same flaw in Lebo. Everyone had loved him. His generosity, his kindness, his wisdom that they so admired, they didn't want to know that it was all a mask. So they were surprised when the speaker reminded them that it was not Lebo whose death he spoke today. Why did Marcos Hibera consent to this? Novinia thought it was because he wanted a wife and the illusion that he had children. To take away his shame in the community. It was partly that. Most of all, though, he married her because he loved her. He never really hoped that she would love him the way he loved her because he worshipped her. She was a goddess, and he knew that he was diseased, filthy, an animal to be despised. He knew she could not worship him or even love him. He hoped that she might someday feel some affection, that she might feel some loyalty. The speaker bowed his head a moment. Calusos heard the words that he did not have to say. She never did. Each child that came was another proof to Marcos that he had failed, that the goddess still found him unworthy. Why? He was loyal. He had never hinted to any of his children that they were not his own. He never broke his promise to Novinia. Didn't he deserve something from her? At times it was more than he could bear. He refused to accept her judgment. She was no goddess. Her children were all bastards. This is what he told himself when he lashed out at her, when he shouted at Miro. Miro heard his own name, but didn't recognize it as anything to do with him. His connection with reality was more fragile than he ever had supposed, and today had given him too many shocks. The impossible magic with the piggies in the trees... Mother and Lebo, lovers. Wanda suddenly torn from being as close to him as his own body, his own self. She was now set back at one remove, like Ella, like Quara, another sister. His eyes did not focus on the grass. The speaker's voice was pure sound. He didn't hear meanings in the words, only the terrible sound. Miro had called for that voice, had wanted it to speak Lebo's death. How could he have known that instead of a benevolent priest of a humanist religion, he would get the original speaker himself, with his penetrating mind and far too perfect understanding? He could not have known that beneath that emphatic mask would be hiding Ender, the destroyer, the mythic Lucifer of mankind's greatest crime, determined to live up to his name, making a mockery of the life work of Pipo, Libo, Wanda, and Miro himself— by seeing in a single hour with the piggies what all the others had failed in almost fifty years to see, and then riving Wanda from him with a single merciless stroke from the blade of truth. That was the voice that Miro heard, the only certainty left to him, that relentless, terrible voice. 
Mito clung to the sound of it, trying to hate it, yet failing because he knew, could not deceive himself, he knew that Ender was a destroyer. But what he destroyed was illusion, and the illusion had to die. The truth about the piggies, the truth about ourselves. Somehow this ancient man is able to see the truth, and it doesn't blind his eyes or drive him mad. I must listen to this voice and let its power come to me so I, too, can stare at the light and not die. Novinia knew what she was. An adulteress, a hypocrite. She knew she was hurting Markaun, Libo, her children, Rushinia. She knew she had killed Pippo. So she endured, even invited Markaun's punishment. It was her penance. It was never penance enough. No matter how much Markaun might hate her, she hated herself more. The bishop nodded slowly. The speaker had done a monstrous thing to lay these secrets before the whole community. They should have been spoken in the confessional. Yet Peregrino had felt the power of it, the way the whole community was forced to discover these people that they thought they knew, and then discover them again and then again. And each revision of the story forced them all to reconceive themselves as well, for they had been part of this story too, had been touched by all the people a hundred, a thousand times, never understanding until now who it was they touched. It was a painful, fearful thing to go through, but in the end it had a curiously calming effect. The bishop leaned to his secretary and whispered, At least the gossips will get nothing from this. There aren't any secrets left to tell. All the people in this story suffered pain. All of them sacrificed for the people they loved. All of them caused terrible pain to the people who loved them. And you, listening to me here today, you also caused pain. But remember this. Markown's life was tragic and cruel, but he could have ended his bargain with Novinia at any time. He chose to stay. He must have found some joy in it. And Novinia... She broke the laws of God that bind this community together. She has also borne her punishment. The church asks for no penance as terrible as the one she imposed on herself. And if you're inclined to think that she might deserve some petty cruelty at your hands, keep this in mind. She suffered everything, did all this for one purpose— to keep the piggies from killing Libo. The words left ashes in their hearts. Oliado stood and walked to his mother, knelt by her, put an arm around her shoulder. Ella sat beside her, but she was folded to the ground, weeping. Kara came and stood in front of her mother, staring at her with awe, and Grego buried his face in Novinia's lap and wept. Those who were near enough could hear him crying, Todo papai e morto, non tenu nem papai. All my papas are dead. I don't have any papa. Wanda stood in the mouth of the alley where she had gone with her mother just before the speaking ended. She looked for Miro, but he was already gone. 
Ender stood behind the platform, looking at Novinia's family, wishing he could do something to ease their pain. There was always pain after a speaking, because a speaker for the dead did nothing to soften the truth, but only rarely had people lived such lives of deceit as Marcaun, Libo, and Novinia. Rarely were there so many shocks, so many bits of information that forced people to revise their conception of the people that they knew, the people that they loved. Ender knew from the faces that looked up at him as he spoke that he had caused great pain today. He had felt it all himself, as if they had passed their suffering to him. Rusinia had been most surprised, but Ender knew she was not worst injured. That distinction belonged to Miro and Wanda, who had thought they knew what the future would bring them. But Ender had also felt the pain that people felt before, and he knew that today's new wounds would heal much faster than the old ones ever would have done. Novinia might not recognize it, but Ender had stripped from her a burden that was much too heavy for her to bear any longer. Speaker, said Mayor Boschinia. Mayor, said Ender. He didn't like talking to people after a speaking, but he was used to the fact that someone always insisted on talking to him. He forced a smile. There were many more people here than I expected. A momentary thing for most of them, said Boschinia. They'll forget it by morning. Ender was annoyed that she was trivializing it. Only if something monumental happens in the night, he said. Yes, well, that has been arranged. Only then did Ender realize that she was extremely upset, barely under control at all. He took her by the elbow and then cast an arm over her shoulder. She leaned gratefully. Speaker, I came to apologize. Your starship has been commandeered by Starways Congress. It has nothing to do with you. A crime was committed here, a crime so terrible that the criminals must be taken to the nearest world, Trondheim, for trial and punishment. Your ship. Ender reflected for a moment. Miro and Wanda. She turned her head, looked at him sharply. You are not surprised. I also won't let them go. Boschinia pulled herself away from him. Won't let them? I have some idea what they're charged with. You've been here four days, and you already know something that even I never suspected. Sometimes the government is the last to know. Let me tell you why you will let them go. Why we'll all let them go to stand trial. Because Congress has stripped our files. The computer memory is empty except for the most rudimentary programs that control our power supply, our water, our sewer. Tomorrow no work can be done because we haven't enough power to run any of the factories, to work in the mines, to power the tractors. I have been removed from office. I am now nothing more than the deputy chief of police to see that the directives of the Lusitanian Evacuation Committee are carried out. Evacuation. The colony's license has been revoked. They are sending starships to take us all away. Every sign of human habitation here is to be removed, even the gravestones that mark our dead. Ender tried to measure her response. He had not thought Boschinia was the kind who would bow to mindless authority. Do you intend to submit to this? The power and water supplies are controlled by Ansible. They also control the fence. They can shut us in here without power or water or sewers, and we can't get out. Once Miro and Wanda are aboard your starship, headed for Trondheim, they say that some of the restrictions will be relaxed. She sighed. Oh, speaker, I'm afraid 
This isn't a good time to be a tourist in Lusitania. I'm not a tourist. He didn't bother telling her his suspicion that it might not be pure coincidence, Congress noticing the questionable activities when Ender happened to be there. Were you able to save any of your files? Boskinia sighed. By imposing on you, I'm afraid. I noticed that all your files were maintained by Ansible, off-world. We sent our most crucial files as messages to you. Ender laughed. <laughs> Good. That's right. That was well done. It doesn't matter. We can't get them back. Or, well, yes we can, but they'll notice it at once, and then you'll be in just as much trouble as the rest of us, and they'll wipe out everything then. Unless you sever the Ansible connection immediately after copying all my files to local memory. Then we really would be in rebellion. And for what? For the chance to make Lusitania the best and most important of the Hundred Worlds. Boskinia laughed. I think they'll regard us as important, but treason is hardly the way to be known as the best. Please, don't do anything. Don't arrest Miro and Wanda. Wait for an hour and let me meet with you and anyone else who needs to be in on the decision. The decision whether or not to rebel? I can't think why you should be in on that decision, Speaker. You'll understand at the meeting. Please, this place is too important for the chance to be missed. The chance for what? To undo what Ender did in the Xenocide 3,000 years ago. Boskinia gave him a sharp-eyed look. And here I thought you had just proved yourself to be nothing but a gossip monger. She might have been joking, or she might not. If you think that what I just did was gossip-mongering, you're too stupid to lead this community in anything. He smiled. Boskinia spread her hands and shrugged. Pois a, she said. Of course. What else? Will you have the meeting? I'll call it in the bishop's chambers. Ender winced. The bishop won't meet anywhere else, she said, and no decision to rebel will mean a thing if he doesn't agree to it. Boskinia laid her hand on his chest. He may not even let you into the cathedral. You are the infidel. But you'll try. I'll try because of what you did tonight. Only a wise man could see my people so clearly in so short a time. Only a ruthless one would say it all out loud. Your virtue and your flaw, we need them both. Boskinia turned and hurried away. Ender knew that she did not, in her inmost heart, want to comply with Starway's Congress. It had been too sudden, too severe. They had preempted her authority as if she were guilty of a crime. To give in smacked of confession, and she knew she had done nothing wrong. She wanted to resist, wanted to find some plausible way to slap back at Congress and tell them to wait, to be calm, or if necessary, to tell them to drop dead. But she wasn't a fool. She wouldn't do anything to resist them unless she knew it would work and knew it would benefit her people. She was a good governor, Ender knew. She would gladly sacrifice her pride, her reputation, her future for her people's sake. He was alone in the praza. Everyone had gone while Boskinia talked to him. Ender felt as an old soldier must feel walking over placid fields at the sight of a long-ago battle, hearing the echoes of the carnage in the breeze across the rustling grass. Don't let them sever the Ansible connection. The voice in his ear startled him, but he knew it at once. Jane, he said, I can make them think you've cut off your Ansible, but if you really do it, then I won't be able to help you. Jane, he said, you did this, didn't you? 
Why else would they notice what Lebo and Miro and Wanda have been doing if you didn't call it to their attention? She didn't answer. Jane, I'm sorry that I cut you off. I'll never... He knew, she knew what he would say. He didn't have to finish sentences with her. But she didn't answer. I'll never turn off the... What good did it do to finish sentences that he knew she understood? She hadn't forgiven him yet, that was all, or she would already be answering, telling him to stop wasting her time, yet he couldn't keep himself from trying one more time. I missed you, Jane. I really missed you. Still, she didn't answer. She had said what she had to say to keep the Ansible connection alive, and that was all. For now, Ender didn't mind waiting. It was enough to know that she was still there, listening. He wasn't alone. Ender was surprised to find tears on his cheeks. Tears of relief, he decided. Catharsis, a speaking, a crisis, people's lives in tatters, the future of the colony in doubt. And I cry in relief because an overblown computer program is speaking to me again. Ella was waiting for him in his little house. Her eyes were red from crying. Hello, she said. Did I do what you wanted? he asked. I never guessed, she said. He wasn't our father. I should have known. I can't think how you could have. What have I done? Calling you here to speak my father's... Accounts, death. She began weeping again. Mother's secrets. I thought I knew what they were. I thought it was just her files. I thought she hated Lebo. All I did was open the windows and let in some air. Tell that to Miro and Wanda. Think a moment, Ella. They would have found out eventually. The cruel thing was that they didn't know for so many years. Now that they have the truth, they can find their own way out. Like Mother did. Only this time even worse than adultery. Ender touched her hair, smoothed it. She accepted his touch, his consolation. He couldn't remember if his father or mother had ever touched him with such a gesture. They must have. How else would he have learned it? Ella, will you help me? Help you what? You've done your work, haven't you? This has nothing to do with speaking for the dead. I have to know within the hour how the descolada works. You'll have to ask Mother. She's the one who knows. I don't think she'd be glad to see me tonight. I'm supposed to ask her? Good evening, Mama. You've just been revealed to all of Milagre as an adulteress who's been lying to your children all our lives. So if you wouldn't mind, I'd like to ask you a couple of science questions. Ella, it's a matter of survival for Lusitania, not to mention your brother Miro. He reached over and turned to the terminal. Log on, he said. She was puzzled, but she did it. The computer wouldn't recognize her name. I've been taken off. She looked at him in alarm. Why? It's not just you, it's everybody. It isn't the breakdown, she said. Somebody stripped out the logon file. Starway's Congress stripped all the local computer memory. Everything's gone. We're regarded as being in a state of rebellion. Miro and Wanda are going to be arrested and sent to Trondheim for trial. Unless I can persuade the bishop and Boschina to launch a real rebellion. Do you understand? If your mother doesn't tell you what I need to know, Miro and Wanda will both be sent 22 light years away. The penalty for treason is death. But even going to the trial is as bad as life imprisonment. We'll all be dead or very, very old before they get back. Ella looked blankly at the wall. What do you need to know? 
I need to know what the committee will find when they open up her files about how the Descolada works. Yes, said Ella. For Miro's sake, she'll do it. She looked at him defiantly. She does love us, you know. For one of her children, she'd talk to you herself. Good, said Ander. It would be better if she came herself to the bishop's chambers in an hour. Yes, said Ella. For a moment she sat still. Then a synapse connected somewhere, and she stood up and hurried toward the door. She stopped. She came back, embraced him, kissed him on the cheek. I'm glad you told it all, she said. I'm glad to know it. He kissed her forehead and sent her on her way. When the door closed behind her, he sat down on his bed, then lay down and stared at the ceiling. He thought of Novinia, tried to imagine what she was feeling now. No matter how terrible it is, Novinia, your daughter is hurrying home to you right now, sure that despite the pain and humiliation you're going through, you'll forget yourself completely and do whatever it takes to save your son. I would trade you all your suffering, Novinia, for one child who trusted me like that. Chapter 16 The Fence A great rabbi stands teaching in the marketplace. It happens that a husband finds proof that morning of his wife's adultery, and a mob carries her to the marketplace to stone her to death. There is a familiar version of this story, but a friend of mine, a speaker for the dead, has told me of two other rabbis that faced the same situation. Those are the ones I'm going to tell you. The rabbi walks forward and stands beside the woman. Out of respect for him, the mob forbears and waits with the stones heavy in their hands. Is there anyone here, he says to them, who has not desired another man's wife, another woman's husband? They murmur and say, we all know the desire. But rabbi, none of us has acted on it. The rabbi says, then kneel down and give thanks that God made you strong. He takes the woman by the hand and leads her out of the market. Just before he lets her go, he whispers to her, Tell the Lord Magistrate who saved his mistress. Then he'll know I am his loyal servant. So the woman lives because the community is too corrupt to protect itself from disorder. Another rabbi, another city. He goes to her and stops the mob, as in the other story, and says, Which of you is without sin? Let him cast the first stone. The people are abashed, and they forget their unity of purpose in the memory of their own individual sins. Someday they think, I may be like this woman, and I'll hope for forgiveness and another chance. I should treat her the way I wish to be treated. As they open their hands and let the stones fall to the ground, the rabbi picks up one of the fallen stones, lifts it high over the woman's head, and throws it straight down with all his might. It crushes her skull and dashes her brains onto the cobblestones. Nor am I without sin, he says to the people. But if we allow only perfect people to enforce the law, the law will soon be dead, and our city with it. So the woman died because her community was too rigid to endure her deviance. The famous version of this story is noteworthy because it is so startlingly rare in our experience. Most communities lurch between decay and rigor mortis, and when they veer too far, 
they die. Only one rabbi dared to expect of us such a perfect balance that we could preserve the law and still forgive the deviation. So, of course, we killed him. San Angelo, Letters to an Incipient Heretic Translated Amai a Tudo Mundo para que Deus vos ame Cristão 103, 72, 54, 2 Minha irmão, my sister. The words kept running through Miro's head until he didn't hear them anymore. They were part of the background. A Wanda e minha irmão. She's my sister. His feet carried him by habit from the praça to the playing fields and over the saddle of the hill. The crown of the higher peak held the cathedral and the monastery, which always loomed over the Zenador's station, as if they were a fortress keeping watch over the gate. Did Libo walk this way as he went to meet my mother? Did they meet in the xenobiologist's station? Or was it more discreet, rutting in the grass like hogs on the fazendas? He stood at the door of the Zenador station and tried to think of some reason to go inside. Nothing to do there. Hadn't written a report on what happened today, but he didn't know how to write it anyway. Magical powers, that's what it was. The piggies sing to the trees, and the trees split themselves into kindling. Much better than carpentry. The aboriginals are a good deal more sophisticated than previously supposed. Multiple uses for everything. Each tree is at once a totem, a grave marker, and a small lumber mill. Sister, there's something I have to do, but I can't remember. The piggies have the most sensible plan. Live as brothers only, and never mind the women. Would have been better for you, Libo, and that's the truth. No, I should call you Papai, not Libo. Too bad Mother never told you, or you could have dandled me on your knee. Both your eldest children, Wanda on one knee and Miro on the other. Aren't we proud of our two children, born the same year, only two months apart? What a busy fellow Papai was then, sneaking along the fence to tup Mamai in her own backyard. Everyone felt sorry for you because you had nothing but daughters, no one to carry on the family name. Their sympathy was wasted. You were brimming over with sons, and I have far more sisters than I ever thought. One more sister than I wanted. He stood at the gate, looking up toward the woods atop the Piggy's Hill. There is no scientific purpose to be served by visiting at night, so I guess I'll serve an unscientific purposelessness and see if they have room for another brother in the tribe. I'm probably too big for a bed space in the log house, so I'll sleep outside, and I won't be much for climbing trees, but I do know a thing or two about technology, and I don't feel any particular inhibitions now about telling you anything you want to know. He laid his right hand on the identification box and reached out his left to pull the gate. For a split second, he didn't realize what was happening. Then his hand felt like it was on fire, like it was being cut off with a rusty saw. He shouted and pulled his left hand away from the gate. Never, since the gate was built, had it stayed hot after the box was touched by the Zenador's hand. Marcos Vladimir Hibera von Hesse? Your passage through the fence has been revoked by order of the Lusitanian Evacuation Committee. Never since the gate was built had the voice challenged the Zenador. It took a moment before Miro understood what it was saying. You and Wanda Kenyatta Figuera Mukumbi will present yourselves to Deputy Chief of Police Faria Lima Maria Doboski, who will arrest you in the name of Starways Congress 
and present you on Trondheim for trial. For a moment he was light-headed, and his stomach felt heavy and sick. They know. Tonight of all nights, everything over. Lose Wanda, lose the piggies, lose my work. All gone. Arrest. Trondheim, where the speaker came from. Twenty-two years in transit. Everybody gone except Wanda. The only one left. And she's my sister. His hand flashed out again to pull at the gate. Again, the excruciating pain shot through his arm. The pain nerves all alerted, all afire at once. I can't just disappear. They'll seal the gate to everyone. Nobody will go to the piggies. Nobody will tell them. The piggies will wait for us to come, and no one will ever come out of the gate again. Not me, not Wanda, not the speaker. Nobody, and no explanation. Evacuation committee. They'll evacuate us and wipe out every trace of our being here. That much is in the rules. But there's more, isn't there? What did they see? How did they find out? Did the speaker tell them? He's so addicted to truth. I have to explain to the piggies why we won't be coming back. I have to tell them. A piggy always watched them, followed them from the moment they entered the forest. Could a piggy be watching now? Mito waved his hand. It was too dark, though. They couldn't possibly see him. Or perhaps they could. No one knew how good the piggy's vision was at night. Whether they saw him or not, they didn't come. And soon it would be too late. If the Framlings were watching the gate, they had no doubt already notified Boschina, and she'd be on her way, zipping over the grass. She would be oh so reluctant to arrest him, but she would do her job, and never mind arguing with her about whether it was good for humans or piggies, either one, to maintain this foolish separation. She wasn't the sort to question the law. She just did what she was told. And he'd surrender. There was no reason to fight. Where could he hide inside the fence? Out among the cabra herds? But before he gave up, he'd tell the piggies. He had to tell them. So he walked along the fence, away from the gate, toward the open grassland directly down the hill from the cathedral, where no one lived near enough to hear his voice. As he walked, he called. Not words, but a high hooting sound, a cry that he and Wanda used to call each other's attention when they were separated among the piggies. They'd hear it. They had to hear it. They had to come to him because he couldn't possibly pass the fence. So come, human, leaf-eater, mandashuva, arrow, cups, calendar, anyone, everyone, come and let me tell you that I cannot tell you any more. King sat miserably on a stool in the bishop's office. Estefan, the bishop said quietly, there'll be a meeting here in a few minutes, but I want to talk to you a minute first. Nothing to talk about, said King. You warned us, and it happened. He's the devil. Estevan, we'll talk for a minute, and then you'll go home and sleep. Never going back there. The master ate with worse sinners than your mother and forgave them. Are you better than he? None of the adulteresses he forgave was his mother. Not everyone's mother can be the blessed virgin. Are you on his side, then? Has the church made way here for the speakers for the dead? Should we tear down the cathedral and use the stones to make an amphitheater where all our dead can be slandered before we lay them in the ground? A whisper. I am your bishop, Estevan. 
the vicar of Christ on this planet, and you will speak to me with the respect you owe to my office. King stood there, furious, unspeaking. I think it would have been better if the speaker had not told these stories publicly. Some things are better learned in privacy, in quiet, so that we need not deal with shocks while an audience watches us. That is why we use the confessional, to shield us from public shame while we wrestle with our private sins. But be fair, Estevan. The speaker may have told the stories, but the stories were all true. Eh? Eh? Now, Estevan, let us think. Before today, did you love your mother? Yes. And this mother that you loved, had she already committed adultery ten thousand times? I suspect she was not so libidinous as that, but you tell me that you loved her, though she was an adulteress. Isn't she the same person tonight? Has she changed between yesterday and today, or is it only you who have changed? What she was yesterday was a lie. Do you mean that because she was ashamed to tell her children that she was an adulteress, she must also have been lying when she cared for you all the years you were growing up, when she trusted you, when she taught you? She was not exactly a nurturing mother. If she had come to the confessional and won forgiveness for her adultery, then she would never have had to tell you at all. You would have gone to your grave not knowing. It would not have been a lie. Because she would have been forgiven, she would not have been an adulteress. Admit the truth, Estevan. You're not angry with her adultery. You're angry because you embarrassed yourself in front of the whole city by trying to defend her. You make me seem like a fool. No one thinks you're a fool. Everyone thinks you're a loyal son, but now. If you're to be a true follower of the Master, you will forgive her and let her see that you love her more than ever, because now you understand her suffering. The bishop glanced toward the door. I have a meeting here now, Estevan. Please, go into my inner chamber and pray to the Madalena to forgive you for your unforgiving heart. Looking more miserable than angry, King passed through the curtain behind the bishop's desk. The bishop's secretary opened the other door and let the speaker for the dead into the chamber. The bishop did not rise. To his surprise, the speaker knelt and bowed his head. It was an act that Catholics did only in a public presentation to the bishop, and Peregrino could not think what the speaker meant by this. Yet the man knelt there, waiting. And so the bishop arose from his chair and walked to him and held out his ring to be kissed. Even then the speaker waited until finally Peregrino said, I bless you, my son, even though I am not sure whether you mock me with this obeisance. Head still bowed, the speaker said, There's no mockery in me. Then he looked up at Peregrino. My father was a Catholic, he pretended not to be for the sake of convenience, but he never forgave himself for his faithlessness. You were baptized. My sister told me that, yes. Father baptized me shortly after birth. 
My mother was a Protestant of a faith that deplored infant baptism, so they had a quarrel about it. The bishop held out his hand to lift the speaker to his feet. The speaker chuckled. <laughs> Imagine a closet Catholic and a lapsed Mormon quarreling over religious procedures that they both claimed not to believe in. Peregrino was skeptical. It was too elegant a gesture for the speaker to turn out to be a Catholic. I thought, said the bishop, that you speakers for the dead renounced all religions before taking up your, shall we say, vocation. I don't know what the others do. I don't think there are any rules about it, certainly. There weren't when I became a speaker. Bishop Peregrino knew that speakers were not supposed to lie, but this one certainly seemed to be evasive. Speaker Andrew, there isn't a place in all the hundred worlds where a Catholic has to conceal his faith, and there hasn't been for three thousand years. That was the great blessing of space travel, that it removed the terrible population restrictions on an overcrowded earth. Are you telling me that your father lived on Earth 3,000 years ago? I'm telling you that my father saw to it I was baptized a Catholic, and for his sake I did what he never could do in his life. It was for him that I knelt before a bishop and received his blessing. But it was you I blessed, and you are still dodging my question, which implies that my inference about your father's time of life is true, but you don't want to discuss it. Dom Pristown said that there was more to you than met the eye. Good, said the speaker. I need the blessing more than my father since he's dead, and I have many more problems to deal with. Please, sit down. The speaker chose a stool near the far wall. The bishop sat in his massive chair behind his desk. I wish you hadn't spoken today. It came at an inconvenient time. I had no warning that Congress would do this, but you knew that Miro and Wanda had violated the law. Boskinia told me. I found out only a few hours before the speaking. Thank you for not arresting them yet. That's a civil matter. The bishop brushed it aside. But they both knew that if he had insisted, Boskinia would have had to obey her orders and arrest them regardless of the speaker's request. Your speaking has caused a great deal of distress. More than usual, I'm afraid. So, is your responsibility over? Do you inflict the wounds and leave it to others to heal them? Not wounds, Bishop Peregrino. Surgery. And if I can help to heal the pain afterwards, then yes, I stay and help. I have no anesthesia, but I do try for antisepsis. You should have been a priest, you know. Younger sons used to have only two choices, the priesthood or the military. My parents chose the latter for me. A younger son. Yet you had a sister and you lived in a time when population controls forbade parents to have more than two children, unless the government gave special permission. They called such a child uh, a third, yes? You know your history? Were you born on Earth before Starflight? What concerns us, Bishop Peregrino, is the future of Lusitania, not the biography of a speaker for the dead who is plainly only 35 years old. 
the future of Lusitania is my concern, Speaker Andrew, not yours. The future of the humans on Lusitania is your concern, Bishop. I'm concerned with the Pecaninos as well. Let's not compete to see whose concern is greater. The secretary opened the door again, and Boschinia, Dom Cristan, and Dona Cristan came in. Boschinia glanced back and forth between the bishop and the speaker. There's no blood on the floor, if that's what you're looking for, said the bishop. I was just estimating the temperature, said Boschinia. The warmth of mutual respect, I think, said the speaker, not the heat of anger or the ice of hate. A speaker is a Catholic by baptism, if not by belief, said the bishop. I blessed him, and it seemed to have made him docile. I've always been respectful of authority, said the speaker. You were the one who threatened us with an inquisitor, the bishop reminded him with a smile. The speaker's smile was just as chilly. And you're the one who told the people I was Satan, and they shouldn't talk to me. While the bishop and the speaker grinned at each other, the others laughed nervously, sat down, waited. It's your meeting, speaker, said Boschinia. Forgive me, said the speaker, there's someone else invited. It'll make things much simpler if we wait a few more minutes for her to come. Ella found her mother outside the house, not far from the fence. A light breeze that barely rustled the capim had caught her hair and tossed it lightly. It took a moment for Ella to realize why this was so startling. Her mother had not worn her hair down in many years. It looked strangely free, all the more so because Ella could see how it curled and bent where it had been so long forced into a bun. It was then that she knew that the speaker was right. Mother would listen to his invitation. Whatever shame or pain tonight's speaking might have caused her, it led her now to stand out in the open, in the dusk just after sunset, looking toward the piggy's hill. Or perhaps she was looking at the fence, perhaps remembering a man who met her here or somewhere else in the capim, so that unobserved they could love each other, always in hiding, always in secret. Mother is glad, thought Ella, to have it known that Lebo was her real husband, that Lebo is my true father. Mother is glad, and so am I. Mother did not turn to look at her, though she surely could hear Ella's approach through the noisy grass. Ella stopped a few steps away. Mother, she said. Not a herd of cabra, then, said Mother. You're so noisy, Ella. The speaker wants your help. Does he? Ella explained what the speaker had told her. Mother did not turn around. When Ella was finished, Mother waited a moment and then turned to walk over the shoulder of the hill. Ella ran after her, caught up with her. Mother, said Ella, Mother, are you going to tell him about the Descolada? Yes. Why now, after all these years, why wouldn't you tell me? Because you did better work on your own without my help. You know what I was doing? You're my apprentice. I have complete access to your files without leaving any footprints. What kind of master would I be if I didn't watch your work? But I also read the files you hid under Quara's name. You've never been a mother, so you didn't know that all the file activities of a child under 12 are reported to the parents every week. 
Quaro is doing some remarkable research. I'm glad you're coming with me. When I tell the speaker, I'll be telling you too. You're going the wrong way, said Ella. Mother stopped. Isn't the speaker's house near the plaza? The meeting is in the bishop's chambers. For the first time, Mother faced Ella directly. What are you and the speaker trying to do to me? We're trying to save Miro, said Ella. In Lusitania Colony, if we can. Taking me to the spider's lair. The bishop has to be on our side, or our side. So when you say we, you mean you and the speaker, is that it? Do you think I haven't noticed that? All my children, one by one, he seduced you all. He hasn't seduced anybody. He seduced you with his way of knowing just what you want to hear, of he's no flatterer, said Ella. He doesn't tell us what we want. He tells us what we know is true. He didn't win our affection. Mother, he won our trust. Whatever he gets from you, you never gave it to me. We wanted to. Ella did not bend this time before her mother's piercing, demanding glare. It was her mother, instead, who bent, who looked away, and then looked back with tears in her eyes. I wanted to tell you. Mother wasn't talking about the files. When I saw how you hated him, I wanted to say, he's not your father. Your father is a good, kind man who didn't have the courage to tell us himself. Rage came into Mother's eyes. He wanted to. I wouldn't let him. I'll tell you something, Mother. I loved Lebo the way everybody in Malagra loved him. But he was willing to be a hypocrite, and so were you. And without anybody even guessing, the poison of your lies hurt us all. I don't blame you, Mother, or him, but I thank God for the speaker. He was willing to tell us the truth, and it set us free. It's easy to tell the truth, said Mother softly, when you don't love anybody. Is that what you think? said Ella. I think I know something, Mother. I think you can't possibly know the truth about somebody unless you love them. I think the speaker loved Father. Marcaun, I mean. I think he understood him and loved him before he spoke. Mother didn't answer because she knew that it was true. And I know he loves Grego and Quara and Oriado and Miro, and even King, and me. I know he loves me. And when he shows me that he loves me, I know it's true because he never lies to anybody. Tears came out of Mother's eyes and drifted down her cheeks. I have lied to you and everybody else, Mother said. Her voice sounded weak and strained. But you have to believe me anyway. When I tell you that I love you, Ella embraced her mother, and for the first time in years, she felt warmth in her mother's response, because the lies between them now were gone. The speaker had erased the barrier, and there was no reason to be tentative and cautious anymore. You're thinking about that damnable speaker even now, aren't you? whispered her mother. So are you, Ella answered. Both their bodies shook with mother's laugh. 
Yes. Then she stopped laughing and pulled away, looked Ella in the eyes. Will he always come between us? Yes, said Ella. Like a bridge, he'll come between us, not a wall. Miro saw the piggies when they were halfway down the hillside toward the fence. They were so silent in the forest, but the piggies had no great skill in moving through the copping. It rustled loudly as they ran. Or perhaps in coming to answer Miro's call, they felt no need to conceal themselves. As they came nearer, Miro recognized them. Arrow, human, mandashuva, leaf-eater, cups. He did not call out to them, nor did they speak when they arrived. Instead, they stood behind the fence opposite him and regarded him silently. No Xenador had ever called the piggies to the fence before. By their stillness, they showed their anxiety. I can't come to you anymore, said Miro. They waited for his explanation. The Framlings found out about us, breaking the law. They sealed the gate. Leaf Eater touched his chin. Do you know what it was the Framlings saw? Miro laughed bitterly. What didn't they see? Only one Framling ever came with us. No, said Human. The Hive Queen says it wasn't the speaker. The Hive Queen says they saw it from the sky. The satellites? What could they see from the sky? Maybe the hunt, said Arrow. Maybe the shearing of the cabra, said Leaf Eater. Maybe the fields of Amaranth, said Cups. All of those, said Human. And maybe they saw that the wives had let 320 children be born since the first Amaranth harvest. 320, said Mandashuva. They saw that food would be plenty, said Arrow. Now we're sure to win the next war. Our enemies will be planted in huge new forests all over the plain, and the wives will put mother trees in every one of them. Miro felt sick. Is this what all their work and sacrifice was for? To give some transient advantage to one tribe of piggies? Almost, he said, Lebo didn't die so you could conquer the world. But his training took over, and he asked a noncommittal question. Where are all these new children? None of the little brothers come to us, explained Human. We have too much to do, learning from you and teaching all the other brother houses. We can't be training little brothers. Then proudly, he added, Of the three hundred, fully half are children of my father, Ruter. Mandashuva nodded gravely. The wives have great respect for what you have taught us, and they have great hope in the speaker for the dead. But what you tell us now, this is very bad. If the Framlings hate us, what will we do? I don't know, said Miro. For the moment, his mind was racing to try to cope with all the information they had just told him. 320 new babies, a population explosion, and Ruter somehow the father of half of them. Before today, Miro would have dismissed the statement of Ruter's fatherhood as part of the piggy's totemic belief system. But having seen a tree uproot itself and fall apart in response to singing, he was prepared to question all his old assumptions. Yet what good did it do to learn anything now? They'd never let him report again. He couldn't follow up. He'd be aboard a starship for the next quarter century while someone else did all his work, or worse, no one else. Don't be unhappy, said Human. You'll see. The Speaker for the Dead will make it all work out well. The Speaker. Yes, he'll make everything work out fine, the way he did for me and Wanda, my sister. 
The hive queen says he'll teach the framlings to love us. Teach the framlings, said Miro. He'd better do it quickly, then. It's too late for him to save me and Wanda. They're arresting us and taking us off planet. To the stars? asked Human, hopefully. Yes, to the stars, to stand trial, to be punished for helping you. It'll take us 22 years to get there, and they'll never let us come back. The piggies took a moment to absorb this information. Fine, thought Miro. Let them wonder how the speaker is going to solve everything for them. I trusted in the speaker, too, and it didn't do much for me. The piggies conferred together. Human emerged from the group and came closer to the fence. We'll hide you. They'll never find you in the forest, said Mandashuva. They have machines that can track me by my smell, said Miro. Ah, but doesn't the law forbid them to show us their machines, asked Human. Miro shook his head. It doesn't matter. The gate is sealed to me. I can't cross the fence. The piggies looked at each other. But you have Kapim right there, said Arrow. Miro looked stupidly at the grass. So what, he asked. Chew it, said Human. Why, asked Miro. We've seen humans chewing Kapim, said Leaf Eater. The other night on the hillside, we saw the speaker and some of the robe humans chewing Kapim. And many other times, said Mandashuva. Their impatience with him was frustrating. What does that have to do with the fence? Again, the piggies looked at each other. Finally, Mandashuva tore off a blade of kapim near the ground, folded it carefully into a thick wad, and put it in his mouth to chew it. He sat down after a while. The others began teasing him, poking him with their fingers, pinching him. He showed no sign of noticing. Finally, Human gave him a particularly vicious pinch, and when Mandashuva did not respond, they began saying, in male's language, Ready! Time to go! Now! Ready! Mandashuva stood up, a bit shaky for a moment. Then he ran at the fence and scrambled to the top, flipped over, and landed on all fours on the same side as Miro. Miro leaped to his feet and began to cry out just as Mandashuva reached the top. By the time he finished his cry, Mandashuva was standing up and dusting himself off. You can't do that, said Miro. It stimulates all the pain nerves in the body. The fence can't be crossed. Oh, said Mandashuva. From the other side of the fence, Human was rubbing his thighs together. He didn't know, he said. The humans don't know. It's an anesthetic, said Miro. It stops you from feeling pain. No, said Mandashuva. I feel the pain. Very bad pain. Worst pain in the world. Ruter says the fence is even worse than dying, said Human. Pain in all the places. But you don't care, said Miro. It's happening to your other self, said Mandashuva. It's happening to your animal self. But your tree self doesn't care. It makes you be your tree self. Then Miro remembered a detail that had been lost in the grotesquerie of Libo's death. The dead man's mouth had been filled with a wad of kapim. So had the mouth of every piggy that had died. Anesthetic. The death looked like hideous torture, but pain was not the purpose of it. They used an anesthetic. It had nothing to do with pain. So, said Mandashuva, chew the grass and come with us. We'll hide you. Wanda, said Miro. Oh, I'll go get her, said Mandashuva. You don't know where she lives. Yes, I do, said Mandashuva. We do this many times a year, said Human. We know where everybody lives. But no one has ever seen you, said Miro. 
We're very secret, said Mandashuva. Besides, nobody is looking for us. Miro imagined dozens of piggies creeping about in Milagre in the middle of the night. No guard was kept. Only a few people had business that took them out in the darkness. And the piggies were small, small enough to duck down in the kapim and disappear completely. No wonder they knew about metal and machines, despite all the rules designed to keep them from learning about them. No doubt they had seen the mines, had watched the shuttle land, had seen the kilns firing the bricks, had watched the fazenderos plowing and planting the human-specific amaranth. No wonder they had known what to ask for. How stupid of us to think we could cut them off from our culture. They kept far more secrets from us than we could possibly keep from them. So much for cultural superiority. Miro pulled up his own blade of kapim. No, said Mandashuva, taking the blade from his hands. You don't get the root part. If you take the root part, it doesn't do you any good. He threw away Miro's blade and tore off his own, about ten centimeters above the base. Then he folded it and handed it to Miro, who began to chew it. Mandashuva pinched and poked him. Don't worry about that, said Miro. Go get Wanda. They could arrest her any minute. Go. Now, go on. Mandashuva looked at the others and, seeing some invisible signal of consent, jogged off along the fence line toward the slopes of Villa Alta, where Wanda lived. Miro chewed a little more. He pinched himself. As the piggy said, he felt the pain, but he didn't care. All he cared about was that this was a way out, a way to stay on Lusitania, to stay, perhaps, with Wanda. Forget the rules, all the rules. They had no power over him once he left the human enclave and entered the piggy's forest. He would become a renegade, as they already accused him of being, and he and Wanda could leave behind all the insane rules of human behavior and live as they wanted to and raise a family of humans who had completely new values, learned from the piggies, from the forest life, something new in the hundred worlds, and Congress would be powerless to stop them. He ran at the fence and seized it with both hands. The pain was no less than before, but now he didn't care. He scrambled up to the top, but with each new handhold, the pain grew more intense, and he began to care. He began to care very much about the pain. He began to realize that the kapim had no anesthetic effect on him at all, but by this time he was already at the top of the fence. The pain was maddening. He couldn't think. Momentum carried him above the top, and as he balanced there, his head passed through the vertical field of the fence. All the pain possible to his body came to his brain at once, as if every part of him were on fire. The little ones watched in horror as their friend hung there atop the fence, his head and torso on one side, his hips and legs on the other. At once they cried out, reached for him, tried to pull him down. Since they had not chewed Kapim, they dared not touch the fence. Hearing their cries, Mandashuva ran back. Enough of the anesthetic remained in his body that he could climb up and push the heavy human body over the top. Miro landed with a bone-crushing thump on the ground, his arm still touching the fence. The piggies pulled him away. His face was frozen in a rictus of agony. Quick, shouted Leaf Eater, before he dies, we have to plant him. No, human answered, pushing Leaf Eater away from Miro's frozen body. We don't know if he's dying. The pain is just an illusion, you know that. He doesn't have a wound. The pain should go away. It isn't going away, said Arrow. Look at him. 
Miro's fists were clenched, his legs were doubled under him, and his spine and neck were arched backward. Though he was breathing in short, hard pants, his face seemed to grow even tighter with pain. Before he dies, said Leaf Eater, we have to give him root. Go get Wanda, said Human. He turned to face Mandashuva. Now, go get her and tell her Miro is dying. Tell her the gate is sealed and Miro is on this side of it and he's dying. Mandashuva took off at a run. The secretary opened the door, but not until he actually saw Novinia did Ender allow himself to feel relief. When he sent Ella for her, he was sure that she would come, but as they waited so many long minutes for her arrival, he began to doubt his understanding of her. There had been no need to doubt. She was the woman that he thought she was. He noticed that her hair was down and windblown, and for the first time since he came to Lusitania, Ender saw in her face a clear image of the girl who in her anguish had summoned him less than two weeks, more than twenty years ago. She looked tense, worried, but Ender knew her anxiety was because of her present situation coming into the bishop's own chambers so shortly after the disclosure of her transgressions. If Ella told her about the danger to Miro, that, too, might be part of her tension. All this was transient. Ender could see in her face, in the relaxation of her movement, in the steadiness of her gaze, that the end of her long deception was indeed the gift he had hoped, had believed it would be. I did not come to hurt you, Novinia, and I'm glad to see that my speaking has brought you better things than shame. Novinia stood for a moment looking at the bishop, not defiantly, but politely, with dignity. He responded the same way, quietly offering her a seat. Dom Cristan started to rise from his stool, but she shook her head, smiled, took another stool near the wall, near Ender. Ella came and stood behind and beside her mother, so she was also partly behind Ender, like a daughter standing between her parents, thought Ender. And then he thrust the thought away from him and refused to think of it any more. There were far more important matters at hand. I see, said Boschina, that you intend this meeting to be an interesting one. I think Congress decided that already, said Donna Crista. Your son is accused, Bishop Peregrino began, of crimes against... I know what he's accused of, said Novinia. I didn't know until tonight when Ella told me, but I'm not surprised. My daughter, Eleonora, has also been defying some rules her master set for her. Both of them have a higher allegiance to their own conscience than to the rules others set down for them. It's a failing if your object is to maintain order, but if your goal is to learn and adapt, it's a virtue. Your son isn't on trial here, said Don Cristan. I asked you to meet together, said Ender, because a decision must be made whether or not to comply with the orders given us by Starway's Congress. We don't have much choice, said Bishop Peregrino. There are many choices, said Ender, and many reasons for choosing. You already made one choice. When you found your files being stripped, you decided to try to save them, and you decided to trust them with me, a stranger. Your trust was not misplaced. I'll return your files to you whenever you ask, unread, unaltered. Thank you, said Donna Cristal. But we did that before we knew the gravity of the charge. They're going to evacuate us, said Dom Cristal. 
They control everything, said Bishop Peregrino. I already told him that, said Boschina. They don't control everything, said Ender. They only control you through the Ansible connection. We can't cut off the Ansible, said Bishop Peregrino. That is our only connection with the Vatican. I don't suggest cutting off the Ansible. I only tell you what I can do. And when I tell you this, I am trusting you the way you trusted me, because if you repeat this to anyone, the cost to me and to someone else whom I love and depend on would be immeasurable. He looked at each of them, and each, in turn, nodded acquiescence. I have a friend whose control over ansible communications among all the hundred worlds is complete and completely unsuspected. I'm the only one who knows what she can do, and she has told me that when I ask her to, she can make it seem to all the Framlings that we here on Lusitania have cut off our ansible connection. And yet we will have the ability to send guarded messages, if we want to, to the Vatican, to the offices of your order. We can read distant records, intercept distant communications. In short, we will have eyes and they will be blind. Cutting off the ansible, or even seeming to, would be an act of rebellion, of war. Boschina was saying it as harshly as possible, but Ender could see that the idea appealed to her though she was resisting it with all her might. I will say, though, that if we were insane enough to decide on war, what the speaker is offering us is a clear advantage. We'd need any advantage we could get if we were mad enough to rebel. We have nothing to gain by rebellion, said the bishop, and everything to lose. I grieve for the tragedy it would be to send Miro and Wanda to stand trial on another world, especially because they are so young, but the court will no doubt take that into account and treat them with mercy, and by complying with the orders of the committee, we will save this community much suffering. Don't you think that having to evacuate this world will also cause them suffering? asked Ender. Yes, yes, it will, but a law was broken and the penalty must be paid. What if the law was based on a misunderstanding and the penalty is far out of proportion to the sin? We can't be the judges of that, said the bishop. We are the judges of that. If we go along with congressional orders, then we're saying that the law is good and the punishment is just. And it may be that at the end of this meeting you'll decide exactly that, but there are some things you must know before you can make your decision. Some of those things I can tell you, and some of those things only Ella and Novinia can tell you. You shouldn't make your decision until you know all that we know. I'm always glad to know as much as possible, said the bishop. Of course the final decision is Boschina's, not mine. The final decision belongs to all of you together, the civil and religious and intellectual leadership of Lusitania. If any one of you decides against rebellion, rebellion is impossible. Without the church's support, Boschina can't lead. Without civil support, the church has no power. We have no power, said Dom Cristal. Only opinions. Every adult in Lusitania looks to you for wisdom and fair-mindedness. You forget a fourth power, said Bishop Peregrino. Yourself? I'm a Framling here. A most extraordinary Framling, said the bishop. In your four days here, you have captured the soul of this people in a way I feared and foretold. Now you counsel rebellion that could cost us everything. You are as dangerous as Satan. 
and yet here you are submitting to our authority as if you weren't free to get on the shuttle and leave here when the starship returns to Trondheim with our two young criminals aboard. I submit to your authority, said Ender, because I don't want to be a Framling here. I want to be your citizen, your student, your parishioner. As a speaker for the dead, asked the bishop, as Andrew Wigan, I have some other skills that might be useful, particularly if you rebel, and I have other work to do that can't be done if humans are taken from Lusitania. We don't doubt your sincerity, said the bishop, but you must forgive us if we are doubtful about casting in with a citizen who is something of a latecomer. Ender nodded. The bishop could not say more until he knew more. Let me tell you first what I know. Today, this afternoon, I went out into the forest with Miro and Wanda. You? You also broke the law! The bishop half rose from his chair. Boschina reached forward, gestured to settle the bishop's ire. The intrusion in our files began long before this afternoon. The congressional order couldn't possibly be related to his infraction. I broke the law, said Ender. "'because the piggies were asking for me, "'demanding, in fact, to see me. "'They had seen the shuttle land. "'They knew that I was here, "'and for good or ill they had read "'The Hive Queen and the Hegemon. "'They gave the piggies that book?' said the bishop. "'They also gave them the New Testament,' said Ender. "'But surely you won't be surprised to learn "'that the piggies found much in common "'between themselves and the Hive Queen. "'Let me tell you what the piggies said.' They begged me to convince all the hundred worlds to end the rules that keep them isolated here. You see, the piggies don't think of the fence the way we do. We see it as a way of protecting their culture from human influence and corruption. They see it as a way of keeping them from learning all the wonderful secrets that we know. They imagine our ships going from star to star, colonizing them, filling them up. And five or ten thousand years from now, when they finally learn all that we refuse to teach them, they'll emerge into space to find all the worlds filled up, no place for them at all. They think of our fence as a form of species murder. We will keep them on Lusitania like animals in a zoo, while we go out and take all the rest of the universe. That's nonsense, said Dom Cristan. That isn't our intention at all, isn't it? Ender retorted. Why are we so anxious to keep them from any influence from our culture? It isn't just in the interest of science. It isn't just good xenological procedure. Remember, please, that our discovery of the ansible, of starflight, of partial gravity control, even of the weapon we used to destroy the buggers, all of them came as a direct result of our contact with the buggers. We learned most of the technology from the machines they left behind from their first foray into Earth's star system. We were using those machines long before we understood them. Some of them, like the philotic bond, we don't even understand now. We are in space precisely because of the impact of a devastatingly superior culture. And yet, in only a few generations, we took their machines, surpassed them, and destroyed them. That's what our fence means. We're afraid the piggies will do the same to us. And they know that's what it means. They know it, and they hate it. We aren't afraid of them, said the bishop. They're savages, for heaven's sake. 
That's how we look to the buggers, too, said Ender. But to Pippo and Lebo and Wanda and Miro, the piggies have never looked like savages. They're different from us, yes, far more different than framlings. But they're still people. Ramen, not Varelse. So when Lebo saw that the piggies were in danger of starving, that they were preparing to go to war in order to cut down the population, he didn't act like a scientist. He didn't observe their war and take notes on the death and suffering. He acted like a Christian. He got experimental amaranth that Novinia had rejected for human use because it was too closely akin to Lusitanian biochemistry, and he taught the piggies how to plant it and harvest it and prepare it as food. I have no doubt that the rise in piggy population and the fields of amaranth are what the Starways Congress saw. Not a willful violation of the law, but an act of compassion and love. How can you call such disobedience a Christian act, said the bishop? What man of you is there when his son asks for bread will give him a stone? The devil can quote scripture to suit his own purpose, said the bishop. I'm not the devil, said Ender, and neither are the piggies. Their babies were dying of hunger, and Lebo gave them food and saved their lives. And look what they did to him. Yes, let's look what they did to him. They put him to death, exactly the way they put to death their own most honored citizens. Shouldn't that have told us something? It told us that they're dangerous and have no conscience, said the bishop. It told us that death means something completely different to them. If you really believed that someone was perfect in heart, Bishop, so righteous that to live another day could only cause them to be less perfect, then wouldn't it be a good thing for them if they were killed and taken directly into heaven? You mock us. You don't believe in heaven, but you do. What about the martyrs, Bishop Peregrino? Weren't they caught up joyfully into heaven? Of course they were, but the men who killed them were beasts. Murdering saints didn't sanctify them. It damned their murderers' souls to hell forever. But what if the dead don't go to heaven? What if the dead are transformed into a new life right before your eyes? What if, when a piggy dies, if they lay out his body just so, it takes root and turns into something else. What if it turns into a tree that lives fifty or a hundred or five hundred years more? What are you talking about? demanded the bishop. Are you telling us that the piggies somehow metamorphose from animal to plant? asked Dom Cristown. Basic biology suggests that this isn't likely. Oh, it's practically impossible, said Ender. That's why there are only a handful of species on Lusitania that survived the Descolada, because only a few of them were able to make the transformation. When the piggies kill one of their people, he is transformed into a tree, and the tree retains at least some of its intelligence. Because today I saw the piggies sing to a tree, and without a single tool touching it, the tree severed its own roots fell over and split itself into exactly the shapes and forms of wood and bark that the piggies needed. 
It wasn't a dream. Miro and Wanda and I all saw it with our own eyes and heard the song and touched the wood and prayed for the soul of the dead. What does this have to do with our decision? demanded Boschina. So the forests are made up of dead piggies. That's a matter for scientists. I'm telling you that when the piggies killed Pippo and Libo, they thought they were helping them transform into the next stage of their existence. They weren't beasts. They were ramen, giving the highest honor to the men who had served them so well. Another moral transformation, is that it? asked the bishop. Just as you did today in your speaking, making us see Marcos Hibera again and again, each time in a new light. Now you want us to think the piggies are noble. Very well, they're noble. But I won't rebel against Congress with all the suffering such a thing would cause, just so our scientists can teach the piggies how to make refrigerators. Please, said Novinia. They looked at her expectantly. You say that they stripped our files. They read them all? Yes, said Boschina. Then they know everything that I have in my files about the Descolada. Yes, said Boschina. Novinia folded her hands in her lap. There won't be any evacuation. I didn't think so, said Ender. That's why I asked Ella to bring you. Why won't there be an evacuation? asked Boschina. Because of the Descolada. Nonsense, said the bishop. Your parents found a cure for that. They didn't cure it, said Novinia. They controlled it. They stopped it from becoming active. That's right, said Boschina. That's why we put the additives in the water, the colador. Every human being on Lusitania, except perhaps the speaker who may not have caught it yet, is a carrier of the descolada. The additive isn't expensive, said the bishop, but perhaps they might isolate us. I, I can see that they might do that. There's nowhere isolated enough, said Novinia. The descolada is infinitely variable. It attacks any kind of genetic material. The additive can be given to humans, but can they give additives to every blade of grass, to every bird, to every fish, to every bit of plankton in the sea? They can all catch it, asked Boschina. I didn't know that. I didn't tell anybody, said Novinia. But I built the protection into every plant that I developed, the amaranth, the potatoes, everything. The challenge wasn't making the protein usable. The challenge was to get the organisms to produce their own descolada blockers. Boschina was appalled. So, anywhere we go, we can trigger the complete destruction of the biosphere. And you kept this a secret? asked Domkerstown. There was no need to tell it. No one had ever left Lusitania, and no one was planning to go. Novinia looked at her hands in her lap. Something in the information had caused the piggies to kill people. I kept it secret so no one else would know. But now, what Ella has learned over the last few years, and what the speaker has said tonight, now I know what it was that people learned. The descolada doesn't just split the genetic molecules and prevent them from reforming or duplicating. It also encourages them to bond with completely foreign genetic molecules. Ella did the work on this against my will. All the native life on Lusitania thrives in plant and animal pairs. The cabra with the capim, the water snakes with the grama, the sockflies with the reeds, 
the zingadora bird with the tropeco vines, and the piggies with the trees of the forest. You are saying that one becomes the other, Dom Cristown was at once fascinated and repelled. The piggies may be unique in that, in transforming from the corpse of a piggy into a tree, said Novinia. But perhaps the cabras become fertilized from the pollen of the capim. Perhaps the flies are hatched from the tassels of the river reeds. It should be studied. I should have been studying it all these years. And now they'll know this, asked Don Cristown, from your files? Not right away. But sometime in the next ten or twenty years, before any other framlings get here, they'll know, said Novinia. I am not a scientist, said the bishop. Everyone else seems to understand except me. What does this have to do with the evacuation? Boschina fidgeted with her hands. They can't take us off Lusitania, she said. Anywhere they took us, we'd carry the Descolada with us, and it would kill everything. There aren't enough xenobiologists in the hundred worlds to save even a single planet from devastation. By the time they get here, they'll know that we can't leave. Well then, said the bishop, that solves our problem. If we tell them now, they won't even send the fleet to evacuate us. No, said Ender. Bishop Peregrino, once they know what the Descolada will do, they'll see to it that no one leaves this planet, ever. The bishop scoffed. What? Do you think they'll blow up the planet? Come now, speaker. There are no more enders among the human race. The worst they might do is quarantine us here. In which case, said Don Cristown, why should we submit to their control at all? We could send them a message telling them about the Descolada, informing them that we will not leave the planet and they should not come here, and that's it. Boschina shook her head. Do you think that none of them will say, the Lusitanians, just by visiting another world, can destroy it? They have a starship. They have a known propensity for rebelliousness. They have the murderous piggies. Their existence is a threat. Who would say that? said the bishop. No one in the Vatican, said Ender, but Congress isn't in the business of saving souls. And maybe they'd be right, said the bishop. You said yourself that the piggies want starflight, and yet wherever they might go, they'll have this same effect. Even uninhabited worlds, isn't that right? What will they do? Endlessly duplicate this bleak landscape, forests of a single tree, prairies of a single grass, with only the cabra to graze it, and only the zingadora to fly above it? Maybe someday we could find a way to get the descolada under control, said Ella. We can't stake our future on such a thin chance, said the bishop. That's why we have to rebel, said Ender. Because Congress will think exactly that way, just as they did 3,000 years ago in the Xenocide. Everybody condemns the Xenocide because it destroyed an alien species that turned out to be harmless in its intentions. But as long as it seemed that the buggers were determined to destroy humankind, the leaders of humanity had no choice but to fight back with all their strength. We are presenting them with the same dilemma again. They're already afraid of the piggies, and once they understand the Descolada... All the pretense of trying to protect the piggies will be done with. For the sake of humanity's survival, they'll destroy us. Probably not the whole planet. As you said, there are no enders today. But they'll certainly obliterate Milagre and remove any trace of human contact, including killing all the piggies who know us. 
Then they'll set a watch over this planet to keep the piggies from ever emerging from their primitive state. If you knew what they know, wouldn't you do the same? A speaker for the dead says this, said Don Cristal. You were there, said the bishop. You were there the first time, weren't you, when the buggers were destroyed? Last time we had no way of talking to the buggers, no way of knowing they were Raman and not Varelze. This time we're here. We know that we won't go out and destroy other worlds. We know that we'll stay here on Lusitania until we can go out safely, the Descolada neutralized. This time, said Ender, we can keep the Raman alive so that whoever writes the piggy's story won't have to be a speaker for the dead. The secretary opened the door abruptly, and Wanda burst in. Bishop, she said. Mayor, you have to come. Novinia, what is it, said the bishop. Wanda, I have to arrest you, said Boschinia. Arrest me later, she said. It's Miro. He climbed over the fence. He can't do that, said Novinia. It might kill him. Then, in horror, she realized what she had said. Take me to him. Get Navio, said Dona Cristo. You don't understand, said Wanda. We can't get to him. He's on the other side of the fence. Then what can we do, asked Boschinia. Turn the fence off, said Wanda. Boschinia looked helplessly at the others. I can't do that. The committee controls that now, by Ansible. They'd never turn it off. Then Miro's as good as dead, said Wanda. No, said Novinia. Behind her, another figure came into the room. Small, fur-covered. None of them but Ender had ever before seen a piggy in the flesh, but they knew at once what the creature was. Excuse me, said the piggy. Does this mean we should plant him now? No one bothered to ask how the piggy got over the fence. They were too busy realizing what he meant by planting Miro. No, screamed Novinia. Mandachuva looked at her in surprise. No? I think, said Ender, that you shouldn't plant any more humans. Mandachuva stood absolutely still. What do you mean, said Wanda? You're making him upset. I expect he'll be more upset before this day is over, said Ender. Come, Wanda, take us to the fence where Miro is. What good will it do if we can't get over the fence, asked Boschinia. Call for Navio, said Ender. I'll go get him, said Dona Cristan. You forget that no one can call anybody. I said, what good will it do, demanded Boschinia. I told you before, said Ender. If you decide to rebel, we can sever the Ansible connection, and then we can turn off the fence. Are you trying to use Miro's plight to force my hand, asked the bishop. Yes, said Ender. He's one of your flock, isn't he? So leave the ninety-nine, shepherd, and come with us to save the one that's lost. What's happening, said Mandachuva. You're leading us to the fence, said Ender. Hurry, please. They filed down the stairs from the bishop's chambers to the cathedral below. Ender could hear the bishop behind him grumbling about perverting scripture to serve private ends. They passed down the aisle of the cathedral, Mandachuva leading the way. Ender noticed that the bishop paused near the altar, watching the small furred creature as the humans trooped after him. Outside the cathedral, the bishop caught up with him. Tell me, speaker, he said, just as a matter of opinion, if the fence came down, if we rebelled against Starway's Congress, would all the rules about contact with the piggies be ended? I hope so, said Ender. I hope that there will be no more unnatural barriers between us and them. 
Then, said the bishop, we'd be able to teach the gospel of Jesus Christ to the little ones, wouldn't we? There'd be no rule against it. That's right, said Ender. They might not be converted, but there'd be no rule against trying. I have to think about this, said the bishop. But perhaps, my dear infidel, your rebellion will open the door to the conversion of a great nation. Perhaps God led you here after all. By the time the bishop, Dom Cristan, and Ender reached the fence, Mandachuva and the women had already been there for some time. Ender could tell by the way Ella was standing between her mother and the fence and the way Novinia was holding her hands out in front of her face that Novinia had already tried to climb over the fence to reach her son. She was crying now and shouting at him, Miro, Miro, how could you do this? How could you climb it? While Ella tried to talk to her to calm her. On the other side of the fence, four piggies stood watching, amazed. Wanda was trembling with fear for Miro's life, but she had enough presence of mind to tell Ender what she knew he could not see for himself. That's cups, and arrow, and human, and leaf-eater. Leaf-eater's trying to get the others to plant him. I think I know what that means, but we're all right. Human and Mandachuva have convinced them not to do it. But it still doesn't get us any closer, said Ender. Why did Miro do something so stupid? Mandachuva explained on the way here. The piggies chew kapim, and it has an anesthetic effect. They can climb the fence whenever they want. Apparently they've been doing it for years. They thought we didn't do it because we were so obedient to law. Now they know that kapim doesn't have the same effect on us. Ender walked to the fence. Human, he said. Human stepped forward. There's a chance that we can turn off the fence. But if we do it, we're at war with all the humans on every other world. Do you understand that? The humans of Lusitania and the piggies, together, at war against all the other humans. Oh, said Human. Will we win? asked Arrow. We might, said Ender, and we might not. Will you give us the hive queen? asked Human. First I have to meet with the wives, said Ender. The piggies stiffened. What are you talking about? asked the bishop. I have to meet with the wives, said Ender to the piggies, because we have to make a treaty, an agreement, a set of rules between us. Do you understand me? Humans can't live by your laws, and you can't live by ours. But if we're to live in peace, with no fence between us, and if I'm to let the hive queen live with you, and help you, and teach you, then you have to make us some promises, and keep them. Do you understand? I understand, said human. But you don't know what you were asking for to deal with the wives. They're not smart the way that the brothers are smart. They make all the decisions, don't they? Of course, said Human. They're the keepers of the mothers, aren't they? But I warn you, it's dangerous to speak to the wives, especially for you, because they honor you so much. If the fence comes down, I have to speak to the wives. If I can't speak to them, then the fence stays up and Miro dies and we'll have to obey the congressional order that all the humans of Lusitania must leave here. Ender did not tell them that the humans might well be killed. He always told the truth, but he didn't always tell it all. I'll take you to the wives, said Human. Leaf Eater walked up to him and ran his hand derisively across Human's belly. They name you right, he said. You are a human, not one of us. Leaf Eater started to run away, but Arrow and Cups held him. I'll take you, said Human. Now stop the fence and save Miro's life. Ender turned to the bishop. 
It's not my decision, said the bishop. It's Bosquinha's. My oath is to the Starways Congress, said Bosquinha. But I'll perjure myself this minute to save the lives of my people. I say the fence comes down, and we try to make the most of our rebellion. If we can preach to the piggies, said the bishop. I'll ask them when I meet with the wives, said Ender. I can't promise more than that. Bishop, cried Novinia. Pippo and Libo already died beyond the fence. Bring it down, said the bishop. I don't want to see this colony end with God's work here still untouched. He smiled grimly. But os venerados had better be made saints pretty soon. We'll need their help. Jane, murmured Ender. That's why I love you, said Jane. You can do anything as long as I set up the circumstances just right. Cut off the ansible and turn off the fence, please, said Ender. Done, she said. Ender ran for the fence, climbed over it. With the piggy's help, he lifted Miro to the top and let his rigid body drop into the waiting arms of the bishop, the mayor, Dom Cristal, and Novinia. Navio was jogging down the slope right behind Dona Cristal. Whatever they could do to help Miro would be done. Wanda was climbing the fence. Go back, said Ender. We've already got him over. If you're going to see the wives, said Wanda, I'm going with you. You need my help. Ender had no answer to that. She dropped down and came to Ender. Navio was kneeling by Miro's body. He climbed the fence, he said. There's nothing in the books for that. It isn't possible. Nobody can bear enough pain to get his head right through the field. Will he live? demanded Novinia. How should I know? said Navio, impatiently stripping away Miro's clothing and attaching censors to him. Nobody covered this in medical school. Ender noticed that the fence was shaking again. Ella was climbing over. I don't need your help, Ender said. It's about time somebody who knows something about xenobiology got to see what's going on, she retorted. Stay and look after your brother, said Wanda. Ella looked at her defiantly. He's your brother, too, she said. Now let's both see to it that if he dies, he didn't die for nothing. The three of them followed Human and the other piggies into the forest. Bosquinha and the bishop watched them go. When I woke up this morning, Bosquinha said, I didn't expect to be a rebel before I went to bed. Nor did I ever imagine that the speaker would be our ambassador to the piggies, said the bishop. The question is, said Dom Cristin, will we ever be forgiven for it? Do you think we're making a mistake? snapped the bishop. Oh, not at all, said Dom Cristin. I think we've taken a step toward something truly magnificent. But humankind almost never forgives true greatness. Fortunately, said the bishop, Humankind isn't the judge that matters. And now I intend to pray for this boy, since medical science has obviously reached the boundary of its competence. Chapter 17 The Wives Find out how word got out that the evacuation fleet is armed with the little doctor. That is highest priority. Then find out who this so-called Demosthenes is. Calling the evacuation fleet a second genocide is definitely a violation of the treason laws under the code, and if CSA can't find this voice and put a stop to it, 
I can't think of any good reason for CSA to continue to exist. In the meantime, continue your evaluation of the files retrieved from Lusitania. It's completely irrational for them to rebel just because we want to arrest two errant xenologers. There was nothing in the mayor's background to suggest this was possible. If there's a chance that there was a revolution, I want to find out who the leaders of that revolution might be. Piotr, I know you're doing your best. So am I. So is everybody. So are the people on Lusitania, probably. But my responsibility is the safety and integrity of the Hundred Worlds. I have a hundred times the responsibility of Peter the Hegemon and about a tenth of his power, not to mention the fact that I'm far from being the genius he was. No doubt you and everybody else would be happier if Peter were still available. I'm just afraid that by the time this thing is over, we may need another ender. Nobody wants genocide, but if it happens, I want to make sure it's the other guys that disappear. When it comes to war, human is human and alien is alien. All that ramen business goes up in smoke when you're talking about survival. Does that satisfy you? Do you believe me when I tell you that I'm not being soft? Now see to it you're not soft either. See to it you get me results. Fast. Now. Love and kisses. Bawa. Gobawa Ekimbo. Chairman, Xenocide Oversight Committee. To Pyotr Martinov, Director, Congressional Secret Agency. Memo 44, 1970, 5, 4, 2. Citation, Demosthenes, The Second Xenocide. 87, 1972, 1, 1, 1. Human led the way through the forest. The piggies scrambled easily up and down slopes across a stream through thick underbrush. Human, though, seemed to make a dance of it, running partway up certain trees, touching and speaking to others. The other piggies were much more restrained, only occasionally joining him in his antics. Only Mandachuva hung back with the human beings. Why does he do that? asked Ender quietly. Mandachuva was baffled for a moment. Wanda explained what Ender meant. Why does human climb the trees or touch them and sing? He sings to them about the third life, said Mandachuva. It's very bad manners for him to do that. He has always been selfish and stupid. Wanda looked at Ender in surprise, then back at Mandachuva. I thought everybody liked human, she said. Great honor, said Mandachuva. A wise one. Then Mandachuva poked Ender in the hip. But he's a fool in one thing. He thinks you'll do him honor. He thinks you'll take him to the third life. What's the third life? asked Ender. The gift that Pipo kept for himself, said Mandachuva. Then he walked faster, caught up with the other piggies. Did any of that make sense to you? Ender asked Wanda. I still can't get used to the way you ask them direct questions. I don't get much in the way of answers, do I? Mandachuva is angry, that's something. And he's angry at Pipo. That's another. The third life, a gift that Pipo kept for himself, it will all make sense. When? In twenty years? Or twenty minutes? That's what makes xenology so fun. Ella was touching the trees, too, and looking from time to time at the bushes. All the same species of tree. And the bushes, too, just alike. 
and that vine climbing most of the trees. Have you ever seen any other plant species here in the forest, Wanda? Not that I noticed. I never looked for that. The vine is called Merdona. The Masios seem to feed on it, and the piggies eat the Masios. The Merdona root, we taught the piggies how to make it edible before the amaranth, so they're eating lower on the food chain now. Look, said Ender. The piggies were all stopped, their backs to the humans, facing a clearing. In a moment, Ender, Wanda, and Ella caught up with them and looked over them into the moonlit glen. It was quite a large space, and the ground was beaten bare. Several log houses lined the edges of the clearing, but the middle was empty except for a single huge tree, the largest they had seen in the forest. The trunk seemed to be moving. It's crawling with Masios, said Wanda. Not Masios, said Human. Three hundred twenty, said Mandachuva. Little brothers, said Arrow. And little mothers, added Cups. And if you harm them, said Leaf Eater, we will kill you unplanted and knock down your tree. We won't harm them, said Ender. The piggies did not take a single step into the clearing. They waited and waited, until finally there was some movement near the largest of the log houses, almost directly opposite them. It was a piggy, but larger than any of the piggies they had seen before. A wife, murmured Mandachuva. What's her name? asked Ender. The piggies turned to him and stared. They don't tell us their names, said Leaf Eater. If they even have names, said Cups. Human reached up and drew Ender down to where he could whisper in his ear. We always call her Shouter, but never where a wife can hear. The female looked at them and then sang. Uh, there was no other way to describe the mellifluous flow of her voice, a sentence or two in wives' language. It's for you to go, said Mandachuva. Speaker, you. Alone, said Ender. I'd rather bring Wanda and Ella with me. Mandachuva spoke loudly in wives' language. It sounded like gargling compared to the beauty of the female's voice. Shouter answered, again singing only briefly. She says of course they can come, Mandachuva reported. She says they're females, aren't they? She's not very sophisticated about the differences between humans and little ones. One more thing, said Ender. At least one of you as an interpreter. Or can she speak Stark? Mandachuva relayed Ender's request. The answer was brief, and Mandachuva didn't like it. He refused to translate it. It was Human who explained. She says that you may have any interpreter you like, as long as it's me. Then we'd like to have you as our interpreter, said Ender. You must enter the birthing place first, said Human. You are the invited one. Ender stepped out into the open and strode into the moonlight. He could hear Ella and Wanda following him, and Human padding along behind. Now he could see that Shouter was not the only female here. Several faces were in every doorway. How many are there? asked Ender. Human didn't answer. Ender turned to face him. How many wives are there? Ender repeated. Human still did not answer, not until Shouter sang again more loudly and commandingly. Only then did Human translate. In the birthing place, speaker, it is only to speak when a wife asks you a question. Ander nodded gravely, then walked back to where the other males waited at the edge of the clearing. Wanda and Ella followed him. He could hear Shouter singing behind him, and now he understood why the males referred to her by that name. Her voice was enough to make the trees shake. Human caught up with Ender and tugged at his clothing. 
She says, why are you going? You haven't been given permission to go. Speaker, this is a very bad thing. She's very angry. Tell her that I did not come to give instructions or to receive instructions. If she won't treat me as an equal, I won't treat her as an equal. I can't tell her that, said Human. Then she'll always wonder why I left, won't she? This is a great honor to be called among the wives. It is also a great honor for the speaker of the dead to come and visit them. Human stood still for a few moments, rigid with anxiety. Then he turned and spoke to shout her. She, in turn, fell silent. There was not a sound in the glen. I hope you know what you're doing, speaker, murmured Wanda. I'm improvising, said Ender. How do you think it's going? She didn't answer. Shouter went back into the large log house. Ender turned around again and headed for the forest. Almost immediately, Shouter's voice rang out again. She commands you to wait, said Human. Ender did not break stride, and in a moment he was on the other side of the piggy males. If she asks me to return, I may come back, but you must tell her, Human, that I did not come to command or to be commanded. I can't say that, said Human. Why not? asked Ender. Let me, said Wanda. Human, do you mean you can't say it because you're afraid or because there are no words for it? No words. For a brother to speak to a wife about him commanding her and her petitioning him, those words can't be said in that direction. Wanda smiled at Ender. No mores here, speaker. Language. Don't they understand your language, human? asked Ender. Male's language can't be spoken in the birthing place, said human. Tell her that my words can't be spoken in wives' language, but only in males' language, and tell her that I petition that you be allowed to translate my words in males' language. You are a lot of trouble, speaker, said human. He turned and spoke again to shout her. Suddenly the glen was full of the sound of wives' language, a dozen different songs like a choir warming up. Speaker, said Wanda, you have now violated just about every rule of good anthropological practice. Which ones did I miss? The only one I can think of is that you haven't killed any of them yet. What you're forgetting, said Ender, is that I'm not here as a scientist to study them. I'm here as an ambassador to make a treaty with them. Just as quickly as they started, the wives fell silent. Shouter emerged from her house and walked to the middle of the clearing to stand very near to the huge central tree. She sang. Human answered her in brother's language. Wanda murmured a rough translation. He's telling her what you said about coming as equals. Again the wives erupted in cacophonous song. How do you think they'll respond? asked Ella. How could I know? asked Wanda. I've been here exactly as often as you. I think they'll understand it and let me in on those terms, said Ender. Why do you think that? asked Wanda. Because I came out of the sky. Because I'm the speaker for the dead. Don't start thinking you're a great white god, said Wanda. It usually doesn't work out very well. I'm not Pizarro, said Ender. In his ear, Jane murmured, I'm beginning to make some sense out of the wives' language. The basics of the male's language were in Pipo's and Libo's notes. Humans' translations are very helpful. The wives' language is closely related to male's language, except that it seems more archaic, closer to the roots, more old forms, and all the female-to-male forms are in the imperative voice, while the male-to-female forms are in the supplicative. The female word for the brothers seems to be related to the male word for Masio, the tree worm. 
If this is the language of love, it's a wonder they managed to reproduce at all. Ender smiled. It was good to hear Jane speak to him again, good to know he would have her help. He realized that Mandachuva had been asking Wanda a question, for now he heard her whispered answer, He's listening to the jewel in his ear. Is it the Hive Queen? asked Mandachuva. No, said Wanda. It's a... She struggled to find the word. It's a computer, a machine with a voice. Can I have one? said Mandachuva. Someday, Ender answered, saving Wanda the trouble of trying to figure out how to answer. The wives fell silent, and again Shouter's voice was alone. Immediately the males became agitated, bouncing up and down on their toes. Jane whispered in his ear. She's speaking male's language herself, she said. Very great day, said Arrow quietly. The wives speaking male's language in this place never happened before. She invites you to come in, said Human. As a sister to a brother, she invites you. Immediately, Ender walked into the clearing and approached her directly. Even though she was taller than the males, she was still a good fifty centimeters shorter than Ender, so he fell to his knees at once. They were eye to eye. I am grateful for your kindness to me, said Ender. I could say that in wives' language, Human said. Say it in your language anyway, said Ender. He did. Shouter reached out a hand and touched the smooth skin of his forehead, the rough stubble of his jaw. She pressed a finger against his lip, and he closed his eyes but did not flinch as she laid a delicate finger on his eyelid. She spoke. You are the holy speaker, translated human. Jane corrected the translation. He added the word holy. Ender looked human in the eye. I am not holy, he said. Human went rigid. Tell her. He was in turmoil for a moment. Then he apparently decided that Ender was the less dangerous of the two. She didn't say holy. Tell me what she says as exactly as you can, said Ender. If you aren't holy, said Human, how did you know what she really said? Please, said Ender, be truthful between her and me. To you I'll be truthful, said Human, but when I speak to her, it's my voice she hears saying your words. I have to say them carefully. Be truthful, said Ender. Don't be afraid. It's important that she knows exactly what I said. Tell her this. Say that I ask her to forgive you for speaking to her rudely, but I am a rude framling, and you must say exactly what I say. Human rolled his eyes, but turned to shout her and spoke. She answered briefly. Human translated. She says her head is not carved from Merdona root. Of course she understands that. Tell her that we humans have never seen such a great tree before. Ask her to explain to us what she and the other wives do with this tree. Wanda was aghast. You certainly get straight to the point, don't you? But when Human translated Ender's words, Shouter immediately went to the tree, touched it, and began to sing. Now, gathered closer to the tree, they could see the mass of creatures squirming on the bark. Most of them were no more than four or five centimeters long. They looked vaguely fetal, though a thin haze of dark fur covered their pinkish bodies. Their eyes were open. They climbed over each other, struggling to win a place at one of the smears of drying dough that dotted the bark. Amaranth mash, said Wanda. Babies, said Ella. Not babies, said Human. 
These are almost grown enough to walk. Ender stepped to the tree, reached out his hand. A shouter abruptly stopped her song, but Ender did not stop his movement. He touched his fingers to the bark near a young piggy. In its climbing it touched him, climbed over his hand, clung to him. "'Do you know this one by name?' asked Ender. Frightened, human hastily translated and gave back Shouter's answer. "'That one is a brother of mine,' he said. "'He won't get a name until he can walk on two legs. His father is a rooter.' "'And his mother?' asked Ender. "'Oh, the little mothers never have names,' said Human. "'Ask her.' Human asked her. She answered. She says his mother was very strong and very courageous. She made herself fat in bearing her five children. Human touched his forehead. Five children is a very good number, and she was fat enough to feed them all. Does his mother bring the mash that feeds him? Human looked horrified. Speaker, I can't say that, not in any language. Why not? I told you, she was fat enough to feed all five of her little ones. Put back that little brother and let the wife sink to the tree. Ender put his hand near the trunk again, and the little brother squirmed away. Shouter resumed her song. Wanda glared at Ender for his impetuousness, but Ella seemed excited. Don't you see? The newborns feed on their mother's body. Ender drew away, repelled. How can you say that? asked Wanda. Look at them squirming on the trees, just like little Masios. They and the Masios must have been competitors. Ella pointed toward the part of the tree, unstained by amaranth mash. The tree leaks sap here in the cracks. Back before the descolada there must have been insects that fed on the sap, and the masios and the infant piggies competed to eat them. That's why the piggies were able to mingle their genetic molecules with these trees. Not only did the infants live here, the adults constantly had to climb the trees to keep the masios away. Even when there were plenty of other food sources, they were still tied to these trees throughout their life cycles, long before they ever became trees. We're studying piggy society, said Wanda impatiently, not the distant evolutionary past. I'm conducting delicate negotiations, said Ender, so please be quiet and learn what you can without conducting a seminar. The singing reached a climax. A crack appeared in the side of the tree. They're not going to knock down this tree for us, are they? asked Wanda, horrified. She is asking the tree to open her heart. Human touched his forehead. This is the mother tree, and it is the only one in all our forest. No harm may come to this tree, or all our children will come from other trees, and our fathers all will die. All the other wives' voices joined shouters now, and soon a hole gaped wide in the trunk of the mother tree. Immediately Ender moved to stand directly in front of the hole. It was too dark inside for him to see. Ella took her nightstick from her belt and held it out to him. Wanda's hand flew out and seized Ella's wrist. A machine, she said. You can't bring that here. Ender gently took the nightstick out of Ella's hand. The fence is off, said Ender and we all can engage in questionable activities now. He pointed the barrel of the nightstick at the ground and pressed it on, then slid his finger quickly along the barrel to soften the light and spread it. The wives murmured, and Shouter touched Human on the belly. I told them you could make little moons at night, he said. I told them you carried them with you. 
Will it hurt anything if I let this light into the heart of the mother tree? Human asked Shouter, and Shouter reached for the nightstick. Then, holding it in trembling hands, she sang softly and tilted it slightly so that a sliver of the light passed through the hole. Almost at once she recoiled and pointed the nightstick the other direction. The brightness blinds them, Human said. In Ender's ear, Jane whispered, The sound of her voice is echoing from the inside of the tree. When the light went in, the echo modulated, causing a high overtone and a shaping of the sound. The tree was answering, using the sound of Shouter's own voice. Can you see? Ender said softly. Kneel down and get me close enough, and then move me across the opening. Ender obeyed, letting his head move slowly in front of the hole, giving the jeweled ear a clear angle toward the interior. Jane described what she saw. Ender knelt there for a long time, not moving. Then he turned to the others. The little mothers, said Ender. There are little mothers in there, pregnant ones, not more than four centimeters long. One of them is giving birth. You see with your jewel, asked Ella. Wanda knelt beside him, trying to see inside and failing. Incredible sexual dimorphism. The females come to sexual maturity in their infancy, give birth, and die. She asked Human, All of these little ones on the outside of the tree, they're all brothers? Human repeated the question to shout her. The wife reached up to a place near the aperture in the trunk and took down one fairly large infant. She sang a few words of explanation. That one is a young wife, Human translated. She will join the other wives in caring for the children when she's old enough. Is there only one? asked Ella. Ender shuddered and stood up. That one is sterile, or else they never let her mate. She couldn't possibly have had children. Why not? asked Wanda. There's no birth canal, said Ender. The babies eat their way out. Wanda muttered a prayer. Ella, however, was more curious than ever. Fascinating, she said. But if they're so small, how do they mate? We carry them to the fathers, of course, said Human. How do you think? The fathers can't come here, can they? The fathers, said Wanda. That's what they call the most revered trees. That's right, said Human. The fathers are ripe on the bark. They put their dust on the bark, in the sap. We carry the little mother to the father the wives have chosen. She crawls on the bark, and the dust on the sap gets into her belly and fills it up with little ones. Wanda wordlessly pointed to the small protuberances on Human's belly. Yes, Human said. These are the carries. The honored brother puts the little mother on one of his carries, and she holds very tight all the way to the father. He touched his belly. It is the great joy we have in our second life. We would carry the little mothers every night if we could. Shouter sang long and loud, and the hole in the mother tree began to close again. All those females, all the little mothers, asked Ella, are they sentient? It was a word that human didn't know. Are they awake? asked Ender. Of course, said human. What he means, explained Wanda, is can the little mothers think? Do they understand language? Them? asked human. No, they're no smarter than the cabras, and only a little smarter than the masios. They only do three things, eat, crawl, and cling to the carry. The ones on the outside of the tree now, they're beginning to learn. I can remember climbing on the face of the mother tree.
so I had memory then. But I'm one of the very few that remember so far back. Tears came unbidden to Wanda's eyes. All the mothers, they're born, they mate, they give birth and die, all in their infancy. They never even know they were alive. It's sexual dimorphism carried to a ridiculous extreme, said Ella. The females reach sexual maturity early, but the males reach it late. It's ironic, isn't it, that the dominant female adults are all sterile. They govern the whole tribe, and yet their own genes can't be passed on. Ella, said Wanda, what if we could develop a way to let the little mothers bear their children without being devoured? A cesarean section with a protein-rich nutrient substitute for the little mother's corpse, could the females survive to adulthood? Ella didn't have a chance to answer. Ender took them both by the arms and pulled them away. How dare you, he whispered. What if they could find a way to let infant human girls conceive and bear children which would feed on their mother's tiny corpse? What are you talking about, said Wanda. That's sick, said Ella. We didn't come here to attack them at the root of their lives, said Ender. We came here to find a way to share a world with them. In a hundred years or five hundred years, when they've learned enough to make changes for themselves, then they can decide whether to alter the way their children are conceived and born. But we can't begin to guess what it would do to them if suddenly as many females as males came to maturity. To do what? They can't bear more children, can they? They can't compete with the males to become fathers, can they? What are they for? But they're dying without ever being alive. They are what they are, said Ender. They decide what changes they'll make, not you. Not from your blindly human perspective, trying to make them have full and happy lives just like us. You're right, said Ella. Of course you're right. I'm sorry. To Ella, the piggies weren't people. They were strange alien fauna, and Ella was used to discovering that other animals had inhuman life patterns. But Ender could see that Wanda was still upset. She had made the Raman transition. She thought of piggies as us instead of them. She accepted the strange behavior that she knew about, even the murder of her father, as within an acceptable range of alienness. This meant she was actually more tolerant and accepting of the piggies than Ella could possibly be. Yet it also made her more vulnerable to the discovery of cruel, bestial behavior among her friends. Ender noticed, too, that after years of association with the piggies, Wanda had one of their habits. At a moment of extreme anxiety, her whole body became rigid. So he reminded her of her humanity by taking her shoulder in a fatherly gesture, drawing her close under his arm. At his touch, Wanda melted a little, laughed nervously, her voice low. Do you know what I keep thinking, she said, that the little mothers have all their children and die unbaptized? If Bishop Peregrino converts them, said Ender, maybe they'll let us sprinkle the inside of the mother tree and say the words. Don't mock me, Wanda whispered. I wasn't. For now, though, we'll ask them to change enough that we can live with them and no more. We'll change ourselves only enough that they can bear to live with us. Agree to that or the fence goes up again, because then we truly would be a threat to their survival. Ella nodded her agreement, but Wanda had gone rigid again. Ender's fingers suddenly dug harshly into Wanda's shoulder. 
Frightened, she nodded her agreement. He relaxed his grip. I'm sorry, he said, but they are what they are. If you want, they are what God made them, so don't try to remake them in your own image. He returned to the mother tree. Shouter and human were waiting. Please excuse the interruption, said Ender. It's all right, said human. I told her what you were doing. Ender felt himself sink inside. What did you tell her we were doing? I said that they wanted to do something to the little mothers that would make us all more like humans, but you said they never could do that or you'd put back the fence. I told her that you said we must remain little ones and you must remain humans. Ender smiled. His translation was strictly true, but he had the sense not to get into specifics. It was conceivable that the wives might actually want the little mothers to survive childbirth without realizing how vast the consequences of such a simple-seeming humanitarian change might be. Human was an excellent diplomat. He told the truth, and yet avoided the whole issue. Well, said Ender, now that we've all met each other, it's time to begin serious talking. Ender sat down on the bare earth. Shouter squatted on the ground directly opposite him. She sang a few words. She says you must teach us everything you know. Take us out to the stars, bring us the hive queen, and give her the light stick that this new human brought with you. Or in the dark of night she'll send all the brothers of this forest to kill all the humans in your sleep and hang you high above the ground so you get no third life at all. Seeing the human's alarm, human reached out his hand and touched Ender's chest. No, no, you must understand. That means nothing. That's the way we always begin when we're talking to another tribe. Do you think we're crazy? We'd never kill you. You gave us amaranth, pottery, the hive queen, and the hegemon. Tell her to withdraw that threat or we'll never give her anything else. I told you, speaker, it doesn't mean she said the words and I won't talk to her as long as those words stand. Human spoke to her. Shouter jumped to her feet and walked all the way around the mother tree, her hands raised high, singing loudly. Human leaned to Ender. She's complaining to the great mother and to all the wives that you're a brother who doesn't know his place. She's saying that you're rude and impossible to deal with. Ender nodded. Yes, that's exactly right. Now we're getting somewhere. Again, Shouter squatted across from Ender. She spoke in male's language. She says she'll never kill any human or let any of the brothers or wives kill any of you. She says for you to remember that you're twice as tall as any of us and you know everything and we know nothing. Now has she humiliated herself enough that you'll talk to her? Shouter watched him, glumly waiting for his response. Yes, said Ender. Now we can begin. Novinia knelt on the floor beside Miro's bed. King and Oliado stood behind her. Dom Cristan was putting Quara and Grego to bed in their room. The sound of his off-tune lullaby was barely audible behind the tortured sound of Miro's breathing. Miro's eyes opened. Miro, said Novinia. Miro groaned. Miro, you're home in bed. You went over the fence while it was on. Now Dr. Navio says that your brain has been damaged. We don't know whether the damage is permanent or not. You may be partially paralyzed, 
But you're alive, Miro, and Navio says that he can do many things to help you compensate for what you may have lost. Do you understand? I'm telling you the truth. It may be very bad for a while, but it's worth trying. He moaned softly, but it was not a sound of pain. It was as if he were trying to talk and couldn't. Can you move your jaw, Miro? asked King. Slowly, Miro's mouth opened and closed. Oliado held his hand a meter above Miro's head and moved it. Can you make your eyes follow the movement of my hand? Miro's eyes followed. Novinia squeezed Miro's hand. Did you feel me squeeze your hand? Miro moaned again. Close your mouth for no, said King, and open your mouth for yes. Miro closed his mouth and said, Mmm. Novinia could not help herself. Despite her encouraging words, this was the most terrible thing that had happened to any of her children. She had thought when Lauro lost his eyes and became Oliado, she hated the nickname but now used it herself, that nothing worse could happen. But Miro, paralyzed, helpless, so he couldn't even feel the touch of her hand, that could not be borne. She had felt one kind of grief when Pippo died, and another kind when Libo died, and a terrible regret at Macan's death. She even remembered the aching emptiness she felt as she watched them lower her mother and father into the ground. But there was no pain worse than to watch her child suffer and be unable to help. She stood up to leave. For his sake, she would do her crying silently in another room. Mm. 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 He doesn't want you to go, said King. I'll stay if you want, said Novinia. But you should sleep again. Navio says that the more you sleep for a while... Mm. 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 Doesn't want to sleep either, said King. Novinia stifled her immediate response to snap at King and tell him that she could hear his answers perfectly well for herself. This was no time for quarreling. Besides, it was King who had worked out the system that Miro was using to communicate. He had a right to take pride in it, to pretend that he was Miro's voice. It was his way of affirming that he was part of the family, that he was not quitting because of what he learned in the Prasa today. It was his way of forgiving her, so she held her tongue. Maybe he wants to tell us something, said Oliado. Mm -mm. Or ask a question, said King. Ma. Ah. That's great, said King. If he can't move his hands, he can't write. Same problema, said Oliado. Scanning. He can scan. If we bring him in by the terminal, I can make it scan the letters, and he just says yes when it hits the letters he wants. That'll take forever, said King. Do you want to try that, Miro? asked Novinia. He wanted to. The three of them carried him to the front room and laid him on the bed there. Oliado oriented the terminal so it displayed all the letters of the alphabet, facing so Miro could see them. 
He wrote a short program that caused each letter to light up in turn for a fraction of a second. It took a few trial runs for the speed to be right, slow enough that Miro could make a sound that meant this letter before the light moved on to the next one. Miro, in turn, kept things moving faster yet by deliberately abbreviating his words. P-I-G. Piggies, said Oliado. Yes, said Novina. Why were you crossing the fence with the piggies? Hmm, hmm. He's asking a question, mother, said King. He doesn't want to answer any. Ah. Do you want to know about the piggies that were with you when you crossed the fence? Asked Novina. He did. They've gone back into the forest with Wanda and Ella and the speaker for the dead. Quickly, she told him about the meeting in the bishop's chambers, what they had learned about the piggies, and above all, what they had decided to do. When they turned off the fence to save you, Miro, it was a decision to rebel against Congress. Do you understand? The committee's rules are finished. The fence is nothing but wires now. The gate will stand open. Tears came to Miro's eyes. Is that all you wanted to know? asked Novina. You should sleep. No, he said. No, 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 no. Wait till his eyes are clear, said King, and then we'll scan some more. D-I-G-A-F-A-L Dijao falante pelos mortos, said Oliado. What should we tell the speaker? asked King. You should sleep now and tell us later, said Novina. He won't be back for hours. He's negotiating a set of rules to govern relations between the piggies and us, to stop them from killing any more of us, the way they killed people and leap. And your father. But Miro refused to sleep. He continued spelling out his message as the terminal scanned. Together, the three of them worked out what he was trying to get them to tell the speaker and they understood that he wanted them to go now, before the negotiations ended. So Novina left Dom Cristal and Dona Cristan to watch over the house and the little children. On the way out of the house, she stopped beside her oldest son. The exertion had worn him out. His eyes were closed, and his breathing was regular. She touched his hand, held it, squeezed it. He couldn't feel her touch, she knew, but then it was herself she was comforting, not him. He opened his eyes, and ever so gently, she felt his fingers tighten on hers. I felt it, she whispered to him. You'll be all right. He shut his eyes against his tears. She got up and walked blindly to the door. I have something in my eye, she told Oliado. Lead me for a few minutes until I can see for myself. King was already at the fence. The gate's too far, he shouted. Can you climb over, mother? She could, but it wasn't easy. No doubt about it, she said. Bosquinha's going to have to let us install another gate right here. It was late now, past midnight and both Wanda and Ella were getting sleepy. Ender was not. 
He had been on edge for hours in his bargaining with Shouter. His body chemistry had responded, and even if he had gone home right now, it would have been hours before he was capable of sleep. He now knew far more about what the piggies wanted and needed. Their forest was their home, their nation. It was all the definition of property they had ever needed. Now, however, the amaranth fields had caused them to see that the prairie was also useful land, which they needed to control. Yet they had little concept of land measurement. How many hectares did they need to keep under cultivation? How much land could the humans use? Since the piggies themselves barely understood their needs, it was hard for Ender to pin them down. Harder still was the concept of law and government. The wives ruled. To the piggies, it was that simple. But Ender had finally got them to understand that humans made their laws differently and that human laws applied to human problems. To make them understand why humans needed their own laws, Ender had to explain to them human mating patterns. He was amused to note that Shouter was appalled at the notion of adults mating with each other and of men having an equal voice with women in the making of the laws. The idea of family and kinship separate from the tribe was brother-blindness to her. It was all right for human to take pride in his father's many matings, but as far as the wives were concerned, they chose fathers solely on the basis of what was good for the tribe. The tribe and the individual, they were the only entities the wives respected. Finally, though, they understood that human laws must apply within the borders of human settlements, and piggy laws must apply within the piggy tribes. Where the borders should be was entirely a different matter. Now, after three hours, they had finally agreed to one thing and one thing only. Piggy law applied within the forest, and all humans who came within the forest were subject to it. Human law applied within the fence, and all piggies who came there were subject to human government. All the rest of the planet would be divided up later. It was a very small triumph, but at least there was some agreement. You must understand, Ender told her, that humans will need a lot of open land. But we're only the beginning of the problem. You want the Hive Queen to teach you, to help you mine ore and smelt metals and make tools, but she'll also need land. And in a very short time, she'll be far stronger than either humans or little ones. Every one of her buggers, he explained, was perfectly obedient and infinitely hardworking, they would quickly outstrip the humans in their productivity and power. Once she was restored to life on Lusitania, she would have to be reckoned with at every turn. Ruter says she can be trusted, said Human. And, translating for Shouter, he said, The mother tree also gives the hive queen her trust. Do you give her your land? Ender insisted. The world is big, Human translated for Shouter. She can use all the forests of the other tribes. So can you. We give them to you freely. Ender looked at Wanda and Ella. That's all very good, said Ella. But are those forests theirs to give? Definitely not, said Wanda. They even have wars with the other tribes. We'll kill them for you if they give you trouble, offered Human. We're very strong now. Three hundred twenty babies. In ten years, no tribe can stand against us. Human, said Ender, tell Shouter that we are dealing with this tribe now. We'll deal with other tribes later. Human translated quickly his words tumbling over each other, and quickly had Shouter's response, No, 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 no. What is she objecting to? asked Ender. You won't deal with our enemies. You came to us. If you go to them, then you are the enemy too. 
It was at that moment that the lights appeared in the forest behind them, and Arrow and Leaf Eater led Novinia, King, and Oliado into the wives' clearing. Miro sent us, Oliado explained. How is he? asked Wanda. Paralyzed, said King, bluntly. It saved Novinia the effort of explaining it gently. Nossa Senora, whispered Wanda. But much of it is temporary, said Novinia. Before I left, I squeezed his hand. He felt it and squeezed me back just a little. But the nerve connections aren't dead, not all of them anyway. Excuse me, said Ender, but that's a conversation you can carry on back in Milagre. I have another matter to attend to here. Sorry, Novinia said. Miro's message. He couldn't speak, but he gave it to us letter by letter, and we figured out what went in the cracks. The piggies are planning war, using the advantages they've gained from us. Arrows, their greater numbers, they'd be irresistible. As I understand it, though, Miro says that their warfare isn't just a matter of conquest of territory. It's an opportunity for genetic mixing, male exogamy. The winning tribe gets the use of the trees that grow from the bodies of the war dead. Ender looked at human, leaf-eater, arrow. It's true, said Arrow. Of course it's true. We are the wisest of tribes now. All of us will make better fathers than any of the other piggies. I see, said Ender. That's why Miro wanted us to come to you now, tonight, said Novinia. While the negotiations still aren't final, that has to end. Human stood up, bounced up and down as if he were about to take off and fly. I won't translate that, said Human. I will, said Leafeater. Stop, shouted Ender. His voice was far louder than he had ever let it be heard before. Immediately everyone fell silent. The echo of his shout seemed to linger among the trees. Leafeater, said Ender, I will have no interpreter but Human. Who are you to tell me that I may not speak to the wives? I am a piggy, and you are nothing. Human, said Ender, tell Shouter that if she lets Leafeater translate words that we humans have said among ourselves, then he is a spy, and if she lets him spy on us, we will go home now, and you will have nothing from us. I'll take the Hive Queen to another world to restore her. Do you understand? Of course he understood. Ender also knew that Human was pleased. Leafeater was trying to usurp Human's role and discredit him, along with Ender. When Human finished translating Ender's words, Shouter sang at Leafeater. Abashed, he quickly retreated to the woods to watch with the other piggies. But Human was by no means a puppet. He gave no sign that he was grateful. He looked Ender in the eye. You said you wouldn't try to change us. I said I wouldn't try to change you more than is necessary. Why is this necessary? It's between us and the other piggies. Careful, said Wanda. He's very upset. Before he could hope to persuade Shouter, he had to convince Human. You are our first friends among the piggies. You have our trust and our love. We will never do anything to harm you or to give any other piggies an advantage over you. But we didn't come just to you. We represent all of humankind, and we've come to teach all we can to all of the piggies, regardless of tribe. You don't represent all humankind. You're about to fight a war with other humans. So how can you say that our wars are evil and your wars are good? Surely Pizarro, for all his shortcomings, had an easier time of it with Atahualpa. We're not... 
We're trying not to fight a war with other humans, said Ender. And if we fight one, it won't be our war trying to gain an advantage over them. It will be your war trying to win you the right to travel among the stars. Ender held up his open hand. We have set aside our humanness to become ramen with you. He closed his hand into a fist. Human and piggy and hive queen, here on Lusitania, will be one. All humans, all buggers, all piggies. Human sat in silence, digesting this. Speaker, he finally said, this is very hard. Until you humans came, other piggies were always to be killed, and their third life was to be slaves to us in forests that we kept. This forest was once a battlefield, and the most ancient trees are the warriors who died in battle. Our oldest fathers are the heroes of that war, and our houses are made of the cowards. All our lives we prepare to win battles with our enemies so that our wives can make a mother tree in a new battle forest and make us mighty and great. These last ten years we have learned to use arrows to kill from far off, pots and cabra skins to carry water across the dry lands, amaranth and merdona roots so we can be many and strong and carry food with us far from the masios of our home forest. We rejoiced in this because it meant that we would always be victorious in war. We would carry our wives, our little mothers, our heroes, to every corner of the great world, and finally one day out into the stars. This is our dream, speaker. And you tell me now that you want us to lose it like wind in the sky. It was a powerful speech. None of the others offered Ender any suggestions about what to say in answer. Human had half convinced them. Your dream is a good one, said Ender. It's the dream of every living creature. The desire that is the very root of life itself. To grow until all the space you can see is part of you, under your control. It's the desire for greatness. There are two ways, though, to fulfill it. One way is to kill anything that is not yourself, to swallow it up or destroy it until nothing is left to oppose you. But that way is evil. You say to all the universe, only I will be great, and to make room for me, the rest of you must give up even what you already have and become nothing. Do you understand, human, that if we humans felt this way, acted this way, we could kill every piggy in Lusitania and make this place our home? How much of your dream would be left if we were evil? Human was trying hard to understand. I see that you gave us great gifts when you could have taken from us even the little that we had. But why did you give us the gifts if we can't use them to become great? We want you to grow, to travel among the stars. Here on Lusitania, we want you to be strong and powerful with hundreds and thousands of brothers and wives. We want to teach you to grow many kinds of plants and raise many different animals. Ella and Novinia, these two women, will work all the days of their lives to develop more plants that can live here in Lusitania, and every good thing that they make, they'll give to you, so you can grow. But why does a single piggy in any other forest have to die just so you can have these gifts, and why would it hurt you in any way? if we also gave the same gifts to them. 
if they become just as strong as we are, then what have we gained? What am I expecting this brother to do, thought Ender. His people have always measured themselves against the other tribes. Their forest isn't fifty hectares or five hundred. It's either larger or smaller than the forest of the tribe to the west or the south. What I have to do now is the work of a generation. I have to teach him a new way of conceiving the stature of his own people. Is Reuter great? asked Ender. I say he is, said Human. He is my father. His tree isn't the oldest or thickest, but no father that we remember has ever had so many children so quickly after he was planted. So, in a way, all the children that he fathered are still part of him. The more children he fathers, the greater he becomes. Human nodded slowly. And the more you accomplish in your life, the greater you make your father. Is that true? If his children do well, then yes. It's a great honor to the father tree. Do you have to kill all the other great trees in order for your father to be great? That's different, said Human. All the other great trees are fathers of the tribe, and the lesser trees are still brothers. Yet Ender could see that Human was uncertain now. He was resisting Ender's ideas because they were strange, not because they were wrong or incomprehensible. He was beginning to understand. Look at the wives, said Ender. They have no children. They can never be great the way that your father is great. Speaker, you know that they're the greatest of all. The whole tribe obeys them. When they rule us well, the tribe prospers. When the tribe becomes many, then the wives are also made strong. Even though not a single one of you is their own child, how could we be? asked Human. And yet you add to their greatness. Even though they aren't your mother or your father, they still grow when you grow. We're all the same tribe. But why are you the same tribe? You have different fathers, different mothers. Because we are the tribe. We live here in the forest. We, If another piggy came here from another tribe and asked you to let him stay and be a brother, we would never make him a father tree. But you tried to make people and Lebo father trees. Human was breathing heavily. I see, he said. They were part of the tribe, from the sky, but we made them brothers and tried to make them fathers. The tribe is what we believe it is. If we say the tribe is all the little ones in the forest and all the trees, then that is what the tribe is, even though some of the oldest trees here came from warriors of two different tribes fallen in battle. We become one tribe because we say we're one tribe. Ender marveled at his mind this small Raman. How few humans were able to grasp this idea or let it extend beyond the narrow confines of their tribe, their family, their nation. Human walked behind Ender, leaned against him, the weight of the young piggy pressed against his back. Ender felt human's breath on his cheek, and then their cheeks were pressed together, both of them looking in the same direction. All at once Ender understood. You see what I see, said Ender. You humans grow by making us part of you, humans and piggies and buggers, ramen together. Then we are one tribe, and our greatness is your greatness, and yours is ours. Ender could feel humans' body trembling with the strength of the idea. You say to us, we must see all other tribes the same way, as one tribe, our tribe all together, so that we grow by making them grow. 
You could send teachers, said Ender, brothers to the other tribes who could pass into their third life in the other forests and have children there. This is a strange and difficult thing to ask of the wives, said Human. Maybe an impossible thing. Their minds don't work the way a brother's mind works. A brother can think of many different things, but a wife thinks of only one thing, what is good for the tribe, and at the root of that, what is good for the children and the little mothers. Can you make them understand this? asked Ender. Better than you could, said Human. But probably not. Probably I'll fail. I don't think you'll fail, said Ender. You came here... Tonight, to make a covenant between us, the piggies of this tribe, and you, the humans who live on this world. The humans outside Lusitania won't care about our covenant, and the piggies outside this forest won't care about it. We want to make the same covenant with all of them. And in this covenant, you humans promise to teach us everything, as quickly as you can understand it. Any question we ask, if we know the answer, when... If these aren't words in a covenant, give me straight answers now, speaker for the dead. Humans stood up, pushed away from Ender, walked around in front of him, bent down a little to look at Ender from above. Promise to teach us everything that you know. We promise that. And you also promise to restore the Hive Queen to help us. I'll restore the Hive Queen. You'll have to make your own covenant with her. She doesn't obey human law. You promise to restore the Hive Queen whether she helps us or not? Yes. You promise to obey our law when you come into our forest, and you agree that the prairie land that we need will also be under our law? Yes. And you will go to war against all the other humans in all the stars of the sky to protect us and let us also travel in the stars? We already have. Human relaxed, stepped back squatted in his old position. He drew with his finger in the dirt. Now, what you want from us, said Human. We will obey human law in your city and also in the prairie land that you need. Yes, said Ender. And you don't want us to go to war, said Human. That's right. And that's all? One more thing, said Ender. What you ask is already impossible, said Human. You might as well ask more. The third life, said Ender, when does it begin? When you kill a piggy and he grows into a tree, is that right? The first life is within the mother tree, where we never see the light and where we eat blindly the meat of our mother's body and the sap of the mother tree. The second life is when we live in the shade of the forest, the half-light, running and walking and climbing, seeing and singing and talking, making with our hands. The third life is when we reach and drink from the sun in the full light at last, never moving except in the wind, only to think. And on those certain days when the brothers drum on your trunk to speak to them, yes, that's the third life. Humans don't have the third life. Human looked at him puzzled. When we die, even if you plant us, nothing grows. There's no tree. We never drink from the sun. When we die, we're dead. Human looked at Wanda. But the other book you gave us, it talked all the time about living after death and being born again. Not as a tree, said Ender. Not as anything you can touch or feel or talk to or get answers from. 
I don't believe you, said human. If that's true, why did Pipo and Libo make us plant them? Novinia knelt down beside Ender, touching him. No, leaning on him, so she could hear more clearly. How did they make you plant them, said Ender. They made the great gift, won the great honor, the human and the piggy together. Pipo and Mandachuva, Libo and Leaf Eater. Mandachuva and Leaf Eater both thought that they would win the third life, but each time Pipo and Libo would not. They insisted on keeping the gift for themselves. Why would they do that if humans have no third life? Novinia's voice came then, husky and emotional. What did they have to do to give the third life to Mandachuva or Leaf Eater? Plant them, of course, said human, the same as today. The same as what today, asked Ender. You and me, said human. Human and the speaker for the dead. If we make this covenant so that the wives and the humans agree together, then this is a great and noble day. So either you will give me the third life or I will give it to you. With my own hand? Of course, said human. If you won't give me the honor, then I must give it to you. Ender remembered the picture he had first seen only two weeks ago, of Pipo dismembered and disemboweled, his body parts stretched and spread, planted. Human, said Ender, the worst crime that a human being can commit is murder, and one of the worst ways to do it is to take a living person and cut him and hurt him so badly that he dies. Again, human squatted for a while, trying to make sense of this. Speaker, he said at last, my mind keeps seeing this two ways. If humans don't have a third life, then planting is killing forever. In our eyes, Libo and Pipo were keeping the honor to themselves and leaving Mandachuva and Leaf Eater as you see them to die without honor for their accomplishments. In our eyes... You humans came out of the fence to the hillside and tore them from the ground before their roots could grow. In our eyes, it was you who committed murder when you carried Pipo and Libo away. But now I see it another way. Pipo and Libo wouldn't take Mandachuva and Leaf Eater into the third life because to them it would be murder. So they willingly allowed their own death just so they wouldn't have to kill any of us. Yes said Novinia. But if that's so, then when you humans saw them on the hillside, why didn't you come into the forest and kill us all? Why didn't you make a great fire and consume all our fathers and the great mother tree herself? Leaf Eater cried out from the edge of the forest a terrible, keening cry, an unbearable grief. If you had cut one of our trees, said human, if you had murdered a single tree, we would have come upon you in the night and killed you, every one of you. And even if some of you survived, our messengers would have told the story to every other tribe and none of you would ever have left this land alive. Why didn't you kill us for murdering Pipo and Libo? Mandachuva suddenly appeared behind human, panting heavily. He flung himself to the ground, his hands outstretched toward Ender. I cut him. With these hands, he cried. I tried to honor him, and I killed his tree forever. No, said Ender. He took Mandachuva's hands, held them. You both thought you were saving each other's life. He hurt you, and you hurt him. Yes, killed him, but you both believed you were doing good. That's enough until now. Now 
You know the truth, and so do we. We know that you didn't mean murder, and you know that when you take a knife to a human being, we die forever. That's the last term in the covenant, human. Never take another human being to the third life, because we don't know how to go. When I tell this story to the wives, said human, you'll hear grief so terrible that it will sound like the breaking of trees in a thunderstorm. He turned and stood before Shouter and spoke to her for a few moments. Then he returned to Ender. Go now, he said. We have no covenant yet, said Ender. I have to speak to all the wives. They'll never do that while you're here in the shade of the mother tree with no one to protect the little ones. Arrow will lead you back out of the forest. Wait for me on the hillside where Rooter keeps watch over the gate. Sleep if you can. I'll present the covenant to the wives and try to make them understand that we must deal as kindly with the other tribes as you have dealt with us. Impulsively, Human reached out a hand and touched Ender firmly on the belly. I make my own covenant, he said to Ender. I will honor you forever, but I will never kill you. Ender put out his hand and laid his palm against Human's warm abdomen. The protuberances under his hand were hot to the touch. I will also honor you forever, said Ender. And if we make this covenant between your tribe and ours, said Human, will you give me the honor of the third life? Will you let me rise up and drink the light? Can we do it quickly, not the slow and terrible way, that, and make me one of the silent trees, never fathering? without honor except to feed my sap to the filthy Masios and give my wood to the brothers when they sing to me? Isn't there someone else who can do it? asked Ender, one of the brothers who knows your way of life and death. You don't understand, said Human. This is how the whole tribe knows that the truth has been spoken. Either you must take me into the third life, or I must take you, or there's no covenant. I won't kill you, speaker, and we both want a treaty." I'll do it, said Ender. Human nodded, withdrew his hand, and returned to Shouter. Oh, Deus, whispered Wanda, how will you have the heart? Ender had no answer. He merely followed silently behind Arrow as he led them to the woods. Novinia gave him her own nightstick to lead the way. Arrow played with it like a child, making the light small and large, making it hover and swoop like a suckfly among the trees and bushes. He was as happy and playful as Ender had ever seen a piggy be. But behind them, they could hear the voices of the wives singing a terrible and cacophonous song. Human had told them the truth about Pippo and Lebo, that they died the final death and in pain, all so that they would not have to do to Mandachuva and Leaf Eater what they thought was murder. Only when they had gone far enough that the sound of the wives' keening was softer than their own footfalls and the wind in the trees did any of the humans speak. That was the mass for my father's soul, said Wanda softly. And for mine, answered Novinia. They all knew that she spoke of Pippo, not the long-dead venerado Gusto. But Ender was not part of their conversation. He had not known Libo and Pippo and did not belong to their memory of grief. All he could think of was the trees of the forest. They had once been living, breathing piggies, every one of them, 
The piggies could sing to them, talk to them even somehow, understand their speech, but Ender couldn't. To Ender, the trees were not people, never could be people. If he took the knife to human, it might not be murder in the piggy's eyes, but to Ender himself, he would be taking away the only part of human's life that Ender understood. As a piggy, human was a true Raman, a brother. As a tree, he would be little more than a gravestone, as far as Ender could understand, as far as he could really believe. Once again, he thought, I must kill, though I promised that I never would again. He felt Novena's hand take him by the crook of the arm. She leaned on him. Help me, she said. I am almost blind in the darkness. I have good night vision, Oliado offered cheerfully from behind her. Shut up, stupid, Ella whispered fiercely. Mother wants to walk with him. Both Novinia and Ender heard her clearly, and both could feel each other's silent laughter. Novinia drew closer to him as they walked. I think you have the heart for what you have to do, she said softly, so that only he could hear. Cold and ruthless, he asked. His voice hinted at wry humor, but the words tasted sour and truthful in his mouth. Compassionate enough, she said to put the hot iron into the wound when that's the only way to heal it. As one who had felt his burning iron cauterize her deepest wounds, she had the right to speak, and he believed her, and it eased his heart for the bloody work ahead. Ender hadn't thought it would be possible to sleep, knowing what was ahead of him, but now he woke up, Novinia's voice soft in his ear. He realized that he was outside, lying in the kapim, his head resting on Novinia's lap. It was still dark. They're coming, said Novinia softly. Ender sat up. Once, as a child, he would have come awake fully, instantly, but he was trained as a soldier then. Now it took a moment to orient himself. Wanda, Ella, both awake and watching, Oliado asleep, King just stirring the tall tree of Rooter's third life rising only a few meters away, and in the near distance beyond the fence at the bottom of the little valley, the first houses of Milagre rising up the slopes, the cathedral and the monastery atop the highest and nearest of the hills. In the other direction, the forest, and coming down from the trees, human, mandachuva, leaf-eater, arrow, cups, calendar, worm, bark, dancer, several other brothers whose names Wanda didn't know. I've never seen them, she said. They must come from other brother houses. Do we have a covenant? said Ender silently. That's all I care about. Did human make the wives understand a new way of conceiving of the world? Human was carrying something, wrapped in leaves. The piggies wordlessly laid it before Ender. Human unwrapped it carefully. It was a computer printout. The Hive Queen and the Hegemon, said Wanda softly. The copy Miro gave them. The Covenant, said Human. Only then did they realize that the printout was upside down on the blank side of the paper, and there, in the light of a nightstick, they saw faint hand-printed letters. They were large and awkwardly formed. Wanda was in awe. We never taught them to make ink, she said. We never taught them to write. Calendar learned to make the letters, said Human, writing with sticks in the dirt, and Worm made the ink from cabra dung and dried masios. This is how you make treaties, isn't it? Yes, said Ender. 
If we didn't write it on paper, then we would remember it differently. That's right, said Ender. You did well to write it down. We made some changes. The wives wanted some changes, and I thought you would accept them. Human pointed them out. You humans can make this covenant with other piggies, but you can't make a different covenant. You can't teach any other piggies things you haven't taught us. Can you accept that? Of course, said Ender. That was the easy one. Now, what if we disagree about what the rules are? What if we disagree about where your prairie land ends and ours begins? So Shouter said, Let the hive queen judge between humans and little ones. Let the humans judge between the little ones and the hive queen. And let little ones judge between the hive queen and the humans. Ender wondered how easy that would be. He remembered, as no other living human did, how terrifying the buggers were three thousand years ago. Their insect-like bodies were the nightmares of humanity's childhood. How easily would the people of Milagre accept their judgment? So it's hard. It's no harder than what we've asked the piggies to do. Yes, said Ender. We can accept that, too. It's a good plan. And another change, said Human. He looked up at Ender and grinned. It looked ghastly, since piggy faces weren't designed for that human expression. This is why it took so long, all these changes. Ender smiled back. If a tribe of piggies won't sign the covenant with humans, and if that tribe attacks one of the tribes that has signed the covenant, then we can go to war against them. What do you mean by attack? asked Ender. If they could take a mere insult as an attack, then this clause would reduce the prohibition of war to nothing. Attack, said Human. It begins when they come into our lands and kill the brothers or the wives. It is not attack when they present themselves for war or offer an agreement to begin a war. It is attack when they start to fight without an agreement. Since we will never agree to a war, an attack by another tribe is the only way war could begin. I knew you'd ask. He pointed to the words of the covenant, and indeed, the treaty carefully defined what constituted an attack. That is also acceptable, said Ender. It meant that the possibility of war would not be removed for many generations, perhaps for centuries, since it would take a long time to bring this covenant to every tribe of piggies in the world. But long before the last tribe joined the covenant, Ender thought, the benefits of peaceful exogamy would be made plain, and few would want to be warriors anymore. Now, the last change, said Human. The wives meant this to punish you for making this covenant so difficult, but I think you will believe it is no punishment, since we are forbidden to take you into the third life. After this covenant is in effect, humans are also forbidden to take brothers into the third life. For a moment, Ender thought it meant his reprieve. He would not have to do the thing that Lebo and Pipo had both refused. After the covenant, said Human, you will be the first and last human to give this gift. I wish, said Ender. I know what you wish, my friend speaker, said Human. To you it feels like murder, but to me, when a brother is given the right to pass into the third life as a father, then he chooses his greatest rival or his truest friend to give him the passage, you. Speaker, ever since I first learned Stark and read the Hive Queen and the Hegemon, I waited for you. I said many times to my father, Reuter, of all humans, he is the one who will understand us. Then Reuter told me, when your starship came, 
that it was you and the Hive Queen aboard that ship, and I knew then that you had come to give me passage, if only I did well. You did well, human, said Ender. Here, he said, see? We signed the covenant in the human way. At the bottom of the last page of the covenant, two words were crudely, elaborately shaped. Human, Ender read aloud. The other word he could not read. It's Shouter's true name, said Human, Starlooker. She wasn't good with the writing stick. The wives don't use tools very often, since the brothers do that kind of work. So she wanted me to tell you what her name is, and to tell you that she got it because she was always looking in the sky. She says that she didn't know it then, but she was watching for you to come. So many people had so much hope in me, thought Ender. In the end, though, everything depended on them. On Novinia, Miro, Ella, who called for me, on Human and Starlooker, and on the ones who feared my coming, too. Worm carried the cup of ink, Calendar carried the pen. It was a thin strip of wood with a slit in it and a narrow well that held a little ink when he dipped it in the cup. He had to dip it five times in order to sign his name. Five, said Arrow. Ender remembered then that the number five was portentous to the piggies. It had been an accident, but if they chose to see it as a good omen, so much the better. I'll take the covenant to our governor and the bishop, said Ender. Of all the documents that were ever treasured in the history of mankind, said Wanda, no one needed her to finish the sentence. Human, Leafeater, and Mandachuva carefully wrapped the book again in leaves and handed it, not to Ender, but to Wanda. Ender knew at once with terrible certainty what that meant. The piggies still had work for him to do, work that would require that his hands be free. Now the covenant is made the human way, said Human. You must make it true for the little ones as well. Can't the signing be enough, asked Ender. From now on the signing is enough, said Human, but only because the same hand that signed for the humans also took the covenant in our way too. Then I will, said Ender as I promised you I would. Human reached out and stroked Ender from the throat to the belly. The brother's word is not just in his mouth, he said. The brother's word is in his life. He turned to the other piggies. Let me speak to my father one last time before I stand beside him. Two of the strange brothers came forward with their small clubs in their hands. They walked with Human to Rooter's tree and began to beat on it and sing in the tree language. Almost at once the trunk split open. The tree was still fairly young, not so very much thicker in the trunk than human's own body. It was a struggle for him to get inside, but he fit, and the trunk closed up after him. The drumming changed rhythm, but did not let up for a moment. Jane whispered in Ender's ear, I can hear the resonance of the drumming change inside the tree, she said. The tree is slowly shaping the sound to turn the drumming into language. The other piggies set to work clearing ground for human's tree. Ender noticed that he would be planted so that from the gate, Rooter would seem to stand on the left hand and human on the right. Pulling up the capim by the root was hard work for the piggies. Soon King was helping them, and then Oyado, and then Wanda and Ella. Wanda gave the covenant to Novinia to hold while she helped dig capim. Novinia, in turn, carried it to Ender, stood before him, looked at him steadily. You signed it Ender Wigan, she said. 
Ender. The name sounded ugly even to his own ears. He had heard it too often as an epithet. I'm older than I look, said Ender. That was the name I was known by when I blasted the bugger's home world out of existence. Maybe the presence of that name on the first treaty ever signed between humans and Raman will do something to change the meaning of the name. Ender, she whispered. She reached toward him, the bundled treaty in her hands, and held it against his chest. It was heavy, since it contained all the pages of the Hive Queen and the Hegemon, on the other sides of pages where the covenant was written. I never went to the priests to confess, she said, because I knew they would despise me for my sin. Yet when you named all my sins today, I could bear it because I knew you didn't despise me. I couldn't understand why, though, till now. I'm not one to despise other people for their sins, said Ender. I haven't found one yet that I didn't say inside myself I've done worse than this. All these years you've borne the burden of humanity's guilt. Yes, well, it's nothing mystical, said Ender. I think of it as being like the mark of Cain. You don't make many friends, but nobody hurts you much either. The ground was clear. Mandachuva spoke in tree language to the piggies beating on the trunk. Their rhythm changed, and again the aperture in the tree came open. Human slid out as if he were an infant being born. Then he walked to the center of the cleared ground. Leafeater and Mandachuva each handed him a knife. As he took the knives, human spoke to them in Portuguese so the humans could understand, and so it would carry great force. I told Shouter that you lost your passage to the third life because of a great misunderstanding by Pipo and Libo. She said that before another hand of hands of days, you both would grow upward into the light. Leafeater and Mandachuva both let go of their knives, touched human gently on the belly, and stepped back to the edge of the cleared ground. Human held out the knives to Ender. They were both made of thin wood. Ender could not imagine a tool that could polish wood to be at once so fine and sharp and yet so strong. But, of course, no tool had polished these. They had come thus perfectly shaped from the heart of a living tree, given as a gift to help a brother into the third life. It was one thing to know with his mind that human would not really die. It was another thing to believe it. Ender did not take the knives at first. Instead, he reached past the blades and took human by the wrists. To you, it doesn't feel like death, but to me... I only saw you for the first time yesterday, and tonight I know you are my brother as surely as if Reuter were my father, too. And yet, when the sun rises in the morning, I'll never be able to talk to you again. It feels like death to me, human, however it feels to you. Come and sit in my shade, said human, and see the sunlight through my leaves, and rest your back against my trunk, and do this also. Add another story to the Hive Queen and the Hegemon. Call it the life of human. Tell all the humans how I was conceived on the bark of my father's tree and born in darkness, eating my mother's flesh. Tell them how I left the life of darkness behind and came into the half-light of my second life to learn language from the wives and then come forth to learn all the miracles that Libo and Miro and Wanda came to teach. Tell them how on the last day of my second life my true brother came from above the sky 
And together we made this covenant so that humans and piggies would be one tribe. Not a human tribe or a piggy tribe, but a tribe of ramen. And then my friend gave me passage to the third life, to the full light, so that I could rise into the sky and give life to ten thousand children before I die. I'll tell your story, said Ender. Then I will truly live forever. Ender took the knives. Human lay down upon the ground. Oyado, said Novinya. Kim, go back to the gate. Ella, you too. I'm going to see this, mother, said Ella. I'm a scientist. You forget my eyes, said Oyado. I'm recording everything. We can show humans everywhere that the treaty was signed, and we can show piggies that the speaker took the covenant in their way, too. I'm not going either, said Kim. Even the Blessed Virgin stood at the foot of the cross. So stay, said Novinia softly. And she also stayed. Human's mouth was filled with kapim, but he didn't chew it very much. More, said Ender, so you don't feel anything. That's not right, said Mandachuva. These are the last moments of his second life. It's good to feel something of the pains of this body, to remember when you're in the third life and beyond pain. Mandachuva and Leaf Eater told Ender where and how to cut. It had to be done quickly, they told him, and their hands reached into the steaming body to point out organs that must go here or there. Ender's hands were quick and sure, his body calm. But even though he could only rarely spare a glance away from the surgery, he knew that above his bloody work, humans' eyes were watching him, watching him filled with gratitude and love, filled with agony and death. It happened under his hands, so quickly that for the first few minutes they could watch it grow. Several large organs shriveled as roots shot out of them, tendrils reached from place to place within the body. Human's eyes went wide with the final agony, and out of his spine a sprout burst upward, two leaves, four leaves, and then stopped. The body was dead. Its last spasm of strength had gone to making the tree that rooted in human's spine. Ender had seen the rootlets and tendrils reaching through the body. The memories, the soul of human, had been transferred into the cells of the newly sprouted tree. It was done. His third life had begun. And when the sun rose in the morning, not long from now, the leaves would taste the light for the first time. The other piggies were rejoicing, dancing. Leaf Eater and Mandachuva took the knives from Ender's hands and jammed them into the ground on either side of Human's head. Ender could not join their celebration. He was covered with blood and reeked with the stench of the body he had butchered. On all fours he crawled from the body up the hill to a place where he didn't have to see it. Novinia followed him. Exhausted, spent, all of them, from the work and the emotions of the day. They said nothing, did nothing, but fell into the thick kapim, each one leaning or lying on someone else, seeking relief at last in sleep, as the piggies danced away up the hill into the woods. Bosquinha and Bishop Peregrino made their way to the gate before the sun was up, to watch for the speaker's return from the forest. They were there a full ten minutes before they saw 
a movement much nearer than the forest's edge. It was a boy, sleepily voiding his bladder into a bush. Oliado, called the mayor. The boy turned, waved, then hastily fastened his trousers and began waking others who slept in the tall grass. Bosquini and the bishop opened the gate and walked out to meet them. Foolish, isn't it, said Bosquini, but this is the moment when our rebellion seems most real, when I first walk beyond the fence. Why did they spend the night out of doors? Peregrino wondered aloud. The gate was open, they could have gone home. Bosquini took a quick census of the group outside the gates. Wanda and Ella, arm in arm like sisters, Oliado and King, Novinha, and there, yes, the speaker, sitting down, Novinha behind him, resting her hands on his shoulders. They all waited expectantly, saying nothing, until Ender looked up at them. We have the treaty, he said. It's a good one. Novinha held up a bundle wrapped in leaves. They wrote it down, she said, for you to sign. Busquinha took the bundle. All the files were restored before midnight, she said. Not just the ones we saved in your message queue. Whoever your friend is, speaker, he's very good. She, said the speaker, her name is Jane. Now, though, the bishop and Busquinha could see what lay on the clear earth, just down the hill from where the speaker had slept. Now they understood the dark stains on the speaker's hands and arms, the spatter marks on his face. I would rather have no treaty, said Bosquinha, than one you had to kill to get. Wait before you judge, said the bishop. I think the night's work was more than just what we see before us. Very wise, Father Peregrino, said the speaker softly. I'll explain it to you if you want, said Wanda. Ella and I understand it as well as anyone. It was like a sacrament, said Oliado. Bosquinha looked at Novinha, uncomprehending. You let him watch? Oliado tapped his eyes. All the piggies will see it some day through my eyes. It wasn't death, said King. It was resurrection. The bishop stepped near the tortured corpse and touched the seedling tree growing from the chest cavity. His name is Human, said the speaker. And so is yours, said the bishop softly. He turned and looked around at the members of his little flock, who had already taken humanity a step further than it had ever gone before. Am I the shepherd, Peregrino asked himself, or the most confused and helpless of the sheep? Come, all of you, come with me to the cathedral. The bells will soon ring for mass. The children gathered and prepared to go. Navinia, too, stepped away from her place behind the speaker. Then she stopped, turned back to him, looked at him with silent invitation in her eyes. Soon, he said, a moment more. She, too, followed the bishop through the gate and up the hill into the cathedral. The mass had barely begun when Peregrino saw the speaker enter at the back of the cathedral. He paused a moment, then found Novinia and her family with his eyes. In only a few steps he had taken a place beside her, 
where McCown had sat, those rare times when the whole family came together. The duties of the service took his attention. A few moments later, when Peregrino could look again, he saw that Grego was now sitting beside the speaker. Peregrino thought of the terms of the treaty as the girls had explained it to him, of the meaning of the death of the piggy called human, and before him, of the deaths of Pippo and Lebo. All things coming clear, all things coming together. The young man, Miro, lying paralyzed in bed with his sister, Wanda, tending him. Novenia, the lost one, now found. The fence, its shadow so dark in the minds of all who had lived within its bounds, now still and harmless, invisible, insubstantial. It was the miracle of the wafer, turned into the flesh of God in his hands. How suddenly we find the flesh of God within us after all, when we thought that we were only made of dust. Chapter 18 The Hive Queen Evolution gave his mother no birth canal and no breasts, so the small creature who would one day be named human was given no exit from the womb except by the teeth of his mouth. He and his infant siblings devoured their mother's body. Because human was strongest and most vigorous, he ate the most and so became even stronger. Human lived in utter darkness. When his mother was gone, there was nothing to eat but the sweet liquid that flowed on the surface of his world. He did not know yet that the vertical surface was the inside of a great hollow tree, and that the liquid that he ate was the sap of the tree. Nor did he know that the warm creatures that were far larger than himself were older pecaninos, almost ready to leave the darkness of the tree, and that the smaller creatures were younger ones, more recently emerged than himself. All he really cared about was to eat, to move, and to see the light. For now and then, in rhythms that he could not comprehend, a sudden light came into the darkness. It began each time with a sound whose source he could not comprehend. Then the tree would shudder slightly, the sap would cease to flow, and all the tree's energy would be devoted to changing the shape of the trunk in one place, to make an opening that let the light inside. When the light was there, human moved toward it. When the light was gone, Human lost his sense of direction and wandered aimlessly in search of liquid to drink. Until one day, when almost all the other creatures were smaller than himself, and none at all were larger, the light came, and he was so strong and swift that he reached the opening before it closed. He bent his body around the curve of the wood of the tree and for the first time felt the rasp of outer bark under his soft belly. He hardly noticed this new pain because the light dazzled him. It was not just in one place, but everywhere. And it was not gray, but vivid green and yellow. His rapture lasted many seconds. Then he was hungry again. And here on the outside of the mother tree, the sap flowed only in the fissures of the bark, where it was hard to reach. And instead of all the other creatures being little ones that he could push aside, they all were larger than himself, and drove him away from the easy feeding places. 
This was a new thing, a new world, a new life, and he was afraid. Later, when he learned language, he would remember the journey from darkness into light, and he would call it the passage from the first life to the second, from the life of darkness to the half-lit life. Speaker for the Dead, The Life of Human, Chapter 1, Verses 1 through 5. Miro decided to leave Lusitania, take the Speaker's starship, and go to Trondheim after all. Perhaps at his trial he could persuade the Hundred Worlds not to go to war against Lusitania. At worst, he could become a martyr, to stir people's hearts, to be remembered, to stand for something. Whatever happened to him, it would be better than staying here. In the first few days after he climbed the fence, Mito recovered rapidly. He gained some control and feeling in his arms and legs, enough to take shuffling steps like an old man, enough to move his arms and hands, enough to end the humiliation of his mother having to clean his body. But then his progress slowed and stopped. Here it is, said Navio. We have reached the level of permanent damage. You are so lucky, Miro. You can walk, you can talk, you are a whole man. You are no more limited than, say, a very healthy man who is a hundred years old. I would rather tell you that your body would be as it was before you climbed the fence, that you would have all the vigor and control of a twenty-year-old, but I'm very glad that I don't have to tell you that you will be bedridden all your life, diapered and catheterized, able to do nothing more than listen to soft music and wonder where your body went. So I'm grateful, Miro thought, as my fingers curl into a useless club on the ends of my arms, as I hear my own speech sounding thick and unintelligible, my voice unable to modulate properly. Then I will be glad that I am like a hundred-year-old man, that I can look forward to eighty more years of life as a centigenarian. Once it was clear that he did not need constant attention, the family scattered and went about their business. These days were too exciting for them to stay home with a crippled brother, son, friend. He understood completely. He did not want them to stay home with him. He wanted to be with them. His work was unfinished. Now, at long last, all the fences, all the rules were gone. Now he could ask the piggies the questions that had so long puzzled him. He tried at first to work through Wanda. She came to him every morning and evening and made her reports on the terminal in the front room of the Hibera house. He read her reports, asked her questions, listened to her stories, and she very seriously memorized the questions he wanted her to ask the piggies. After a few days of this, however, he noticed that in the evening she would indeed have the answers to Mito's questions, but there was no follow-up, no exploration of meaning. Her real attention was devoted to her own work and Mito stopped giving her questions to ask for him. He lied and told her that he was far more interested in what she was doing, that her avenues of exploration were the most important. The truth was that he hated seeing Wanda. For him, the revelation that she was his sister was painful, terrible, but he knew that if the decision were his alone, he would cast aside the incest taboo, marry her and live in the forest with the piggies if need be. Wanda, however was a believer, a belonger. She couldn't possibly violate the only universal human law. She grieved when she learned that Miro was her brother, but she immediately began to separate herself from him, to forget the touches, the kisses, the whispers, the promises, the teasing, 
the laughter. Better if he forgot them too, but he could not. Every time he saw her, it hurt him to see how reserved she was, how polite and kind she was. He was her brother. He was crippled. She would be good to him. But the love was gone. Uncharitably, he compared Wanda to his own mother, who had loved her lover regardless of the barriers between them. But mother's lover had been a whole man, an able man, not this useless carcass. So Miro stayed home and studied the file reports of everybody else's work. It was torture to know what they were doing, that he could not take part in it. But it was better than doing nothing, or watching the tedious vids on the terminal, or listening to music. He could type, slowly, by aiming his hand so the stiffest of his fingers, the index finger, touched exactly one key. It wasn't fast enough to enter any meaningful data, or even to write memos but he could call up other people's public files and read what they were doing. He could maintain some connection with the vital work that had suddenly blossomed on Lusitania with the opening of the gate. Wanda was working with the piggies on a lexicon of the males' and wives' languages, complete with a phonetic spelling system so they could write their language down. Keem was helping her, but Miro knew that he had his own purpose. He intended to be a missionary to the Pequeninos in other tribes, taking them the Gospels before they ever saw the Hive Queen and the Hegemon. He intended to translate at least some of the scripture and speak to the piggies in their own language. All this work with piggy language and culture was very good, very important, preserve the past, prepare to communicate with other tribes, but Miro knew that it could easily be done by Don Cristal's scholars who now ventured forth in their monkish robes and quietly asked questions of the piggies and answered their questions ably and powerfully. Wanda was allowing herself to become redundant, Miro believed. The real work with the piggies, as Miro saw it, was being done by Ender and a few key technicians from Bosquina's services department. They were laying pipe from the river to the mother tree's clearing to bring water to them. They were setting up electricity and teaching the brothers how to use a computer terminal. In the meantime, they were teaching them very primitive means of agriculture and trying to domesticate cabras to pull plows. It was confusing, the different levels of technology that were coming to the piggies all at once. But Ender had discussed it with Miro, explaining that he wanted the piggies to see quick, dramatic, immediate results from their treaty. Running water a computer connection with a holographic terminal that let them read anything in the library, electric lights at night. But all this was still magic, completely dependent on human society. At the same time, Ender was trying to keep them self-sufficient, inventive, resourceful. The dazzle of electricity would make myths that would spread through the world from tribe to tribe, but it would be no more than rumor for many, many years. It was the wooden plow, the scythe, the harrow, the amaranth seed that would make the real changes, that would allow piggy population to increase tenfold wherever they went. And those could be transmitted from place to place with a handful of seeds in a cobberskin pouch and the memory of how the work was done. This was the work that Miro longed to be part of. But what good were his clubbed hands and shuffling step in the amaranth fields? Of what use was he sitting at a loom, weaving cabra wool? He couldn't even talk well enough to teach. Ella was working on developing new strains of earthborn plants and even small animals and insects 
new species that could resist the descolada, even neutralize it. Mother was helping her with advice, but little more, for she was working on the most vital and secret project of them all. Again, it was Ender who came to Miro and told him what only his family and Wanda knew, that the Hive Queen lived, that she was being restored as soon as Novinia found a way for her to resist the descolada, her and all the buggers that would be born to her. As soon as it was ready, the Hive Queen would be revived. And Miro would not be part of that either. For the first time, humans and two alien races living together as Raman on the same world. And Mito wasn't part of any of it. He was less human than the piggies were. He couldn't speak or use his hands half so well. He had stopped being a tool-using, language-speaking animal. He was Varelse now. They only kept him as a pet. He wanted to go away. Better yet, he wanted to disappear, to go away even from himself. But not right now. There was a new puzzle that only he knew about, and so only he could solve. His terminal was behaving very strangely. He noticed it the first week after he recovered from total paralysis. He was scanning some of Wanda's files and realized that without doing anything special, he had accessed confidential files. They were protected with several layers. He had no idea what the passwords were, and yet a simple, routine scan had brought the information forward. It was her speculations on Pequenino evolution and their probable pre-Descolada society and life patterns. The sort of thing that as recently as two weeks ago she would have talked about, argued about with Miro. Now she kept it confidential and never discussed it with him at all. Miro didn't tell her he had seen the files, but he did steer conversations toward the subject and drew her out. She talked about her ideas willingly enough once Miro showed his interest. Sometimes it was almost like old times, except that he would hear the sound of his own slurred voice and keep most of his opinions to himself, merely listening to her, letting things he would have argued with pass right by. Still, seeing her confidential files allowed him to penetrate to what she was really interested in. But how had he seen them? It happened again and again. Files of Ella's, Mother's, Don Cristal's. As the piggies began to play with their new terminal, Miro was able to watch them in an echo mode that he had never seen the terminal use before. It enabled him to watch all their computer transactions and then make some suggestions, change things a little. He took particular delight in guessing what the piggies were really trying to do and helping them surreptitiously to do it. But how had he got such unorthodox, powerful access to the machine? The terminal was learning to accommodate itself to him, too. Instead of long code sequences, he only had to begin a sequence, and the machine would obey his instructions. Finally, he did not even have to log on. He touched the keyboard and the terminal displayed a list of all the activities he usually engaged in, then scanned through them. He could touch a key, and it would go directly to the activity he wanted, skipping dozens of preliminaries, saving him many painful minutes of typing one character at a time. At first, he thought that Oliado had created a new program for him, or perhaps someone in the mayor's office. But Oliado only looked blankly at what the terminal was doing and said, Bacana, that's great. And when he sent a message to the mayor, she never got it. Instead, the speaker for the dead came to visit him. So your terminal is being helpful, said Ender. Mito didn't answer. He was too busy trying to think why the mayor had sent the speaker to answer his note.
The mayor didn't get your message, said Ender. I did. And it's better if you don't mention to anybody else what your terminal is doing. Why? asked Miro. That was one word he could say without slurring too much. Because it isn't a new program helping you. It's a person. Miro laughed. No human being could be as quick as the program that was helping him. It was faster, in fact, than most programs he had worked with before, and very resourceful and intuitive, faster than a human, but smarter than a program. It's an old friend of mine, I think. At least she was the one who told me about your message and suggested that I let you know that discretion was a good idea. You see, she's a bit shy. She doesn't make many friends. How many? At the present moment, exactly two. For a few thousand years before now, exactly one. Not human, said Miro. Raman, said Ender. More human than most humans. We've loved each other for a long time, helped each other, depended on each other. But in the last few weeks since I got here, we've drifted apart. I'm involved more in the lives of people around me. Your family. Mother. Yes, your mother, your brothers and sisters, the work with the piggies, the work for the Hive Queen. My friend and I used to talk to each other constantly. I don't have time now. We've hurt each other's feelings sometimes. She's lonely, and so I think she's chosen another companion. Now, quiero. Don't want one. Yes, you do, said Ender. She's already helped you. Now that you know she exists, you'll find that she's a good friend. You can't have a better one. More loyal, more helpful. Puppy dog. Don't be a jackass, said Ender. I'm introducing you to a fourth alien species. You're supposed to be a xenologer, aren't you? She knows you, Miro. Your physical problems are nothing to her. She has no body at all. She exists among the philotic disturbances and the ansible communications of the hundred worlds. She's the most intelligent creature alive. And you're the second human being she's ever chosen to reveal herself to. How? How did she come to be? How did she know me to choose me? Ask her yourself. Ender touched the jewel in his ear. Just a word of advice. Once she comes to trust you, keep her with you always. Keep no secrets from her. She once had a lover who switched her off. Only for an hour, but things were never the same between them after that. They became just friends. Good friends. Loyal friends. Always until he dies. But all his life he will regret that one thoughtless act of disloyalty. Ender's eyes glistened. And Miro realized that whatever this creature was that lived in the computer, it was no phantom. It was part of this man's life, and he was passing it down to Miro, like father to son, the right to know this friend. Ender left without another word, and Miro turned to the terminal. There was a hollow of a woman there. She was small, sitting on a stool, leaning against a holographic wall. She was not beautiful, not ugly either. Her face had character. Her eyes were haunting, innocent, sad. Her mouth, delicate, about to smile, about to weep. Her clothing seemed veil-like, insubstantial, and yet instead of being provocative, it revealed a sort of innocence, a girlish, small-breasted body, the hands clasped lightly in her lap, her legs childishly parted with the toes pointing inward. She could have been sitting on a teeter-totter in a playground or on the edge of her lover's bed. Bonjour, Miro said softly. Hi, she said. 
I asked him to introduce us. She was quiet, reserved, but it was Miro who felt shy. For so long, Wanda had been the only woman in his life, besides the women of his family, and he had little confidence in the social graces. At the same time, he was aware that he was speaking to a hologram, a completely convincing one, but a mid-air laser projection all the same. She reached up one hand and laid it gently on her breast. Feels nothing, she said. No nerves. Tears came to his eyes. Self-pity, of course, that he would probably never have a woman more substantial than this one. If he tried to touch one, his caresses would be crude pawing. Sometimes when he wasn't careful, he drooled and couldn't even feel it. What a lover. But I have eyes, she said. And ears. I see everything in all the hundred worlds. I watch the sky through a thousand telescopes. I overhear a trillion conversations every day. She giggled a little. I'm the best gossip in the universe. Then suddenly she stood up, grew larger, closer, so that she only showed from the waist up, as if she had moved closer to an invisible camera. Her eyes burned with intensity as she stared right at him. And you're a parochial schoolboy who's never seen anything but one town and one forest in his life. Don't get much chance to travel, he said. We'll see about that, she answered. So, what do you want to do today? What's your name, he asked. You don't need my name, she said. How do I call you? I'm here whenever you want me. But I want to know, he said. She touched her ear. When you like me well enough to take me with you wherever you go, then I'll tell you my name. Impulsively, he told her what he had told no one else. I want to leave this place, said Miro. Can you take me away from Lusitania? She at once became coquettish, mocking. And we only just met. Really, Mr. Hibera, I'm not that sort of girl. Maybe when we get to know each other, Miro said, laughing. She made a subtle, wonderful transition, and the woman on the screen was a lanky feline, sprawling sensuously on a tree limb. She purred noisily, stretched out a limb, groomed herself. I can break your neck with a single blow from my paw, she whispered. Her tone of voice suggested seduction. Her claws promised murder. When I get you alone, I can bite your throat out with a single kiss. He laughed. Then he realized that in all this conversation, he had actually forgotten how slurred his speech was. She understood every word. She never said, what, I didn't get that, or any of the other polite but infuriating things that people said. She understood him without any special effort at all. I want to understand everything, said Miro. I want to know everything and put it all together to see what it means. Excellent project, she said. It will look very good on your resume. Ender found that Oyato was a much better driver than he was. The boy's depth perception was better, and when he plugged his eye directly into the onboard computer, navigation practically took care of itself. Ender could devote his energies to looking. The scenery seemed monotonous when they first began these exploratory flights. Endless prairies, huge herds of cabra, occasional forests in the distance. They never came close to those, of course, since they didn't want to attract the attention of the piggies that lived there. 
Besides, they were looking for a home for the Hive Queen, and it wouldn't do to put her too close to any tribe. Today they headed west, on the other side of Reuter's forest, and they followed a small river to its outlet. They stopped there on the beach, with breakers rolling gently to shore. Ender tasted the water. Salt. The sea. Oliado got the onboard terminal to display a map of this region of Lusitania, pointing out their location, Reuter's forest, and the other piggy settlements nearby. It was a good place, and in the back of his mind Ender could sense the Hive Queen's approval. Near the sea, plenty of water, sunny. They skimmed over the water, traveling upstream a few hundred meters until the right bank rose to form a low cliff. Any place to stop along here, asked Ender. Oliado found a place fifty meters from the crown of the hill. They walked back along the river's edge, where the reeds gave way to the grama. Every river on Lusitania looked like this, of course. Ella had easily documented the genetic patterns as soon as she had access to Novenia's files and permission to pursue the subject. Reeds that co-reproduced with suckflies, grama that mated with water snakes, and then the endless capim, which rubbed its pollen-rich tassels on the bellies of fertile cabra to germinate the next generation of manure-producing animals. Entwined in the roots and stems of the capim were the tropecos, long trailing vines that Ella proved had the same genes as the shingadora, the ground-nesting bird that used the living plant for its nest. The same sort of pairing continued in the forest. Masio worms that hatched from the seeds of merdona vines and then gave birth to merdona seed. Puladors, small insects that mated with the shiny-leafed bushes in the forest. And above all, the piggies and the trees, both at the peak of their kingdoms, plant and animal, merged into one long life. That was the list, the whole list of surface animals and plants of Lusitania. Underwater there were many, many more, but the Descolada had left Lusitania monotonous. And yet even the monotony had a peculiar beauty. The geography was as varied as any other world, rivers, hills, mountains, deserts, oceans, islands. The carpet of Kapim and the patches of forest became background music to the symphony of landforms. The eye became sensitized to undulations, outcroppings, cliffs, pits, and above all the sparkle and rush of water in the sunlight. Lusitania, like Trondheim, was one of the rare worlds that was dominated by a single motif instead of displaying the whole symphony of possibility. With Trondheim, however, it was because the planet was on the bare edge of habitability, its climate only just able to support surface life. Lusitania's climate and soil cried out a welcome to the oncoming plow, the excavator's pick, the mason's trowel, bring me to life, it said. Ender did not understand that he loved this place because it was as devastated and barren as his own life, stripped and distorted in his childhood by events every bit as terrible on a small scale as the Descolada had been to this world. And yet it had thrived, had found a few threads strong enough to survive and continue to grow. Out of the challenge of the Descolada had come the three lives of the little ones, out of the battle school, out of years of isolation, had come Ender Wigan. He fit this place as if he had planned it. The boy who walked beside him through the grama felt like his true son, as if he had known the boy from infancy. I know how it feels to have a metal wall between me and the world, Oliado. But here and now I have made the wall come down, and flesh touches earth, drinks water, 
gives comfort, takes love. The earthen bank of the river rose in terraces, a dozen meters from shore to crest. The soil was moist enough to dig and hold its shape. The hive queen was a burrower. Ender felt the desire in him to dig, and so he dug, Oliado beside him. The ground gave way easily enough, and yet the roof of their cavelet stayed firm. Yes, here. And so it was decided. Here it is, said Ender aloud. Oliado grinned, but it was really Jane that Ender was talking to, and her answer that he heard. Novinia thinks they have it. The tests all came through negative. The Descolada stayed inactive with the new Colador present in the cloned bugger cells. Ella thinks that the daisies she's been working with can be adapted to produce the Colador naturally. If that works, you'll only have to plant seeds here and there, and the buggers can keep the Descolada at bay by sucking flowers. Her tone was lively enough, but it was all business, no fun. No fun at all. Fine, Ender said. He felt a stab of jealousy. Jane was no doubt talking far more easily with Miro, teasing him, taunting him, as she used to do with Ender. But it was easy enough to drive the feeling of jealousy away. He put out a hand and rested it easily on Oliado's shoulder. He momentarily pulled the boy close, and then together they walked back to the waiting flyer. Oliado marked the spot on the map and stored it. He laughed and made jokes all the way home, and Ender laughed with him. The boy wasn't Jane, but he was Oliado, and Ender loved him. And Oliado needed Ender, and that was what a few million years of evolution had decided Ender needed most. It was the hunger that had gnawed at him through all those years with Valentine, that had kept him moving from world to world, this boy with metal eyes, his bright and devastatingly destructive little brother, Grego, Kara's penetrating understanding, her innocence, King's utter self-control, asceticism, faith, Ella's dependability, like a rock, and yet she knew when to move out and act. And Miro. Miro. I have no consolation for Miro, not in this world, not at this time. His life's work was taken from him, his body, his hope for the future, and nothing I can say or do will give him a vital work to do. He lives in pain, his lover turned into his sister, his life among the piggies now impossible to him as they look to other humans for friendship and learning. Miro needs, Ender said softly. Miro needs to leave Lusitania, said Oliado. Hmm, said Ender. You've got a starship, haven't you? said Oliado. I remember reading a story once, or maybe it was a vid, about an old-time hero in the Bugger Wars, Mazer Rackham. He saved Earth from destruction once, but they knew he'd be dead long before the next battle, so they sent him out in a starship at relativistic speeds, just sent him out and had him come back. A hundred years had gone by for the Earth, but only two years for him. You think Miro needs something as drastic as that? There's a battle coming. There are decisions to make. Miro's the smartest person in Lusitania, and the best. He doesn't get mad, you know. Even in the worst of times with father, Marcal, sorry, I still call him father. That's all right. In many ways he was. Miro would think, and he'd decide the best thing to do, and it always was the best thing. Mother depended on him too. 
the way I see it, we need Miro when Starways Congress sends its fleet against us. He'll study all the information, everything we've learned in the years that he was gone, put it all together, and tell us what to do. Ender couldn't help himself. He laughed. So it's a dumb idea, said Oliado. You see better than anyone else I know, said Ender. I've got to think about this, but you might be right. They drove on in silence for a while. I was just talking, said Oliado. When I said that about Miro, it was just something I thought, putting him together with that old story. It probably isn't even a true story. It's true, said Ender. How do you know? I knew Mazer Rackham. Oliado whistled. Whew, you're old. You're older than any of the trees. I'm older than any of the human colonies. It doesn't make me wise, unfortunately. Are you really Ender, the Ender? That's why it's my password. It's funny. Before you got here, the bishop tried to tell us all that you were Satan. King's the only one in the family that took him seriously. But if the bishop had told us you were Ender, we would have stoned you to death in the Praza that day you arrived. Why don't you now? We know you now. That makes all the difference, doesn't it? Even King doesn't hate you now. When you really know somebody, you can't hate them. Or maybe it's just that you can't really know them until you stop hating them. Is that a circular paradox? Don Cristal says that most truth can only be expressed in circular paradoxes. I don't think it has anything to do with truth, Oliado. It's just cause and effect. We never can sort them out. Science refuses to admit any cause except first cause. Knock down one domino, the one next to it also falls. But when it comes to human beings, the only type of cause that matters is final cause, the purpose, what a person had in mind. Once you understand what people really want, you can't hate them anymore. You can fear them, but you can't hate them, because you can always find the same desires in your own heart. Mother doesn't like it that you're Ender, I know. But she loves you anyway, I know. And King, it's really funny, but now that he knows you're Ender, he likes you better for it. That's because he's a crusader, and I got my bad reputation by winning a crusade. And me, said Oliado. Yes, you, said Ender. You killed more people than anybody in history. Be the best at whatever you do, that's what my mother always told me. But when you spoke for father, you made me feel sorry for him. You make people love each other and forgive each other. How could you kill all those millions of people in the genocide? I thought I was playing games. I didn't know it was the real thing. But that's no excuse, Oliado. If I had known the battle was real, I would have done the same thing. We thought they wanted to kill us. We were wrong, but we had no way to know that. Ender shook his head. Except that I knew better. I knew my enemy. That's how I beat her, the Hive Queen. I knew her so well that I loved her. Or maybe I loved her so well that I knew her. I didn't want to fight her anymore. I wanted to quit. I wanted to go home. So I blew up her planet. And today we found a place to bring her back to life. Oliada was very serious. Are you sure she won't try to get even? Are you sure she won't try to wipe out humankind starting with you? I'm as sure, said Ender, as I am of anything. Not absolutely sure, said Oliado. Sure enough to bring her back to life, said Ender. And that's as sure as we ever are of anything. We believe it enough to act as though it's true. When we're that sure, we call it knowledge. Facts. We bet our lives on it. 
I guess that's what you're doing, betting your life on her being what you think she is. Oh, I'm more arrogant than that. I'm betting your life, too, and everybody else's, and I'm not so much as asking anyone else's opinion. Funny, said Oliado. If I asked somebody whether they trust Ender with a decision that might affect the future of the human race, they'd say, of course not. But if I asked them whether they trust the Speaker for the Dead, they'd say, yes, most of them. And they wouldn't even guess that they were the same person. Yeah, said Ender. Funny. Neither of them laughed. Then, after a long time, Oliato spoke again. His thoughts had wandered to a subject that mattered more. I don't want Miro to go away for thirty years. You will be forty-two. And he'll come back the age he is now, twenty, half my age. If there's ever a girl who wants to marry a guy with reflecting eyes, I might even be married and have kids then. He won't even know me. I won't be his little brother anymore. Oliado swallowed. It'd be like him dying. No, said Ender. It'd be like him passing from his second life to his third. That's like dying too, said Oliado. It's also like being born, said Ender. As long as you keep getting born, it's all right to die sometimes. Valentine called the next day. Ender's fingers trembled as he keyed instructions into the terminal. It wasn't just a message, either. It was a call, a full, ansible voice communication. Incredibly expensive. But that wasn't the problem. It was the fact that ansible communications with the Hundred Worlds were supposedly cut off. For Jane to allow this call to come through meant that it was urgent. It occurred to Ender right away that Valentine might be in danger, that Starway's Congress might have decided Ender was involved in the rebellion and traced his connection with her. She was older. The hologram of her face showed weather lines from many windy days on the islands, flows, and boats of Trondheim. But her smile was the same, and her eyes danced with the same light. Ender was silenced at first by the changes the years had wrought in his sister. She, too, was silenced by the fact that Ender seemed unchanged, a vision coming back to her out of the past. Ah, Ender, was I ever so young. And will I age so beautifully? She laughed, then she cried. He did not, how could he? He had missed her for a couple of months. She had missed him for twenty-two years. I suppose you've heard about our trouble getting along with Congress. I imagine that you were at the thick of it. Stumbled into the situation, really, but I'm glad I was here. I'm going to stay. She nodded, drying her eyes. <laughs> yes, I thought so. But I had to call and make sure. I didn't want to spend a couple of decades flying to meet you and have you gone when I arrive. Meet me? I got much too excited about your revolution there, Ender. After twenty years of raising a family, teaching my students, loving my husband, living at peace with myself, I thought I'd never resurrect Demosthenes again. But then the story came about illegal contact with the piggies, and right away the news that Lusitania was in revolt. And suddenly people were saying the most ridiculous things, and I saw it was the beginning of the same old hate. Remember the videos about the buggers? How terrifying and awful they were. Suddenly we were seeing videos of the bodies they found, of the xenologers. I can't remember their names, but grisly pictures everywhere you looked, heating us up to war fever. And then stories about the discolada, 
how if anyone ever went from Lusitania to another world, it would destroy everything, the most hideous plague imaginable. It's true, but we're working on it, trying to find ways to keep the Descolata from spreading when we go to other worlds. True or not, Ender, it's all leading to war. I remember war. Nobody else does. So I revived Demosthenes. I stumbled across some memos and reports. Their fleet is carrying the little doctor, Ender. If they decide to, they can blow Lusitania to bits. Just like... Just like I did before. Poetic justice, do you think, for me to end the same way? He who lives by the sword. Don't joke with me, Ender. I'm a middle-aged matron now, and I've lost my patience with silliness. At least for now. I wrote some very ugly truths about what Starways Congress is doing and published them as Demosthenes. They're looking for me. Treason is what they're calling it. So you're coming here? Not just me. Dear Yacht is turning the fleet over to his brothers and sisters. We've already bought a starship. There's apparently some kind of resistance movement that's helping us. Someone named Jane has jimmied the computers to cover our tracks. I know Jane. So you do have an organization here. I was shocked when I got a message that I could call you. Your Ansible was supposedly blown up. We have powerful friends. Ender, Yacht and I are leaving today. We're bringing our three children. Your first one? Yes, Sifta, the one who was making me fat when you left. She's almost 22 now. A very lovely girl. And a good friend, the children's tutor named Plicht. Well, I have a student by that name, said Ender, thinking back to conversations only a couple of months ago. Oh, yes, well, <laughs> that was 22 years ago, Ender. It's not an emergency. You have 22 years to prepare for me. Well, actually longer, more like 30 years. We're taking the voyage in several hops, the first few in the wrong direction so that nobody can be sure we're going to Lusitania. Coming here, 30 years from now, I'll be older than she is now. Coming here, by then I'll have my family too, Novinia's and my children, if we have any all grown like hers. And then, thinking of Novinia, he remembered Miro, remembered what Oliado had suggested several days ago, the day they found the nesting place for the Hive Queen. Would you mind terribly if I sent someone to meet you on the way? Meet us? In deep space? No, don't send someone to do that, Ender. It's too terrible a sacrifice to come so far when the computers can guide us in just fine. It's not really for you, though I want him to meet you. He's one of the Xenologers. He was badly injured in an accident, some brain damage, like a bad stroke. He's... he's the smartest person in Lusitania, says someone whose judgment I trust. But he's lost all his connections with our life here. Yet we'll need him later, when you arrive. He's a very good man, Val. He can make the last week of your voyage very educational. Can your friend arrange to get us course information for such a rendezvous? We're navigators, but only on the sea. Jane will have the revised navigational information in your ship's computer when you leave. Ender, for you it'll be 30 years, but for me, 
I'll see you in only a few weeks. Maybe I'll come with Miro to meet you. Don't. I want you to be as old and crabbed as possible when I arrive. I couldn't put up with you as the 30 year old brat I see on my terminal. 35. You'll be there when I arrive, she demanded. I will. And Miro, the boy I'm sending to you, think of him as my son. She nodded gravely. These are such dangerous times, Ender. I only wish we had Peter. I don't. If he were running our little rebellion, he'd end up hegemon of all the hundred worlds. We just want them to leave us alone. It may not be possible to get the one without the other. But we can quarrel about that later. Goodbye, my dear brother. He didn't answer. Just looked at her and looked at her until she smiled wryly and switched off the connection. Ender didn't have to ask Miro to go. Jane had already told him everything. Your sister is Demosthenes? asked Miro. Ender was used to his slurred speech now, or maybe his speech was clearing a little. It wasn't as hard to understand anyway. We were a talented family, said Ender. I hope you like her. I hope she likes me. Miro smiled, but he looked afraid. I told her, said Ender, to think of you as my son. Miro nodded. I know, he said. And then, almost defiantly, she showed me your conversation with her. Ender felt cold inside. Jane's voice came into his ear. I should have asked you, she said, but you know you would have said yes. It wasn't the invasion of privacy that Ender minded. It was the fact that Jane was so very close to Miro. Get used to it, he told himself. He's the one she's looking out for now. We'll miss you, said Ender. Those who will miss me miss me already, said Miro, because they already think of me as dead. We need you alive, said Ender. When I come back, I'll still be only nineteen and brain damaged. You'll still be Miro and brilliant and trusted and loved. You started this rebellion, Miro. The fence came down for you, not for some great cause, but for you. Don't let us down. Miro smiled, but Ender couldn't tell if the twist in his smile was because of his paralysis or because it was a bitter, poisonous smile. Tell me something, said Miro. If I won't, said Ender, she will. It isn't hard. I just want to know what it was that people and Libo died for, what it was the piggies honored them for. Ender understood better than Miro knew. He understood why the boy cared so much about the question. Miro had learned that he was really Libo's son only hours before he crossed the fence and lost his future. People, then Libo, then Miro, father, son, grandson the three Xenologists who had lost their futures for the piggy's sake. Miro hoped that in understanding why his forebears died, he might make more sense of his own sacrifice. The trouble was that the truth might well leave Miro feeling that none of the sacrifices meant anything at all. So Ender answered with a question. Don't you already know why? Miro spoke slowly and carefully so that Ender could understand his slurred speech. I know that the piggies thought they were doing them an honor. I know that Mandachuva and Leaf Eater could have died in their places. With Libo, I even know the occasion. 
It was when the first amaranth harvest came, and there was plenty of food. They were rewarding him for that. Except why not earlier? Why not when we taught them to use merdona root? Why not when we taught them to make pots or shoot arrows? The truth, said Ender. Miro knew from Ender's tone that the truth would not be easy. Yes, he said. Neither Pipo nor Libo really deserved the honor. It wasn't the amaranth that the wives were rewarding. It was the fact that Leaf Eater had persuaded them to let a whole generation of infants be conceived and born even though there wasn't enough food for them to eat once they left the mother tree. It was a terrible risk to take, and if he had been wrong, that whole generation of piggies would have died. Lebo brought the harvest, but Leaf Eater was the one who had, in a sense, brought the population to a point where they needed the grain. Miro nodded. People? Pipo told the piggies about his discovery, that the descolada, which killed humans, was part of their normal physiology, that their bodies could handle transformations that killed us. Mandachuva told the wives that this meant that humans were not godlike and all-powerful, that in some ways we were even weaker than the little ones, that what made humans stronger than piggies was not something inherent in us, our size, our brains, our language, but rather the mere accident that we were a few thousand years ahead of them in learning. If they could acquire our knowledge, then we humans would have no more power over them. Mandachuva's discovery that piggies were potentially equal to humans, that was what they rewarded, not the information people gave that led to that discovery. So both of them, the piggies, didn't want to kill either people or Libo. In both cases, the crucial achievement belonged to a Pecanino. The only reason Pipo and Libo died was because they couldn't bring themselves to take a knife and kill a friend. Miro must have seen the pain in Ender's face, despite his best effort to conceal it, because it was Ender's bitterness that he answered. You, said Miro, you can kill anybody. It's a knack I was born with, said Ender. You killed human because you knew it would make him live a new and better life, said Miro. Yes. And me, said Miro. Yes, said Ender. Sending you away is very much like killing you. But will I live a new and better life? I don't know. Already you get around better than a tree. Miro laughed. So I've got one thing on old human, don't I? At least I'm ambulatory. And nobody has to hit me with a stick so I can talk. Then Miro's expression grew sour again. Of course, now he can have a thousand children. Don't count on being celibate all your life, said Ender. You may be disappointed. I hope so, said Miro. And then, after a silence, Speaker, call me Ender. Ender, did Pipo and Libo die for nothing, then? Ender understood the real question. Am I also enduring this for nothing? There are worse reasons to die, Ender answered, than to die because you cannot bear to kill. What about someone, said Miro, who can't kill and can't die and can't live either? Don't deceive yourself, said Ender. You will do all three some day. Miro left the next morning. There were tearful goodbyes. 
For weeks afterward, it was hard for Novinia to spend any time in her own house because Miro's absence was so painful to her. Even though she had agreed wholeheartedly with Ender that it was right for Miro to go, it was still unbearable to lose her child. It made Ender wonder if his own parents felt such pain when he was taken away. He suspected they had not, nor had they hoped for his return. He already loved another man's children more than his parents had loved their own child. Well, he'd get fit revenge for their neglect of him. He'd show them, three thousand years later, how a father should behave. Bishop Peregrino married them in his chambers. Before the marriage, though, there were two days of note. On a day in summer, Ella, Wanda, and Novinia presented him with the results of their research and speculation. As completely as possible, the life cycle and community structure of the piggies, male and female, and the likely reconstruction of their patterns of life before the Descolada bonded them forever to the trees that, till then, had been no more to them than habitat. Ender had reached his own understanding of who the Pecaninos were, and especially who human was before his passage to the life of light. He lived with the piggies for a week while he wrote The Life of Human. Mandachuva and Leaf Eater read it carefully, discussed it with him. He revised and reshaped. Finally, it was ready. On that day, he invited everyone who was working with the piggies, all the Hibera family, Wanda and her sisters, the many workmen who had brought technological miracles to the piggies, the scholar monks of the Children of the Mind, Bishop Peregrino, Mayor Boschina, and read the book to them. It wasn't long, less than an hour to read. They had gathered on the hillside near where humans' seedling tree reached upward, now more than three meters high, and where Rutter overshadowed them in the afternoon sunlight. Speaker, said the bishop, almost thou persuadest me to become a humanist. Others, less trained to eloquence, found no words to say, not then or ever. But they knew from that day forward who the piggies were, just as the readers of the Hive Queen had understood the buggers, and the readers of the Hegemon had understood humankind in its endless quest for greatness in a wilderness of separation and suspicion. This was why I called you here, said Novinia. I dreamed once of writing this book, but you had to write it. I played more of a role in the story than I would have chosen for myself, said Ender. But you fulfilled your dream, Ivanova. It was your work that led to this book, and you and your children who made me whole enough to write it. He signed it, as he had signed the others, the speaker for the dead. Jane took the book and carried it by Ansible across the light years to the hundred worlds. With it she brought the text of the covenant and Oyado's pictures of its signing and of the passage of human into the full light. She placed it here and there in a score of places on each of the hundred worlds, giving it to people likely to read it and understand what it was. Copies were sent as messages from computer to computer. By the time the Starways Congress knew of it, it was too widely distributed to be suppressed. Instead, they tried to discredit it as a fake. The pictures were a crude simulation. Textual analysis revealed that it could not possibly have the same author as the other two books. Ansible usage records revealed that it could not possibly have come from Lusitania, which had no Ansible. Some people believed them. Most people didn't care. Many who did care enough to read The Life of Human hadn't the heart to accept the piggies as ramen. Some did accept the piggies, and read the accusation that Demosthenes had written a few months before, 
and began to call the fleet that was already underway toward Lusitania the Second Xenocide. It was a very ugly name. There weren't enough jails in the Hundred Worlds to hold all those who used it. The Starways Congress had thought the war would begin when their ships reached Lusitania thirty or forty years from then. Instead, the war was already begun, and it would be fierce. What the Speaker for the Dead wrote, many people believed, and many were ready to accept the piggies as ramen, and to think of anyone who sought their deaths as murderers. Then, on a day in autumn, Ender took the carefully wrapped cocoon, and he and Novinia, Oliado, King, and Ella skimmed over the kilometers of Capim till they came to the hill beside the river. The daisies they had planted were in furious bloom. The winter here would be mild, and the hive queen would be safe from the descolada. Ender carried the hive queen gingerly to the river bank and laid her in the chamber he and Oliado had prepared. They laid the carcass of a freshly killed cabra on the ground outside her chamber, and then Oliado drove them back. Ender wept with the vast, uncontrollable ecstasy that the Hive Queen placed within his mind, her rejoicing too strong for a human heart to bear. Novinia held him, King quietly prayed, and Ella sang a jaunty folk song that once had been heard in the hill country of Minas Gerais, among the Caipiras and Mineiros of old Brazil. It was a good time, a good place to be, better than Ender had ever dreamed for himself in the sterile corridors of the battle school when he was little and fighting for his life. I can probably die now, said Ender. All my life's work is done. Mine too, said Novinia, but I think that means that it's time to start to live. Behind them, in the dank and humid air of a shallow cave by a river, strong mandibles tore at the cocoon, and a limp and skeletal body struggled forth, her wings only gradually spread out and dried in the sunlight. She struggled weakly to the riverbank and pulled strength and moisture into her desiccated body. She nibbled at the meat of the cabra. The unhatched eggs she held within her cried out to be released. She laid the first dozen of them in the cabra's corpse then ate the nearest daisies, trying to feel the changes in her body as she came alive at last. The sunlight on her back, the breeze against her wings, the water cool under her feet, her eggs warming and maturing in the flesh of the cabra. Life so long waited for, and not until today could she be sure that she would be not the last of her tribe, but the first. It's kind of funny, considering that Speaker for the Dead was the book I really intended to write, and Ender's Game was just the intro, really, to Speaker for the Dead, that it's Ender's Game that has become my most read, most translated, uh, most popular work. Speaker for the Dead is still, in some ways, the deeper story to me, and the one that talks about issues that, I think, have more of an effect on the real world. In working on Speaker for the Dead, it had a strange kind of origin. I first conceived of it as, the original title, in fact, was Singer of Death, 
But my wife said, look, you, you just wrote Songmaster and Unaccompanied Sonata. That's really quite enough stories about musicians for one career. She's right. I haven't really done much then with musicians since then. And I, and I changed it to what I am, which is a storyteller. But in a way, that really made me nervous. I've, I've done a lot of sneering at the formula of literary fiction because it always has a writer, a storyteller, an artist of some kind, a musician or whatever, at the core of the story, somebody who represents the author's wishes for what he is and shows that he has a special sensitivity and a deeper feeling about things and is just better than average people. And I don't believe that. You know, writers are, are, are regular people. We are not special. We don't see anything better. We just say things about it better. So I resisted that kind of story as much as I could. When I caught myself doing it, as with the music stories, I stopped. But with Speaker for the Dead, the origin was something more important than the sensitive artist. The origin was, what do we do about dead people whose lives were really crummy? What do we do about people who were vicious? Uh, You've all seen or can imagine at least that kind of funeral where This is a person who poisoned everything he touched. Everybody around him was miserable because he was alive. What do you say at the funeral? You know, you can, if you're Christian, you can talk about the hope of a glorious resurrection. You can preach forgiveness. But by and large, what we do at people's funerals is we lie. I remember uh, being in Brazil. I was a missionary there. And I attended the funeral of a woman who was desquitada from her husband, not divorced, but separated which is like divorce, only you can't remarry, very painful. But uh, he had kept a mistress throughout that time. And so I had talked to her several times while he was still alive about how miserable she was and what an awful person he had been to her and all kinds of things like that. And so there we were at the funeral. There was his coffin in the middle of the uh, church meeting house. And, And every few minutes she would do as was the custom in Brazil, stand up, walk over to the coffin and weep and wail over the coffin. And here's what she said. She said, You were a wonderful husband. You were a good man. You made my life bright and wonderful. Everything you did was good. You were such a good man. The world is poorer because you're gone. And I could hardly stand to hear this because every word about it was a lie. And I thought, how can she do that when she was so unhappy because of him? And then I realized it was because she was now erasing him. The life he actually lived was over. He was gone. He couldn't do anything to contradict her. Now she could make him over into the husband he should have been. And I thought, in a way, this is her vengeance. She can eradicate the man he actually was and create in his place the man that she wished she had married. And that's really quite a cruel thing to do. It was her vengeance, and it was a perfect vengeance. After all he had done to her, she got to wipe him out now. Well, what I wanted to explore was the opposite approach to death which was to face what the person actually was, to face their life when it's finally over and you can kind of start assigning meanings to it. And so I invented the idea of a speaker for the dead, somebody who gets up and tells their story, but not as they would want it told, certainly not presenting the image that they would have liked to present, but instead presenting what they actually were. And what I realized was that if you really understand someone well enough to speak for them when they're dead, you will end up probably loving them. Now, that's a pretty bold thing to say, because what if you had to speak for the death of Adolf Hitler or Joseph Stalin or somebody like that? But I really think that if you knew enough about them, you could at least understand how they got set on the road that led to the terrible things they did. And you don't pull any punches. You name their sins for what they were. You talk about their flaws. You talk about their horrible choices, the viciousness, the vileness, whatever they did. But you also say, but at one point, this was a child. At one point, 
This was a, a kid who wept or a, a kid who wanted to be loved or a kid who tried to do well at this or at that. You look at the war experiences that shaped Adolf Hitler or you look at the deep hunger for influence and control that drove Joseph Stalin in his childhood, and it doesn't excuse anything, but it makes the person comprehensible. You're doing the opposite of the kind of vengeance she was taking. You don't eradicate them. You don't glorify them either. You just face them for what they were, good and bad. You understand how it is that a human being could get to where they are. And that's the goal that I was trying for in Speaker for the Dead, not to show Ender as a deeply sensitive person, though, in fact, I think he would be a deeply sensitive person, and he'd be able to deal with this problem-ridden family and to love them. And so that's important to me, that, that he had that response. But you notice when he walks into the family, he doesn't walk in as some goody-two-shoes saying, I'm going to come and, and make you happy. He comes in and faces Grego as an antisocial monster and won't take it from him, won't put up with it. He gives him the discipline that shows that somebody actually cares, cares enough about his life to try to change him, to try to stop him from being a monster. He tries to win the others over, not by sucking up to them, but by being himself as honestly as he can be and responding to them as one human being to another. And when it comes time for the speaking for the dead, what he is is not a saint, not a sinner, simply an honest man. That's what I think all of us would like at some point in our lives, is to be seen truly and wholly for what we are. I could face the criticism if the person could also see the good things in my life. Likewise, I wouldn't feel guilty about somebody praising me for the good things if I knew that I was receiving that praise from somebody who also knew the bad. And so that's what Speaker for the Dead is about. And I think that that's really more important than anything in Ender's Game. So to me, this is still the book, the real book. And even though I'm very happy with Ender's Game, I love the kids in Ender's Game. I, I care about them. I think that they matter. It's not that the book is trivial. It's that it exists so that I could tell the story of Speaker for the Dead. Speaker for the Dead by Orson Scott Card Read by David Burney, Scott Brick, Gabrielle DeCure, Amanda Carr, Lisa Nemechek, John Rubenstein, Stefan Rudnicki, and Don Schlossman. Produced by Stefan Rudnicki. Directed by Stefan Rudnicki and Gabrielle DeCure. Copyright 2002, American Audio Literature.